A new chapter in one of the greatest sagas of all time. Gundam. Welcome back, everybody, to Gundam at MHQ. This is going to be episode 23, and in this episode, we're going to... This is actually a jam-packed episode. We're going to be finishing up uh, the reviews of two shows that came to a conclusion recently in Japan. Uh, we are doing episodes 20 to 25 of Macross Frontier. We'll also be concluding uh, 21 through 25 of Code Geass R2. Yeah. In addition to that, we're actually going to have our special guest that's with us on this uh, for most of this episode, Armor NT. You, know, you might know him from uh, the past uh, Gias discussion that we had in a few episodes ago. And he actually is going to be answering a lot of the questions that you, the listeners, submitted on the Mecha Talk forums. And finally, we'll be doing our 10th uh, installment of the Gundam Roundup, and Armor will be joining us on that too, uh, which is uh, Gundam Wing. But uh, before we begin, I just got a couple little news things that I want to do, and uh, this is going to be very abbreviated, so anybody that submitted anything, uh, you know, I apologize. We'll probably fit that in on later episodes. But um, the first thing I have here is just um, on dealing with uh, our new news source, Gundam News. Uh, and uh, they actually have a thing on there. I guess uh, they've been getting a lot of email and a lot of comments uh, asking them what the direction is of their website. I encourage all people to go to it and uh, read the comments that they left there. Um, you know, they're not looking to be a, a replacement for Ganada, but trying to do something uh, to to the extent of what Ganada did, but also a lot of things that they uh, they want to add to make their own flair to it. So, um, you know, if you have any questions or anything like that, just let those guys know. They have contact information on there. Uh, along with that, they um, recently just added a uh, Gundam Double OP section was added to Gundam News, so it's going to um, you know, it's uh, just you'll find a translation of the photo novel, and there's some su summaries that are becoming that are going to become later uh, become available at a later time. And they also um, have also posted that the American website for Gundam Double O has been updated with some new character and mechanical information. So anybody that hasn't checked that, um, go ahead and check it. That's uh, Gundam GundamOfficial.net. So. Um, with some quick uh, listener-submitted news articles, I guess these are going to fit in quite nicely with the episode today. Uh, this is actually courtesy of uh, one of the posters, FedRex00, and he was talking. He gave us an article that he found on Anime News Network, saying that there is actually uh, in Japan, which is available, is the uh, a USB jump drive. <laughs> that is in the version of the Lancelot, the Lancelot key, and like the core drill from uh, Gurren Lagann. Right and they're about two gigs, and the, the one from Code Geass for the Lancelot is about 83 bucks U.S. because it's, uh, it's made out of zinc, and, uh, you know, it's uh, really pretty nice looking. And the, uh, the core drill is actually about $45. So that was, I thank him for that. And one of our other... Um, Another news topic that we have here submitted by Snoop619. It's actually not necessarily a, a news topic, but it's, I think the, a lot of the uh, pedo bears out there will enjoy this. Is oh, God. On Amazon.com, if you want this, there's actually a C2 Code Geass body pillow available, and it's only twenty nine ninety five. So for all those that need their C2 fix, um, I encourage you to go to amazon.com and snuggle up, up the decadence yeah does she really count as pedo though 
No, she just, man, that she chick is doesn't. Like, yeah, she really doesn't. I mean, I guess it could be more just getting your fix off of it more than anything. So, <laughs> but I get it's a body pillow. That's pathetic enough. Yeah, and, it, and if you saw the picture, it's actually a little worse. Um, she basically just has a nightshirt on, and she's on her side, so with her hair flowing all over. So I encourage everybody to go to the Neo's News listener submitted news articles and click the links because uh, um, to see the pictures, I can't really describe them in a way that would uh, do it justice there. And uh, two last little listener submitted articles, and this one's kind of odd too, and this is... Um, courtesy of our friend demon lord of l5 oh. i guess yeah in um in japan at one of their conventions there is like this it's like a suzuki almost looks like one of those uh scion box cars and somebody had put all these stickers on there they're actually nice artwork but it's uh cheryl and Ranka oh. from macross frontier but the one that really got me the most disturbing and i really encourage everybody to click this link there is <laughs> There is a picture of a naked Ronka in thigh-high stockings with high heels straddling a heart with an arrow through it that says hard on. So uh, wow. that one's definitely for the pedo bears. The picture says a thousand words, and I can't find one. Yeah. So, uh, But the Cheryl stuff is actually pretty nice, but it, the article was just talking about how kind of crazy some fans are to put this uh, stuff on their car. Well, the Cheryl so. one's pretty bad, too, because the picture of her, like, leaning over suggestively and, like, a shot of her boobs, and there's, like, this big old bullet right underneath her yeah. boobs, and it says, rise up. Yeah, but you know that... She's kind of, like, crouched doggy style over the uh, yeah. bullet. Well, the, well someone's made a Scion look good. The, oh. Well, it's not a Scion. It's actually a Suzuki, but it looks like that Scion. Really? That box. Yeah, it's a, if you look at the pictures, they, they show one with the girl. It's actually a Suzuki, but, um, yeah, this... The only thing I have with this is that, you know, Cheryl is of age, and she has, for the most part, you can tell she has clothes on. The Ronka one, whoa. Keep that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and this one fits in perfectly, and I'm not really going to go over the news story too much, but I encourage everybody to, uh, you know, once again go to the, the uh, news listener submitted news articles to read the full story. But this is uh, courtesy of one of our posters, Oh My God, I Am On Fire. Oh, God. And... and <laughs> This is something, it actually made Yahoo News, so this is uh, actually a valid article. Um, and I will just read the, <laughs> I, will read, I will read the title, Japanese Man position, Petitions to Marry Comic Book Character. Uh, I guess basically there's just some weirdo in Japan that wants to marry, um, he, he wants to propose to different women in mangas, and he got a thousand signatures on the internet that would allow him i guess to petition that he's able to do this and like i said i'm really not going to go too much into this because i think it's better for you just to read it yourself and, and take it as it is but uh once again the country of japan and its fans never cease to amaze us when you thought they surprised you before they, they break uh, the they break through the glass ceiling yeah, they surprise you again, but um, and I don't even want to hear about Emma, so don't even bring it up. Oh, you, you, you've received oh, no, I'm enough good. on that. Hey, hey, I'm good. Hey, you think you got it bad with Emma? Hello. Hey, why do you think I'm known? It's not for being a wing fan. But okay. But uh, on that, that concludes my news, and like I 
said earlier, um, I apologize for anybody that seems like maybe they got slighted, but because of the length of this episode, we really had to cut the news back, and uh, any things that you know, we can fit in later on, we'll definitely get it, and I encourage everybody to continue with their, their articles. I mean, you guys are doing a pretty good job, and I, I thank you, but um, any, uh, anything before we begin this episode, guys? No. Chris, anything? All right. Well, if you guys... Uh, well, ball rolling. I was, all I can say is that bit about positioning the Mary fictional characters, that makes me more depressed than I have ever been in my entire life. The all fact right. that he got... The fact that he got a thousand signatures within a week kind of yeah. scares me even yeah. more. But, uh, yeah. I'm going to go jump in front of a bus. Later. Yeah. <laughs> but um, we will be back in a little bit to get into our first topic. You're listening to Gundam at MAHQ. Yeah, and who are you? Graham Aker, a man who is obsessed with everything you are. Next on level nine, Metroid-style maps like we use in Symphony of the Night, even in Circle and Moon, and even the few and all these other Castlevanias. You have a map that's put upon a grid. So when you go exploring this map, you fill in parts of the grid with Harmony of Dissonance. It didn't have that. You went to a room. It filled in the whole fucking room. Not really. It, it did not fill in the whole room. It oh, just yeah. It did. yeah. I know what you mean. Okay. <laughs> so if you just walked into a door, it filled the whole the room. Door, it filled up the whole so room. You, so letting you think right. you explored the Everything. whole room. Right. You didn't. <laughs> you walked in there. You see, if, if you walked in a room, they might have been a wall there. Oh, hey, I can't man. explore there. Oh, no, let me leave. All I know is and I got everything. And you're going back to look back, you're like, well, I filled in the whole room, so Dude. I must explore. Bullshit. That is the cardinal sin. That's what pissed me off about it the most. And that's you why became, I became fuck that game. You became a bit too dependent. <laughs> Whatever. Because, look, I got everything. I got the good ending, and it was awesome. Everybody got out there alive. A good Juiced ending of a friend. Castlevania that mu- not many people give no a game. shit about. Ah, well, hey. That's <laughs> fine. No, you don't give a no shit game. about. Nope. That game was received hella well. well whatever. You so, talk to a lot of people that's played all the Castlevanias like us, Harmony Red Destinus is not very high on the list. It was a good game. That's the point. Harmony of Destinus. That, that it schooled you. That Harmony it served, of that it served is, you uh, like Voltron on Robot Chicken is not my fault. All right, look, I've done what you asked. That's it. I've had enough of this game. I haven't. You said you'd let us go. I changed my mind. That can't be. If she did, she would have gotten us out of there. What really happened back then? Who killed her? Who killed my mother? God damn it! Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Gundam MAHQ. I'm this episode's special guest, Amaro NT1, and just wanted to let you know the light born at the end of the world is now flying on the wind because we're here with the reviews for the final five episodes of Code Geass R2. And and I'm going to start you off here with Turn 21, the Ragnarok Junction. This episode opens, Suzaku's waking up to find Anya, who apparently wants to doodle on his face with a marker. Of course, he's confused, and even more so when he knows his C2 nearby, at which point Anya says, Oh, by the way, I'm Marianne, you know, Lelouch's mother. So then, 
we, we jump back to the Ikaruga where Kaguya and Shinku, who have been out of the loop for a little while, get expl- are, are filled in on what happened with Zero and how he betrayed them. And of course, the Black Knight's appearing to launch, Kalen wants her answers, but then we get back to the meat of the drama where previously Lelouch trapped himself and Emperor Charles in the Sword of Akasha in Sea's world. So they wouldn't be able to, they'd be sealed off from the rest of the world. And now that they have all the time in the world, Lush demands to know what happened to his mother. Charles, of course, notes the irony that his son's always lied up until now, but now he wants the truth. And Lelouch says that it's the matter that everyone lies to fit in societies. Everyone wears their mask, even the one his father wears as the emperor. Charles, of course, disagrees and says that, the, that people lying is what's creating conflict and strife in the world. Of course, Lelouch thinks it's just, you know, idealism, but Charles insists otherwise and says that that's the purpose of the Ragnarok Junction. Outside, at the gateway, C2 basically fills Suzaku in on everything, letting him know the world of C is basically a collection of mankind's unconsciousness, a joining of heart and soul and memories, and it's the sort of thing that people might call God in some way. He asks if it's what happened when they met at Narita, but she explains that that's just the joining of their individual minds. Anya Marianne has been trying to open the door all this time, but she gives up, and eventually she just has C2 do it. But she sends her spirit through the gate and leaves Anya's body behind. Up in the sky, Bismarck is still fighting the forces Lelouch's kiosk, and he notices the Albion and the Black Knights. Inside the sword, Lelouch gets a rather big surprise when his mother enters. She explains that she's re- she is real, but the only way she can take her true form is inside the world to see. Charles explains everything that happened and that led up to this point. Fifty years ago, when he and V2 were children, they saw their mother get murdered as a result of the battle for the Britannian throne. At that point, they promised each other to create a world free of lies and to try to try to improve everything for the sake of mankind. Along the way, they met Marianne and her friend C2, and who also had the same sort of idea, and so the four of them began working together towards the ultimate goal of making the world a better place. Unfortunately, eight years ago, V2 got let his jealousy get the better of him, feeling that something had changed in his brother ever since he met Marianne. And so, after he arranged a meeting for her at the Ares Imperial Villa, and had everyone cleared out, and after they got together, he pulled out a machine gun and killed her, which is, of course, how Marianne died, as we finally learn. As she was dying, she noticed Anya, who was nearby, who was a child who was sent to learn etiquette from the Imperial family. At that point, Marianne used her Gias to send her mind into Anya's body, so she could stay alive. Then they made up the whole story of the terrorist attack, and uh, C2 and Suzaku were still stuck outside the gate, and C2 basically tells Suzaku that they're a lot alike, because they both basically just want to die for what they've done and what they've been through. Suzaku asks her if she can take him into C's world so they can do something about what's happening. Back in the Sword of Akasha, Charles explains to Lelouch that he sent Nanali and himself to Japan to keep him out of V2's grasp, and that he used his own Gias to rewrite Anya and Nanali's memories. At which point Lelouch realizes that Nanali isn't blind or crippled because, because of injuries, she's crippled and blind because her father's Gias. He explains that he did it because he didn't want anyone to target her as a witness to the assassination. And at this point, Lelouch realizes everything that's been done has just been an attempt to lure C2 out. At this point, she and Suzaku enter the game, and Charles tells them there's no reason for them to be there. He uses his code to reactivate C2s, which causes all the Gios runes all around the world to start activating. Suzaku starts questioning Lelouch about his motives, and of course, Lelouch dismisses this as a dumb question saying that he fought for Nanali, which Suzaku dismisses as an excuse. Lelouch responds that he was fighting for everything he wanted to protect. When Charles tries to go over to C2 to start the Ragnarok Junction, Lelouch blocks his path. He explains that people lie because there's something they want, and that a world that exists with nothing but memories won't have any progress. Marianne asks if Lelouch is going to deny her too, and he answers by asking what her motives are and if they're the same as Charles. She explains that by being reunited, 
by destroying what they call God and forming a new unconsciousness, they can be reunited with everyone who's died, including Euphemia. Luz says that they're just trying to enforce their ideal onto the world, which is no different from evil. And that regardless of their intentions, the, tr the fact of the matter is his parents abandoned him for their own selfish reasons. When they first put on the plan, he explains, it didn't matter whether their kids were alive or dead. And he accuses his parents of basically just wanting to stay in the past without considering anything about the future. Charles answers that he wanted to create Nanali's ideal peaceful world, and Lelouch counters by saying that the world that they're trying to create is only gentle to the two of them, and that it's nothing like what Nanali wanted. But since Ragnarok's already begun, it seems like a moot point. And of course, Lelouch says... Nothing is pointless because he's Zero, the man who makes miracles. At which point he removes his gas-blocking contact and looks up towards the collective unconsciousness, which is manifested as Jupiter. Charles thinks he's going to try to use his gas on the unconsciousness, which is, of course, a foolish move. <clears throat> but Lelouch points out two facts that prove he can do it, because the world of C is the world of willpower, and as Charles has always said, people are not created equal. So Lelouch looks up at the form of Jupiter and calls out to the gods not to stop time and to keep giving humanity their future. At this point, his geos evolves into his other eye, and the thought elevator starts collapsing. Charles and Marianne start dissolving into light. Much to their surprise, C2 isn't, which Marianne is very confused because she was allied with them up to this point, and she's not being sucked up as well. And C2 explains that a long time ago she realized the whole plan was selfish, and she stopped going along with it. When his parents still resist, Lelouch asks if they ever realized the true meaning of Nunnally's smile. Ooh. And she realized... They didn't get it, but the truth was that she realized there were certain things she couldn't do because of her infirmity, and her smile was her own subtle way of thanking the people who were helping her and looking out for her. Lelouch explains to them there's only one truth, and the truth is that they were abandoned. Charles tries to strangle his disobedient son, <laughs> saying, saying that all that's going to await him now when he leaves is Schneisel's world. And Lelouch says that even then he would deny his father's world, and with a wave of his hand and an angry yell, he banishes his parents to the world of C, completely destroying them. As things start calming down, C2 points out to Suzaku and Lelouch that they've chosen the path to the future rather than the past, and asks them what they're planning on doing now. Suzaku, of course, brings up the fact that Lelouch killed Euphemia, and just as things start getting tense, we have a one-month time skip. Things are being reconstructed in the Tokyo settlement, but no one has seen the Emperor for a whole month. In the Imperial capital of Pendragon, there's everyone's gathered in the throne room, including Odysseus, Guinevere, and Carlene, because they've heard the Emperor's going to make a special announcement. Everyone is, of course, rather surprised when, all of a sudden, out walks Lelouch wearing his Ashford uniform. He sits down at the throne, gets casual, and informs them that he is the 99th Emperor of the Britannian Empire, Lelouch v. Britannia. At first, Odysseus is happy to see his little brother alive, but, he, but then he starts saying, you know, you gotta stop ending this, you gotta end this prank before Father comes in, he's gonna be really upset. And Lelouch very casually responds that, don't worry about that, I killed Dad. At this point, yeah, the, they start calling the guards, everyone's mad, but before anyone can do anything, Suzaku leaps out of the rafters and takes out the guards. And Lelouch, with a smile on his face, introduces the world to his best friend and his staunchest ally, Knight the Zeroth, Suzaku Kururugi. C2 watches from the shadows as Lelouch uses his geos to force everyone present to acknowledge him as the Britannian Emperor. And with that, the episode comes to a close. That was a whopping episode. There was a lot of stuff that happened in that one. Yeah. What were you mm. guys' take on it? Well, like you said, just a lot of stuff going on. So, I mean... Um, <laughs> You get all your answers pretty much, or you get the answers to a lot of the questions that you've had, and you know we finally get the whole thing with um, um, uh, Charles and Marianne, and that's taken care of quite nicely. So we kind of get close that kind of arc of the uh, arc of the show, but you know nothing I didn't think wasn't going to happen, especially at the end when he made himself into emperor. 
So it, it is a huge story arc that comes to an end. You're right, and um, you get a ton of answers, questions answered. And uh, although I, I'm a, I was quite surprised at the resolution, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the Lelouch would take it to the degree that he did, and you know, in a lot of ways, I believe I, I, I agreed with them. They did abandon, they did abandon <coughs> the children, you know, off for some lofty goal, and mm-hmm. you know, when it wasn't assured that they would be able to even pull it off. And um, they kind of just threw their children to the wayside, although in their in their minds it was going to be some kind of ideal thing. In the end, I just I couldn't help but agree with Lelouch in that in that situation. Basically, yeah, of course, as I'm sure everyone listening knows, this this episode has been compared to a certain event from a certain robot show from 1996. But we're not going <laughs> into that. Escaflone. Yes, exactly. It's been compared to Escaflone, but we're not going Brave into that. Command, here. Brave Command and Dagwon. Oh man, that yes, has to be yes. It. You sh- yes, Martian it's successor made- Nadesco. It's been compared to Dagwon, aka Yusha Wing. But anyway, <laughs> now of course this episode, a lot of weird mystic stuff is going on. But you know, it's the it's Seas World, it's the end of the world, and all that. So you kind of expect that. It's never really explained what Charles was going to do. We just get the vague idea that he was going to use V two and C 2s codes to force this collective unconsciousness of mankind, which apparently has great spiritual power, into changing the world, and making things peaceful and happy so no one would have to lie. But, of course, Lelouch's problem with that was that it would completely destroy progress. And, yes, people would be completely honest, but nothing would happen. And, yeah, I mean, as has been said, there's definitely the undercurrent of his parents thought that they were doing this for the kids, but, come on, they, they made this plan years ago when they first met, they didn't have kids. They didn't plan to have kids, but then they did, and they sort of tried to hastily rewrite it to include Lelouch and Nunnally, but in the end, they were just an afterthought. It was basically just all about Charles and Mar- Marianne. It was completely selfish, like he said, and they thought that they were doing something good for the kids, but they really didn't realize the truth. They, they just thought it was they thought it was a good thing, but they were sadly mistaken, and for that, they turned into sparkles. Sparkles which, Sparkles, which I understand from an informed source, are currently orbiting the head of Alexander Louis Armstrong. <laughs> well, there's definitely uh, you know, a lot of confusing stuff going on, and there are a lot of questions that are answered, but there's still some that are left um, unanswered. And one of the things that um, I'm kind of going back and thinking about now is the fact that uh, Charles, who has you know, been the main antagonist up to this point, he's taken out when there's still four episodes left after the series, so... Amra, I was curious, what do you think about, uh, you know, the opinion some people have stated that, you know, the show really ended at episode 21 in terms of its main story. What do you think about that? Mm, It's a little hard to classify because basically, you know, Code Geass has two primary components. It's got the Rebellion and the Geass storyline. This is effectively the end of the Geass storyline right there. And I'm pretty sure that's the way they intended it to happen all along because, you know, ever since the first season we've been getting comments like, Clamp said that they were told when designing Schneisel to make a final boss character, that sort of thing. <laughs> but when you get right down to it, it probably had to go this way because the Geass is important primarily to those who have it. It doesn't really affect the outside world, but the Rebellion does. And so that's what's the key, that's the key battle in this series, is the actual Rebellion and the War of Britannia. Charles was focusing on the Geass and Ragnarok, so he wasn't the primary antagonist anymore. Of course, some of the early supposed spoilers had this gigantic battle where the Geass sites were erupting all over the world, and Lelouch and C2 go into the sort of Akasha to confront Charles one last time. It sounded pretty cool, but who knows? 
Well, I'm just kind of glad they did it because, I mean, it, I think you kind of got to the point with the, the Gia storyline that it kind of hit a, you know, there really wasn't much more you could do. I mean, it's a fantastic storyline, but, I mean, if they would have kept developing it within the last, like, four episodes even further, it would have just kind of got ridiculous and kind of silly to the end. You don't, you don't think the stories could have coalesced better at the end? I mean, no. I mean uh, all these threads coming really. together into one final episode. I, I, I think I think they've been grander. There were, there more, were two. Honestly. There were two separate stories. They they were. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, they, Pre- the, one. The Gias was once the Gias and the Rebellion were two separate stories that tied yeah. together with the main character and only the main character. Yeah, he was the only linchpin. I mean, well, the, except possibly for Jeremiah. Yeah, but, but yeah, I mean, without without him having the Gias, they wouldn't have started the the Rebellion. But the Rebellion got to a point now where the Gias wasn't really that part that big part of it anymore um so i guess that puts us to 22 turn 22 emperor lelouch and ap- <laughs> aptly titled and in this episode lelouch's coup hits the ground running with the destruction of the former emperor's tomb as well as the abolishing of nobility and the releasing of all the numbers and disbanded corporate groups surviving members of his family have been reduced to common roles in society with odysseus as a regular soldier and carlene and guinevere as maids the black knights watching the developments on the news for the ikaruga have mixed opinions of how genuine lelouch's actions truly are kaguya adds that despite how they as individuals feel about their former leader the majority of the ufn appear to support the new emperor of Britannia. Back at Pendragon, Lelouch is enslaving more soldiers with his gears, while Lloyd and Cecile contemplate their new roles in the new Britannia, remarking that before they knew it, they had become parts for Lelouch and Suzaku's plans. Millie and rivals secretly harbor Nina at Ashford, in hiding from all the nations that have targeted her for creating Flea. In a quiet moment at Pendragon Garden, Lelouch talks about his plans to Suzaku and Cece, saying that when his plans reach fruition, the world will forget about Yuffie being the Massacre Princess. His ultimate goal is to become the uncontested ruler of the planet, but in order to achieve world domination, he will have to beat Snigel at his own game first. They are soon alerted that the former Knights of the Round are approaching the capital, being led by Bismarck and showing their devotion to the late Charles de Britannia by opposing the new regime. Launching in the new Lancelot Albion, Suzaku wastes no time taking out his former comrades Dorothy and later Monica as they make the mistake of taking him on. He faces off and debates loyalty to Britannia with Gino, but easily cripples Weinberg's Tristan and kicks it out of harm's way. Suzaku proceeds on to the big boss himself, Bismarck, as he reveals his gears after forcing his stitch eye open. With his gift of seeing the immediate future, he is able to predict his enemy movements, leaving Suzaku no avenue to attack him successfully. It is only when Kururugi makes use of his live-on command by Lelouch's gears, he is able to move so unpredictably that even Bismarck's gears can't keep up with his assault. The Galahad is cut in twain by the Lancelot Albion and explodes, taking Bismarck with it. As Toto reels from seeing Bismarck defeated and Gino comes to grips about his motivations to fight, Lelouch broadcasts that he is the undisputed ruler of Britannia and reveals his desire to join the UFN, declaring that the negotiations be held at good old Ashford Academy. Upon watching developments from his exile in Cambodia, Snizel relays to Cornelia that they have to step up their prep for Democles. En route to Japan, Cece questions Lulu about his lax security, but since he made the request to join the UFN, he can't go into it armed to the teeth. Millie is on the scene reporting live as Lelouch lands, and Rivals, and Rivals makes a scene trying to get his attentions behind the barricade, but is only ignored and then almost arrested by the Black Knights. As a, dis- as a disguised Nina quickly sways the security guard's plans to detain Cardmon, Lelouch is greeted by Callan when he steps off the aircraft. 
Lelouch, pretending to, that he doesn't know her, asks to take a detour to the conference room due to his nervousness. Observing Lelouch's entry into Ashford from the Ikaruga, the Black Knights continue to debate Lelouch's angle. Tamaki is the only one that defends his former commander, while most of the others find Lelouch's intentions suspect, taking every precaution against his gears. Inside Ashford, Callan has a heart-to-heart with Lelouch, asking what his true intentions are, what he thinks of her, and more importantly, why he wanted her to live on. He refuses to answer even after Kozuki kisses him. Realizing that he won't give an inch, she bids him farewell and redirects him to the gym where the conference will be held. Talks begin with Kaguya leading the hearing, and Lelouch asks her to recognize Britannia's admission to the UFN. However, she informs him that two-thirds of the member nations have to approve Britannia, and suddenly Lelouch finds his podium enclosed in walls that rise from the floor. Surrounded by monitors, Lelouch is grilled by Kaguya and his former compatriots, the Black Knights, pressing him for his true objective. They also point out that if Britannia is accepted, the majority of the UFN electoral vote will suddenly be in his country's hands, practically handing the reins of the world to him. Lee suggests that he prevents his potential monopoly on the UFN by breaking up Britannia. Lelouch goes on to ask his main instigator, Kaguya, what qualities are needed to govern the world, and she replies, pride and honor. Although he commends her idealism, his answer is more direct, stating that he has the preparedness to destroy. Out of the blue, the Lancelot Albion smashes into the gym and holds the delegates at gunpoint while Lelouch's forces launch a surprise attack upon Japan. With this act of aggression, Lee comments that Lelouch has just made himself the public enemy number one of the world, and as Callan launches, he informs her that if they fight, they risk the lives of the representatives, of which Tianzi is involved. Although the conference is in shambles, Lelouch asks Kaguya for her decision, and she only cries. Elsewhere, rivals and Nina ride on his bike, attempting to get the hell out of Dodge when they are forced to take a detour thanks to a roadblock by the Black Knights. As Nina is telling him to leave her behind and escape on his own, they dead end into another barricade where they come across the former Pudding Earl, Lloyd. Back on the Royal Aircraft, Lelouch is being informed of the acquirement of Nina when he is hit with the breaking news from Suzaku that the Britannian capital of Pendragon has been wiped out by a flare warhead. Lelouch watches the image of a massive fortress hovering high above the crater and realizes that it must be Democles. Receiving a call from Snizel, Lelouch asks him if he believes his big brother would make the better ruler. Snizel reveals that there is someone better suited than either of them, and the camera reveals Nunnally, alive and well. Lelouch is floored when she says that she is now Suzaku and his adversary. What were you guys' thoughts about this app? Oh, cliffhanger. Cliffhanger episode as normal. Yes, sir. For this series, at least. Um, Worth his money. Yeah. I mean, I like Dark Lelouch. I like the fact that, you know, he's really uh, gone into the the whole persona of being the emperor. And and it also shows to me that even though the Gius is a fantastic power and you can pretty much gain everything you want with it, you truly are alone with it. And, um, you know, he pretty much understands that. And he's actually, you know, going that route right now. And, and in the aspect of trying to unify the, the world, he's having to become the bad person. And once again, it shows how the people that he helped build up earlier, like the U, what is it, the UFN, um, you know, even though based on a lot of hearsay and a lot of a spin from Schneisel and other people, that instead of really just kind of sitting down with this guy and seeing what's going on first, that they just uh, pretty much judge, jury, and executioned him. So, um, you know, it's it's showing, you know, like uh, like we stated earlier, this is showing the beginning of the final end of the other story, the rebellion. And it shows pretty much, you know, kind of a real life historical aspect of how these things, these rebellions start off pretty nicely, but then there's different thoughts and different um, 
ideals within the people leading it, and you know they're trying to uh, get to the same aspect, but in a in a different route, and you know with different power. But good episode though. But in uh, in the shocker of Nunnally being alive, <coughs> you know. So, but that's that's my two cents. It's the episode that proves you right, dude. You were right all along. She was live, man. I, I, like there was anything to prove. Like it, like it wasn't perfectly telegraphed that she wasn't going to be alive. Hey, man, we usually when yeah, people are dead in Gaius, hey, they're well, dead in Gaius, man. Except no, for this no, season. No, no. <laughs> no, come on. Not in this season, on. but it was obvious. Come on. It was totally I, obvious yeah. that she was not going to hey, be dead. Yeah. Well, it was obvious, but come on. Some people didn't want to see it because, I mean, do you ever see... There's there's a really nice essay that was written by Kaioshin Sama that basically pointed out all the elements in the episode where she supposedly died that suggested she didn't, and people just completely missed those. It's stuff like the set the second transport plane, the discrepancy between Rolo and Sayaka's missions. It was all of there. They set it up, just people didn't want to see it. Yeah, that and is so true. She, but people will see what they want to see. Exactly. Yeah, I know. They wanted to assume that it was just a cheap cop out. When, in fact, they had planned it all along. Yeah, because that's the way a lot of these shows go, you know, to, to ramp up emotion and ramp up, you know, the, the character wanting to, you know, achieve his goal even more. you got to take away somebody s- special to him, which it did kind of work. But then, you know, like you said, she's back. and She's the one character well, I didn't want to see die. It's just the one character I thought should have died. That's me, although I was glad to and see her alive. And who are you, God, to dictate time. who dies or hey, doesn't not, die I, in these I, shows? Hey, 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 I'm just, I'm just saying. <laughs> when, when he she just get, wanted to see his man Revolves ascend to the throne. That's, that's right, exactly. man. At the end, he's the, he's the game changer, Well, man. he could have been the, the court changer. jester. <laughs> no, no Revolves only did one thing in this episode, and that was say, Don't tase, tase me, bro! Don't tase me! <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. Uh, yeah. More seriously, there is so- there is something about Nunnally's death and all that I'll, I want to comment on, but I'll save that for the next episode because that's where we re- well maybe later on we really need to get into that later. But okay, no problem. Just randomly, like I said before in the pre-show, you know, rule number one of fiction: if mm-hmm. you don't see the corpse as the life leaves them, yeah. they're still alive. Yeah, it's never it, assume they're dead. It's one of the commandments of mecha anime: unless you see the bright all light fiction. with the body in the cockpit, the person is still alive. And, and uh, the, blind, the blinding light with, like, the character done in a black and white sketch. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, of course, but, the death montage, the flashbacks. But uh, a couple of things. Um, one thing I don't know if I didn't like, but I really did enjoy, is seeing Lelouch out in the open and just manipulating things on a global level. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And in just two minutes, he just completely changes the world more than anyone could have imagined by mm-hmm. pretty much dismantling the nobility and freeing all of the areas and all of that, but unfortunately it's not enough since Schneisel is starting his little rebellion. And, um, of course, we see more uh, Knights of the Round get killed, and, you know, now that almost all of them are dead, you kind of see that they were pretty useless characters. Yeah, because they were kind they were, of background. There were too yeah. many of them, and none of them really got that much of a background to them. Yeah. But you, know what, you know what could have been worse is they could end up Monsters of the Week. If the show had, you know, kind of got more time to really stretch its wings in season two, you know, they could end up Monsters of the Week. So, I, Well, they kind of did. I mean, yeah, they were uh, kinda. Bradley, Bradley got killed, like, in two episodes, like a punk. Yeah. Uh, this episode, well, he was you a have, punk. Yeah, he was a punk. Uh, this chick, Dorothea, has, like, two lines of dialogue and then dies instantly. And then you have think- Monica, who barely had any dialogue. She dies, too. Yeah. I'm yeah. trying to decide who's worse because Dorotea only appeared on the official website like a week or two before this episode aired. So, mm-hmm. 
we didn't even know who her voice actress was until basically the day of the broadcast, and then it turned out it's just someone who's already been in the cast anyway. Oh, yeah. And then there, which, then there's then there's Monica, which this is the one that they set her up from like the beginning of the season. We had pictures, they had little teasers about her being this. You know, she looks pretty and innocent, but she can be a scary opponent. And then what happens? She spends two episodes with her jaw on the floor as Charles messes around with the Gios, and then Suzaku kills her like a punk. <laughs> with the quickness. Yeah. Yeah, all she even gets, she doesn't even have time to say anything except part of his name before he blasts her. And we, they didn't even get custom nightmares, for heaven's sake. That does suck. As far, as far as we know, they were in Sutherland's or Gloucester's, something like that. Damn, yeah, that's, that's what they were using, because I, I took... Uh screen caps and looked in close and they're using Sutherland's and I forget which but one of them's using a Sutherland and one's using a Gloucester so they're, they're that's using just, crap yeah. that's just sad you figured they would all be in seventh generation um, suits but well, I guess not maybe they're under well, repair the, one of the novels R2 or Knights of the Round I forget which says that each of the rounds has their own little development team like Lloyd's team mm-hmm. to make their own personal nightmare I don't know if that's official but apparently not because those two got punked Maybe uh, they were in the shop, like uh, yeah, that's what I said. Uh, like Miguel Iman's uh, custom orange gin. Yeah, yeah. Except this time, I, I don't think we're going to be getting Code Geass astray. So they're SOL. You and never know. There's just one thing we got to mention here that I'm surprised no one's mentioned yet. Nice hat. Oh, with uh, yeah, I, that was the emperor hat. Hey man, when you're emperor, you can wear what you want. What Start you new trends. Right. Which finally explains the third opening sequence. You wanted to know about the wings in the eye? There they are, right on his head. <laughs> yeah, but Chris, it's, anything it's, else? Um, no, just the fact that you know you got some some deviousness of the politics, and uh, you know, of course, Schneisel manipulating everyone as he always does, because we know he's he's told uh, not only uh, his little conveniently crafted half troops to make her believe that. Lelouch and Suzaku are evil. And it's and I guess my other thing is, is like Chris just said, the whole thing about with Lelouch uh, abolishing the, the aristocracy and releasing the areas, and then the way that the U, UFN doesn't, they don't trust him, and it's like he's doing the things that you were saying that was so wrong about Britannia, but then you won't even listen to him. No, the UFN wasn't mistrusting him. The Black Knights were mistrusting yeah. him. The UFN was in the, was in the tank already. Yeah, but they, I mean, they were, rep- they were representing the UFN, though. That was the problem well, that I what had. What really bugged me about all this is that this episode and the Betrayal episode really just go to show that the Black Knights are very selfish in the end. Yeah. They don't really, they don't give a damn about the other area colonies. If Japan no. is safe, that's, that's okay to them. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. So. And, and, of course, at this point, Lelouch busts in and starts instilling democracy up on everyone. Yeah. <laughs> well, Lelouch took a, he he he, he um, predicted what they were going to do, and he took full advantage of that, which I only give him more credit for. But he wouldn't be Lelouch the Fee Britannia if he wasn't. Damn right. That's well, if he was instilling <laughs> democracy, wouldn't he be Lelouch W. Britannia? W. <laughs> but, uh, hey, that's, that's a whole other can of worms. Let's not go there. But uh, anything else on this one so we can go to 23? No. He came okay. there for talkification. Okay. <laughs> Turn 23, Schneisel's Mask. We begin with the destruction of Pendragon, and we hear from a wounded Sayoko that appears before Jeremiah, and she wants to see Lelouch, like, immediately. Of course, Lelouch is still under the shock that Nunnally's still alive, and then she meets up with Sayoko, and Sayoko tells it's because of Schneisel. And while Lelouch is looking at Nunnally on the screen there, she's saying that Lelouch and Suzaku have been lying to her the whole time, and, you know, of course, she now knows the truth because, you know, Nisana Schneisel told her the truth there. 
And uh, she, not only then asked him if he was doing this whole zero thing for her sake, and he says no, that, you know, that's kind of arrogant of her to think that uh, he would do all that for her. Of course, he cuts off the transmission, and, you know, Schneisel's commenting, he thought Lelouch would have surrendered because of the showing the power of Flea. Naive Nunnally thinks that, you know, she asks uh, Schneisel if the citizens of Penedragon are safe, and he said that they were evacuated before detonation. And then, you know, of course, Schneisel says he wouldn't use it on other people. So, and then he gives her the detonation switch so she can shoulder the burden. Way to go there, guy. Then we're back on the uh, Avalon, and Suzaku's grabbing Lelouch by the collar and saying, you know, you got to snap out of this. we got to continue with Zero Requiem, even though uh, Nunnally's alive. And we get a little explanation from Cecile saying that the Flea that was used has about ten times the power of the one in Tokyo. Of course, we see uh, my girl, Cornelia, then speaking with uh, Schneisel privately. And she, you know, he admits that he lied to Nunnally about Penadragon and saying that the, the death of those folks that were in there is a better fate than being Lelouch's slaves. Then he starts to show his little ultimate plan with Damocles and showing that it's going to go to about 300 kilometers above the surface and fire Flea bombs at every country engaged in war. Cornelia objects to that, saying you can't do this, you know, you can't subjugate the world through fear. Of course, he's saying all oh, peace is an illusion, just like every final boss would say. And he later states that 100 to 200 million people dying, if that's the price of getting uh, eternal peace, then he's willing to pay for it. Cornelia objects. She pulls out her sword, goes after Schneisel, then he breaks out a machine gun turret and shoots her in the back. You know, the title of uh, brother killer or sister killer goes to now Schneisel instead of, uh, <laughs> of Luch. Uh, finally, we get more explanation of with Sayako telling Jeremiah that you know Schneisel used a diversionary craft while evacuating Nunnally from Tokyo, and then we see C2 saying that to Lelouch that he did a pretty good job of putting on a mask with Nunnally, and you know she's told him that he's done enough, and really he he can't stop anything else that's going on from now. And then probably the worst part of this episode, we get a picture of the Lancelot is now painted pink, so uh, really bad part of the. <laughs> out of this episode. Then we find out something later on that we already kind of knew that Ogie knocked up Valletta. Back on the Ikaruga, we see that Lee's talking about how Britannia's internal structure has been paralyzed since the destruction of Penadragon. And Toto says that, you know, the Britannian forces are basically engaged in battles across the world. And Lee's saying that, you know, teaming up with Schneisel is going to even out their forces. And even though uh, he doesn't approve of Damocles or the Flea, you know, he thinks that this is a, a good a good thing to do. Just at that point, Schneisel tells his forces that Lelouch must be defeated because he's spreading evil across the world. Then on the old red phone, Lelouch calls Schneisel, and, you know, Schneisel threatens to use Flea again if he doesn't surrender. And then, you know, Lelouch shows that he has all the UFN representatives as hostage. Of course, Lee's going a little crazy because he sees Tianzhen in there, but, you know, he asks him if he's ready to, um, you know, fight for what needs to be done. Lee says he's prepared for the worst, but he doesn't feel that sacrificing you know, uh, innocent peoples, you know, really needed that much. But Schneisel says that his forces are just the Damocles and the Mordred, and uh, then he asks for command of the Black Knights, and, of course, the Black Knights, being the smart guys that they are, give it to him. And then we see that there's a lot of battles going on, a lot of forces, um, you know, engaging Schneisel's forces with the Black Knights or engaging Lelouch's forces. Uh, we see that the Lansian Albion is uh, leading the attack. At one point, the Ikaruga shows up and basically wipes out a large portion of Lelouch's fleet. Then as the Ikaruga went above uh, Mount Fuji, Lelouch has a bomb igniting all the sacrodite in there, causing large firebombs to bombard the Ikaruga. It crashes. 
Schneisel finally tells Nunnally to fire the Flea. She reluctantly pulls the trigger. And then a team of Vincents has some type of special measure that was created by Cecile and them to uh, contain the Flea. They contain it, but now Lelouch is worried about that he's at a disadvantage and he's going to have to rely on some of the other things that Nina's cooking up for him. And we pretty much close with that. Schneisel thinks that Lelouch is going to lose because all he's thinking of is trying to defeat Schneisel. Any thoughts on that, guys? Uh, just uh, one thing real quick. Mm. Uh, the, Vin- the Vincents trying to stop the Flea didn't have any special measures. It was pretty much just run up there and put your swords in it and try to stop it before it goes off. I but thought, they, I thought they had that thing. Didn't they fire? Not, 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 not yet. yet. Oh, okay. Next episode. Okay. It was, it was an excellent episode. I mean, it, it's, you can see everything's ramping up in this, um, in this episode. Um, gosh, um, I just I really don't have much to say. Um, <laughs> Great analysis. Yeah, awesome. But you guys go ahead. I'm Spot sorry. Off. It's a pretty straightforward episode, let's be honest yeah. here. But there are some things that are worth pointing out. Got to give Lelouch some severe props for being able to lie to his sister like that. Yeah. You could tell how hard it was, because while he's doing it, they actually go out of their way to show he's got his hands clasped, and they are just shaking violently. And But he was able to do it. You know, he gets some credit for that. Yeah, he's and got of course, quite the poker face. And, of course, Suzaku's absolutely... Well, it helps, it helps when the person is blind that you're lying to. Yeah, that too. Well, well yeah, but this sort of ties into the whole, you know... Other senses are more sensitive because you'd think she could tell if his voice was breaking or if he was nervous. He's apparently one hell of an actor. Suzaku is absolutely dedicated to this. And, you know, it's sort of interesting to see because he's been sort of blasé and wishy-washy throughout the series. But now he's finally found something that he's absolutely severely dedicated to. To the point where he's the one motivating Lelouch rather than the other way around. Cornelia, of course. Yeah. Poor Cornelia. She was so awesome. And then she just gets cut down. Yeah, well, what's up with this family and um and diso- disownment by um, machine gun? <laughs> well, that's the way it was in the old Britannia. So, oh, man, you go up to hardcore, go up the ranks through killing. I don't know. Ask uh, ask uh, Czar Alexander about that. Oh wait, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. <laughs> and of course, we get yet another great example of Lucius' ultimate weapon: screwing with the environment. Yeah. You'd think by this point, given that they used to work for him that the Black Knights would know yeah. that is his number one thing. You always screw around with the environment and use it to your advantage. Didn't they think he would do that here somehow, some way? Yeah, I, I got to agree because he's been showing the whole way throughout the show, especially when he commanded the Black Knights. You give, you give, you kind of give that impression that you're getting knocked on your feet, you know, getting knocked back, and then he has some type of special thing. You think that Lee or Tamaki or um, you know, Ogi would be like, you know, wait a second, this is getting to be too easy. Usually he has something for them. And well, Tamaki and Ogi are idiots, and, and Lee is the one who, ki- who got built hey, up hey, so hey. much as tactical genius. Yeah, him hey, and Toto. Don't, don't insult BFF, man. <laughs> and, and Toto, too, I mean, he's also, you know, he was a, you know, built up as a tactical genius and fighting Bachania, yeah. yada, yada. And neither of them realized, hey, we're fighting Lelouch. Maybe he's going to use the environment against us. And the, the other thing that i got to say about Lee is, and Toto, they, because, especially with Lee, the, the you know, uh, Tanzi and all of them are, are being held hostage. They just gladly give the command of their troops to Schneisel, a guy that basically, you know, like I said before, he was the son of the person they were fighting against, all the ideals they're fighting against. They have no problem just giving him complete control of their forces knowing 
that he doesn't give a care about what's going on with any of these people. And Apparently, the Black Knights never learned the phrase, better the devil you know. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I could see maybe giving him maybe limited power or something, or just saying, you they know. They just handed over completely. Yeah, they just, it was just like, you know what, you're the man, here you go. You just have a, a flying, um, you know, a flying castle and the Mordred, and, you know, we'll, we'll give you all of our forces, though, no big deal, but. Because a flying castle stuck with WMDs isn't, isn't bad enough. No, no, not at all. And, of course, I'm surprised no one's commented on how, you know, appropriate the name is, Damocles. Well, for those who don't know, it comes from an old Greek legend about a king who thought that, you know, Dionysus had it good. So in order to show him what it was like, Dionysus offered him one day of being a king. And, you know, he had banquets and women and all that. And then he looked up and he noticed there was a sword hanging over his head by a hair. It just sort of sitting there. It could have broken at any second, at which point he decided, I don't want to be a king anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, that's... That's Damocles. So it's the sword hanging over the world's head. Yeah. Another thing um, that I thought was interesting, and I mentioned this in the review, that for a few minutes there, you really have uh, just some some strategy, like a giant chess game, where yeah. Lelouch and Schneisel are just they just keep moving their forces around, but no one's firing, and they're both just trying to each you know outmatch the other. Yeah. Very interesting scene. Yeah, that was and, pretty interesting. And totally ke- in keeping with, you know, the whole tone of this series and with Lelouch's, you know, MO, how he operates. But I just got a couple things real quick. To play devil's advocate about the Black Knights not seeing the volcano coming, for one thing, they're in the sky, so, and Lelouch's plans so far have all been screwing with the ground, like, causing earthquakes, so maybe they thought they couldn't well, be hit by I mean, them. he did... He did stuff in the sky too, like back yeah. in turn six. Well, my, my my big problem is is it's not even the fact of them as what he did. The fact that none of them was you know sat there and said you know what this is getting too easy and like like we stated earlier, Lee and Toto are these tactical guys and you know they have all the fighting experience and they're like wait a second this is getting way too easy. Usually he comes up with something. Yeah, forget the environment. He always has some kind of trick up his sleeve. Yeah. What well, is the yeah, environment or he not. Does, he so does they the should old... have anticipated that. Yeah, he does the rope a actually, actually, afterwards, didn't they actually say, oh, man, why didn't we see that coming? I don't know. I can't remember. I thought they I did. I don't recall. And the other thing, just real quick, based off of a comment from the reviews, I have to say, introducing the new 2018 Nissan Schneisel <laughs> with ABS brakes, passenger side airbags, and WMD launcher. Yeah. And the, the other set... I'm sorry. Couldn't the, resist, sorry. The, the other sad thing about this episode is the fact of with Cornelia being such a great character from the first season, it it was kind of sad to see her kind of close this season, really not doing much. Well, you raise a good point. I mean, a lot of characters got wasted in this season. I mean, I don't what? mean I don't mean is I don't mean dead? figuratively. Is she dead? I don't mean figuratively. She? I'm talking about like the potential wasted. You you see, a lot of characters didn't get developed further, like her. Um, she I'm, became, I'm not even worried about her development. It was just that she played no real part anymore into well, it. I mean, I, mean, I, I still, I I still think way. she had room to grow, and I still think that, um, you know, they build up Lee as like some, some hybrid of um, Lelouch and um, Suzaku. And then, you know, he's as dumb as the rest of the Black Knights <laughs> in this season. It's like, what the hell? I mean, yeah, and- dude, he, he should, if anyone saw that coming, it should have been him and Toto, like you guys exactly. said. Toto went nowhere. And, you know, he's just sitting there just commenting on the battlefield. It's like these guys have so much story left, and it just mm-hmm. sucks that, you know, the, the, the climax of the series doesn't really have much resolution for them at all. And Actually, i, I got to dispute that because I think the thing is a lot of these characters, their stories were done. If, you if you so? want to think of it, 
if you want to think of it in role-playing game terms, it's yeah. like um, Shinku's goal was free China from the Unix. Okay. Once that was completed, he joined your party, and everything else that happened, he was just r- along for the ride. Yeah, but I, I, Cornelia, I, Cornelia's I, primary purpose this season was to avenge Euphemia's death, and siding with Schneisel was the best way to do that. But when she turned on him, she lost all chance of doing that, and... But you and can't then, of course, have such a large cast of characters just along for the ride. Yeah. And therein lies the problem that there's too many well, yeah. characters and yeah. there's not enough for them to do. With Cornelia, you know, the only shiny moment she had in this season before this was, uh, you know, when she showed up at the Gius cult yeah. and was fighting there. But in every time she's appeared this season, as soon as uh, Schneisel's on screen with her, she becomes a totally submissive little, like, yeah. doll. Yeah. And doesn't do anything. I was I mean, just basically a shadow of what she was in season one. Yeah, exactly. so it's one of those things where you either just you either have them do something or you just take them off screen. I mean, and, and just be like, you know, you maybe di- mention them. Oh, you know, yeah. she's leading the four. But you're right. I mean, just having a huge, huge cast of characters, and then in the end, really them, some of them just kind of be in there, just what to appease fans well, or to I'll, you know to sell. Think, think about think about it this way. Actually, you want to consider something really bad is that. The highest up character who sticks around without anything to do in the show is C2. Her story got yeah. completed two episodes ago, but yeah. she's still there because she's the female lead and she's tied to Lelouch. She has no reason to be there, but she's still there. But she's still yeah. doing things, and, and she's yeah. an idiot. Well, everyone was doing stuff, but <laughs> still basically, but it, if you want to talk about people having their storylines end and just sort of being there, she's probably the one who gets it the worst. Yeah, but you got to remember that. But hers makes a little bit more sense because she has that contract with Lelouch. She wants to make sure that he doesn't die, and you know she and you can see that she's actually developed feelings for him, and she wants to, you know, she wants to be with him. That's a, it makes a little bit more sense with her kind of palling around with him than like what Chris said. You know, Cordelia is there, Schneisel comes around, and she's like she's twelve years old again. Yeah, and I'll, at I'll, least C two developed over the course of the season. You know, these other characters like. Toto, Chiba, you know, they were all, they all remained completely static compared to the end of season one. All right, well, Solbro wants to say something here, so let, let, let's, let's be quiet. I was just, just going to say, um, I'll save this for later on when we go into the overall discussion, but um, what are you gonna say honestly, right now? <laughs> no, it's just that this show, out of most of the animes I've seen, deserves an epilogue episode so bad. Oh, yeah. Um, just something to type all the loose ends, just an epilogue story, nothing too complicated, but um, so, I'll get into more of that later. But Well, I guess with that, since we don't stay too much off track here, why don't we get to turn four there, Chris? Or turn 24, I'm sorry. Uh, that was a Freudian slip. <laughs> are you trying to go back to the beginning of the series and review it all over again? He just wants to go back Not, to all the Ashford episodes. Yeah, but... Um, anyway, uh, the penultimate episode of the series, turn 24, Damocles' Skies. So uh, you've got, of course, the Ikaruga, which crashed, and Ogi trying to be a man, saying he's got to make sure everyone gets evacuated. you got more Flea bombs detonating, and Lelouch is telling his guys to just keep on charging in, and not only keeps firing uh, Flea, and Mr. Orange tries to break through with his Sutherland Sieg, but uh, he's blocked by a blaze luminous shield. Cecil tells Lelouch that if the Damocles continues to ascend, they won't be able to attack it anymore because it'll be out of their range. And Lelouch wants Suzaku to break through, but Suzaku says that the energy output of Damocles is higher than that of the Lancelot Albions. And then C2 launches in the disgustingly pink Lancelot frontier. <laughs> Ouch. We got some more 
are fighting. Lloyd appears on the bridge, and Lulu sees that he must have a solution for what's going on. Lee wants to know if Schneisel's intending to kill the hostages, and Schneisel gives him 10 minutes to rescue them. But of course, in typical Schneisel fashion, that 10 minutes only coincides with the amount of time they need to reload Flea. The Avalon gets hit from the rear by Lee's Shenhu, and Suzaku moves to fight him. They start fighting, and Lelouch slices up the Shenhu's flight pack, and he tries to do a killing blow on Lee. Then Toto appears with his damaged Zangetsu and slams into uh, Suzaku. The two of them start trading quips with each other about what it is that they're desiring. Suzaku slashes up the Zangetsu, forcing Toto to eject and get rescued by Chiba Zakatsuki. While that's happening, Lee fires his Baryon cannon at the Avalon and disables its float system so that the Black Knight's forces can start invading the ship. So Lelouch, he's running with Nina, and she basically tells him that he has to input the calculations very fast if he's going to stop the Flea, and he thanks her and says that uh, she's given more than enough help to Euphemia's murderer, and she tells him that she can't forgive Zero, but she wanted to find her own answer for everything. Lelouch gets down to the hangar, and C2 asks him if he hates her for giving him Gius, and he tells her that if it wasn't for... Him having Gius, he wouldn't have even been able to take his first step. Their tender moment is interrupted when uh, Collins smashes into the hangar, and she tries to use um, her radiation wave to kill Lelouch, but C2 knocks her aside with the Lancelot Frontier, and Lelouch escapes with the Shinkiro. So he's flying toward Democles, and Schneisel thinks that uh, Lelouch is just performing a desperate final attack, so he has Flea target Lelouch, and he gets fired. Lelouch starts doing his uh, hyper seed mode typing, and then uh, Suzaku jumps out, grabs a lance, throws it at the Flea bomb, and just as it explodes, it disappears and takes nothing with it, which shocks everybody. Lelouch, he uses the Shinkiro's absolute protection territory, and he keeps a hole open long enough in the blaze luminous so that he and Suzaku and a couple of other guys can get through and not only accidentally drops the trigger key, and she falls out of her wheelchair desperately look for it. And Schneisel, he comments that Lelouch has performed pretty well to force him to use his last strategy, which is to trap Lelouch inside Damocles and destroy it with Flea. While Lelouch and Suzaku are speeding through the inside of Damocles, they get attacked by Gino, and Suzaku is holding off Gino. In the process, the Shinkiro gets unceremoniously destroyed, and Lelouch has to run away on foot, but uh, I guess he must have been training his jogging skills because he's running all through Damocles without passing out. <laughs> Schneisel, he changes Flea's target to Damocles, and Lelouch is in the control room, but Schneisel, Cannon, and Deedhart are already taking the elevator away from there to escape, and Schneisel is of the opinion that Damocles and Flea can just be rebuilt, and he says that lots of countries will be happy to build the weapon that killed the world's enemy, Lelouch, and Canon thinks that they should ask for Nunnally's opinion, but then uh, Deedhart, being the dick he is, says that the opinion of the bait doesn't matter, and Canon asks Schneisel if he's going to sacrifice Nunnally too, and Schneisel, of course, says one mere life can't be weighed against world peace, but more of uh, Schneisel revealing his true colors. You've got Colin and C2 still fighting, and poor old Lancelot gets beaten up, forcing uh, C2 to eject and fall down into the ocean. Schneisel gets over to uh, his little escape shuttle, and he gets a call from Lelouch, and the two of them are debating about their views, and Lelouch basically is saying that Charles wanted the past, and Schneisel just wants to preserve the present, but Lelouch wants the future. And Schneisel thinks that he's oh so clever, and he's surprised when he gets tapped on the shoulder, 
and he turns around and sees Lelouch standing there. And Lelouch uses Gius on him and orders him to serve Zero. Just then, Dietheart grabs uh, one of the guards' guns and tries to kill Lelouch, but then Schneisel shoots him. And as he's laying on the floor dying, Dietheart asks to be killed by Gius, but Lelouch tells him he's not even worth it. And then Dietheart just dies. So Lelouch orders Schneisel to deactivate the self-destruct, and Schneisel tells him that Nunnally still has the Flea trigger. Outside, you've got Suzaku fighting Gino, and he slices the Tristan Divider in half, but Gino manages to destroy the Blaze Luminous generator with his Slash Harkin and lets Colin inside the area before he crashes onto the side of Damocles. You got Lelouch enters that uh, sort of garden room where Nunnally is, and he tells her that he wants the Flea trigger because it's too dangerous for her to have. And of course, because this is the second to last episode, it has to end with a cliffhanger, and that is Lelouch being shocked when Nunnally opens her eyes and asks him if he's going to use Gius on her, too. So, comments, gentlemen. Not another, not another cliffhanger. That's, this is actually my favorite cliffhanger in the series, mm-hmm. in the whole series. I, 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 could, I, could, I have watched that like ten times. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I'm a, I was a bit obsessed with this one, but um, I, loved, I love this episode because so, so many characters get the, the old F.U., in this episode, <laughs> hey, they they set they set up the reveal with Nunnally. If you notice that, they actually yeah, yeah, they, they did, they the, did. And the, it's bit like, where, it, the bit where she's crawling around on the ground and then all of a sudden she just stops and turns her head towards the, the flea trigger, is if she sees it. And and that leads me to ask a question later on in a, uh, in, a, in a future segment, but um. Sure. What future segment? Yeah. We're not going to be doing Gius again in a long time, so ask. You. No, I'm talking about the future, a future segment in this episode. The question and answer segment. <laughs> the Q and A segment. Yeah, just. But, yeah. All right. Anyway, um, but yeah, it, the, the way Deedhart went out, the it was abs- appropriate. Oh, very. And uh, also the way um Schneisel, you know, wasn't killed. He was um he was subject to be um Lelouch's slave, which is I think even worse. Mm. <laughs> There's actually a couple he of just, things here, just real quick. Mm-hmm. In their little discussion, Lelouch points out that Schneisel would have made a really great king in peacetime, actually. So maybe that's what he was thinking is, you know, he's not a bad he's a, person. He's just, he's trying to be a villain. He's a fair yeah. man. He's all business, too. And something interesting that I noticed just now is, um, well, all right. Yeah, for those who don't know, this episode, is, we're recording this on November 2nd, and the day before, we had the first episode of R2 aired on Cartoon Network. And I just noticed something while we were going through this one. When Cannon and Schneisel and Deedhard are evacuating, Cannon asks, you know, what's not only think of this? And Deedhard says, the, what the bait thinks doesn't matter. And that actually seems like a callback to the first episode of the season, where Lelouch is being confronted by the security division, and the commander's just got this condescending attitude, like, oh, shut up, bait. You don't deserve to know the truth. <laughs> and it just sort of brought that brought little memories there back to me. So I'm sort of seeing that, you know, Deedhard really, in the end, come on, what, what can you say about that guy? Other than he he had an ass chin. Other than that. (laughs) Oh! Hey, 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 I'm not just saying that. The staff calls him ass chin, okay? Hey, man, he's got got the smoothest voice in both versions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I think Lelouch always kind of knew what his true colors were. I think even without... I think one of the things that um, people need to... uh, that I've kind of noticed about Lelouch even through the series is not only, you know, he has the geas and he's able to find out uh, you know how people are and make him do certain things that he wants, but he's also developed to be a pretty good read of people, and I guess that's maybe because of his, you know, obsession with chess and being able to, you know, try to read people's moves when they're, you know, when they're in front of you. But um, I, I always got the impression, and especially when that whole situation happened with Dehard's uh, uh, death, it did not uh, surprise me at all that he was just going to have kind of like a just 
an unceremonious death and Lelouch would be there and just basically kind of put him in his place as he's dying because I don't think he ever really trusted that guy. He, I mean, that was, of all the people I think Lelouch used, he used that guy the most. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, he was like, his most fair-weather friend. <laughs> well, Dietard was a nutcase in the end. I mean, basically, yeah. his stated goal was he wanted to see things change. It sort of reminds me of Wang Yume from Double O. Because yeah. they both, they, all, they didn't care what happens as long as there's just this massive change to the world. That's so much. I think he just gets off on on the excitement. Yeah. He, he has a very void. He doesn't have any, like, desire about whatever. He just cares about, you know, whoever's doing stuff. Yeah, yeah he's exactly. an adrenaline junkie. Yeah. Well, I don't think he wants to see the world change. I think he just wants to see the excitement of, of something yeah. happening. Well, yeah, I mean, back when first season when he's talking to Rakshata and he explains himself, he pretty much says, you know, the way the world is now, it's really boring and stagnant. I want some excitement. He's a, he's a talented spinster. On top of that, he has a very voyeuristic nature as well. And he just wants to see the world. You know, he, he, he doesn't mind, you know, consequences be damned as long as the world changes and he gets to, you know, he, he gets to capture that story. You know, it doesn't matter who the victor is. And, um, you know, he's, he's, he's in it to win it, basically, for that, for that sake alone. Mm, I don't know if he's in it to win it. I kind of agree with Chris. He's he just wants he's he's an adrenaline junkie. He yeah. gets off on seeing this stuff. He doesn't because if it was Britannia doing it or yeah. if it was everything was reversed, he'd be on that side to get involved in it because he you know he's just you know he just gets off on that. And so. that's very evident. You know, way back in season one when Zero first appears to rescue Suzaku, he's basically having like a freaking on camera orgasm. Yeah. Yeah, really. Yeah. That was creepy. I mean, it was really I mean, he he's more simplistic I think than uh Wang Lu Mei is in Double O. At least she you knows she wants the world to change, but kind of in her view, you know, in yeah. in certain things, but this guy he just wants to be like, "Oh my god, look at this." Oh, you know, and I can cover it. So, <laughs> yeah. A couple of things um I, I was sad to see the Shinkiro go because it. I I liked actually liked the design and it never really got. To I did too. Anything. And then Shinkiro was all right. In my opinion. It just got punked in the back by uh, by Gino's sword. And then poor Lancelot finally got put out of its misery. They finally put in the ejection seat. They did at least yeah. do that. Uh, not that it would have mattered much with C two anyway. But another thing, um, you know, the whole thing uh, with at the end Schneisen, the way he gets uh, tricked by Lulush. As I was watching, I was like, ha, 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 yeah, that was pretty cool. But then I thought about it, and it's like, ah, Lelouch, he went and he pulled the pre-taped conversation again. Yeah. Never mind the fact that he would have had to, like, record this, like, on the fly, like, within two or three minutes while all this crap is going on. Yeah. But it just doesn't pass the stink test for me because when he pulled it with Mao in the first season, obviously he had more time to set things up. And also, Mao was a complete simpleton and very easy to predict. But Schneisel is you know, been built up as, you know, the super genius chess player that even Lelouch couldn't beat up to now. So how could he have suddenly now read his brother so well to tape this really long and involved conversation all in advance with the perfect pauses and perfect editing and everything? It just That's really perfect. bothers me well, this time. It's, it's not again. It's not. Snazzle did get real stupid this episode. <laughs> yeah, but it's, so. it's still it the perfect kind of did, but, but Lelouch, when Lelouch did that thing with Mal... They weren't talking that long, and, and, you know, the subject of the conversation wasn't, you know, deep things about, you know, the way the world should be going. Yeah. I got a way of looking at it, actually. It's just, when Lelouch pulled the trick on Mao, he didn't say, you know, 
it worked because you're a dumbass. He said it worked because the way you think is too simplistic. And I think at this point... also was a dumbass. Well, yeah, that too, but it wasn't the main goal of the taped conversation. And if you think about it, a lot of what Lelouch says in the conversation is just a monologue, really. He has a couple of pauses, but mostly it's just him explaining why he's going to win. Yeah, but it's it's and, still the it's it's still the same old um, plot device in a lot of these shows where sure. you have this guy that's so um, you know I'll use a I'll I'll use a uh, an example of like back in the Gundam Seed where you had the three druggies they pushed Atherin and Kira to the limit all the way up to the last episodes and then they just get kind of get killed in a nonchalant way and it's kind of the same thing where this guy was built up to be just you know. The, the the genius of geniuses and like chris said it's like okay you know he couldn't see this coming or you know how was Lelouch doing this while the flay or while the, the damocles is blowing up around him <laughs> in essence he got trazed <laughs> yeah well even trays trays at least set up his own death true true but, nah, just i don't know just a couple of random little things i want to add real quick Number one, Tamaki got his moment of awesome this episode, where Tsuzaku cuts through his, his Akatsuki, just sort of sits there stunned for a second, and he turns around and is like, hey, damn it, I can still fight! And he actually gets in a couple of shots of the Lancelot before Suzaku just finally takes him out for good. You know, he gets some po- real, real bonus points for persistence there. And secondly, Kellen finally got to pay Siku back for all those interruptions earlier in the series. Every time Callan got a private moment with Lelouch, C2 butted. And this oh, of course the, she's going to butt in. This is the ultimate payback, I guess, because, you know, she finally got her chance. They were about to have this tender moment. It looked like, almost looked like they were going to even hug or something. And then just, boom, no, I'm going to kill you. And yes, why did it have to be pain? It, it's the, um, the Lancelot Rouge, man. <laughs> I don't know what it is that Sunrise has with, with women and pink mechas. You got the Strike yeah. Rouge, the Tierra and Towsy. Now the Lancelot Frontier, it's like, please, just stop. Stop. The Cubelet. The Tyrion. The Tyrion. Hey, the Tyrion, you can, the you can <laughs> yeah. BS because the, the Tautzi means peach, so you can BS that. But, hey, come on. Hey, hey. It's just, assigning pink to a woman's robot is just so cliche. Besides, and misogynist. Yeah, that's, and what made it worse, I think, for the Frontier was, it's not just pink, it's Pepto-Bismol pink. Exactly. <laughs> and what made it bad was... The fact that you never really saw her wear pink. No. She was always wearing white. White or black. Or, yeah. yeah. So. It would have been cool know, if they painted it black like, you know, Gius type color. Yeah. Some of that that would have been yeah. kind of neat to see it. but, but Like no. the um, Ga- Gavin or Shinkiro? Yeah. But no, they had to go and paint it pink. Yeah. Blame Lloyd. Just something that popped into my head I forgot about I should have commented on. All this time we've had Lloyd and Cecile working for Emperor Lelouch Willing. And, you know. It just seems to be that they think it's the best path. But it's really worth pointing out that, you know, when the chips are down and it looks like Avalon going down, Lelouch gives all of them this special order. And the next time they turn up, they're telling Black Knights that he betrayed them. So, in the end, he set it up so that they wouldn't get blamed for their role in this. All the blame is going to be shifted onto him, and, you know, you you really have to give him some real credit for that. All right, Chris. We're almost there. (laughs) Try to contain your... Try to contain your excitement, everyone, because we're on the last episode here. Turn 25, re. Hold on to your butts. <laughs> this is the end, lonely friend. The episode picks up as the battle continues to rage outside Damocles with the Britannian forces starting to lose. Not only her eyes now open, and comes that her brother has 
finally appeared before her, and she says that this must be what a murderer looks like. Of course, she says that she probably looks the same to him, and explains that she used the flea in an attempt to stop him, even if it meant she had to kill him. She refuses to give him the trigger, even if he uses his geos on her. And, of course, Lucian monologues to himself. He thinks to himself about how the whole point... He thought about trying to use the geos to, to make Nautilus see again, but now he doesn't want to use it on her because it would mean forcing her to go along with his will. Outside the Damocles... Suzaku and Kalin start, start getting their face off, the final showdown between the two of them, Lancelot versus Gurren. They have the typical ideological debate. Kalin says that she thought Suzaku had a vision for Japan, even if he was misguided. He says that he and Lelouch have something that they have to do this very important. At that point, Suzaku activates his live gas, and the two of them start the final battle. Back at the school, Millie revolves around the council room. She asks if he's going to evacuate, and he says there's no place to go to. And Revolves laments his cosmic uselessness by commenting on the fact that all their friends are out there fighting for the fate of the world, and he's just sitting on his stuff. <laughs> Isn't it sad, Revolves? He's the real deal. Come on, now. <laughs> back, in the, back, in the, <laughs> back at the battle, Jeremiah continues his duel with Anya, and on the Chinese Federation Fortress of Dan, Chiba tries to stop the injured Toto from taking a damaged Akatsuki back into battle. He's very insistent about going. He, pra- he almost hits her, but he stops himself. And when he starts going back towards the machine, he collapses and catches him. Damocles not only tells Lelouch that he doesn't have the right to control the world, because in the guise of Zero, he manipulated people's hearts. Lelouch counters that it seems like she prefers a future where people live in fear and assassins are around every corner. But she never asks him to do anything. The Gurren Lancelot duel continues, and Callan says that she fights as part of the Resistance because she couldn't be a part of the system, even though Suzaku says she could have used the system to her own ends. She asks what happens when someone can't work within the system, Shinku uses what's left of the Shinhu to try to get up to Damocles, while Kalin continues dueling Suzaku, and the two of them just continue whittling each other down. Not only tells Lelouch that his Gius is evil because it bends people's hearts and destroys their pride, he asks her how Damocles is any different since it's a vile system that subjugates people through force, and she says that Damocles is going to become the, sy- the symbol of hatred so people can embrace the future. And Lelouch realizes, much to his surprise, that she's doing exactly the same thing that he was planning on doing, and then he does the one thing he never wanted to do, he uses the geos on his little sister. She fights it as hard as she can, but eventually it takes over, and with a smile on her face and her voice light, she hands the flea key over to Lelouch. Jeremiah continues dueling Anya, but the Seag takes critical damage from Havron cannons, so he ejects into the embedded Sutherland, which manages to get inside the Mordred's energy shield before it self-destructs, and then Jeremiah jumps out of the wreckage of that, lands on the badly damaged Mordred, and points his arm sword right in Anya's face. He says that she should always remember his name, engrave it on her memories, and she says there's no point because she doesn't have any memories. He realizes that she's had a chaos used on her, and he opens up his Canceler Eye. In the fortress, Kalan and Suzaku start running out of weapons and energy, and they've torn each other's wings off, so the battle becomes a good old-fashioned ground bounder, just like at the start of the series. Just when things get really fierce and intense, and at the critical point, Callan folds the radiation arm into just a solid column and drives it into the Albion's chest. Suzaku fires his slat harkins to take out the Gurren's arms. And as the Gurren falls, Callan thinks that she's lost. And Suzaku says that, no, she won in the end. And then the Lancelot explodes, once and for all. Back in the garden room, Lilith tells not only that she's living with good principles so that he can walk his own path, he tells her that he loves her and lets her go from the gas. And as soon as she realizes what's happening, she starts trying to chase him, but she falls and starts cursing him and calling him evil and a monster for what he's done. Back on the ocean, Kaguya finds Situ's eject pod and asks her to surrender. But then everything is interrupted by a flea explosion in the sky. 
Lelouch addresses the world from the Damocles control room, saying that he now has command of Damocles, and now the world is his. From there, we jump ahead two months, back to Tokyo. There's an entire convoy being led through the streets of Japan, with Lelouch on the throne, leading captured Black Knights to execution, with Nanali and Schneisel tied up as witnesses. A reporter comments that many people lost their lives in the war, including the citizens of Pendragon and the Knight of Zero, Suzaku Kurugi, who is buried in a rather nice little grave with Arthur watching over it. Aww. The crowd is, of course, really... They're finally starting to realize that Lelouch is a monster and a tyrant. He kills anyone who disobeys him. Revolves, who's there, can't help wonder if it's what his old friend really wanted. Rakshata and Lloyd continue to argue while in prison, and Nina asks, what does pudding or even mean? And Cecile says it's just something silly from a long time ago. Nearby, we have a few of the remnants of the Black Knights, including Deletta, Cornelia, and Ogi, and Dilford, who are waiting for their chance to leap out and do something. All of a sudden, the Vincent Wards guarding the convoy stop because there's a figure on the road. That figure is Zero. Everyone is, of course, surprised, especially those who know that Lelouch is Zero. And then, as the wards begin firing, he runs with superhuman speed, dodges the bullets, jumps over the wards, and manages to get past Jeremiah. Then Zero leaps up on the platform and draws his sword. Just as Lelouch pulls out a gun, Zero knocks it aside. As the two of them face each other, Lelouch smiles and he remembers his conversation. When everything started coming to an end, he told Suzaku his ultimate plan for Zero Requiem. The plan being, simply enough, take one individual, have the world hate that person completely and unrepentantly, and then to have that person disappear and take, and take all the hatred with them so the world can move on. That was Lelouch's goal, the Zero Requiem, which he and Suzaku agreed to way back when they were in the world of sea after dealing with Charles and Marianne. As part of Lelouch's plan, he left Schneisel alive because of his skills, but ordered him to continue working for Zero. For that purpose, Lelouch has Suzaku take up the identity of Zero so he can abandon his old life and continue to do good as Zero, the hero of the world. As the two continued talking, Lelouch got philosophical and commented that perhaps the Kiyos power was, was like the power of wishes, because someone who, it means that someone who couldn't do something on their own wouldn't have to rely on the help of others. C2 has gone back to the church where she was forced to be immortal in the first place, and prays, thinking of Lelouch and cries. As she recalls him saying once more those famous words he said once before, those who kill must themselves be prepared to die. And as everyone looks on in horror, everyone gasps and shouts, Zero pulls out his sword and stabs it straight through Emperor Lelouch's chest. As he gasps, reaches up to touch Zero's mask, and whispers to Suzaku that this is also a punishment for him, because Suzaku Kuroki is now and forever dead, and he will have to be Zero for the rest of his days. Suzaku will accept that chaos, and Lelouch falls down the stage to where his little sister is. Still unbelieving, she touches his hand and gets a flood of visions, including the Zero Requiem, at which point she realizes that Lelouch really was a good person, and she starts crying and begging him not to die, saying that she loves him and she needs him, and that all she ever wanted was just to live happily with her big brother. As the Black Knights look on, Toto starts to wonder, you know, Zero there, could it really be? And Callan, who has finally realized everything that's happening, with tears in her eyes, says, no, it's him. That's the real Zero. Lelouch lies back with his sister watching over him. As he thinks back on his life, he comments that, once and for all, he is Zero, the man who destroys worlds and then rebuilds them. And with that, he closes his eyes for the last time. Nunnally realizes that her brother is gone and begins crying absolutely without control. Cornelia and her people bust in, and the crowd begins cheering and chanting Zero's name as one little girl mourns the loss of her beloved brother. Then we get a little time jump. Everything is going rather well. Callan is preparing for school, and she looks over at a photo of Lulu 
suspicion thinks to herself, sort of conversing with him mentally, that everything that's happened because of him, things have gotten more peaceful. The world is getting is slowly moving towards peace. The efforts that were dedicated towards war are being worked towards dealing with poverty and hunger. And that the road ahead is still bumpy, but there's still hope, as long as there are people like him there. The Black Knights have returned to peaceful lives. Tomiki's got a bar. Ogi and Aladdin are married. Anya and Jeremiah are working in Orangefield. The Damocles falls into the sun and is destroyed. And finally, we see C2 riding in a hay cart through, through verdant fields. She lies back, looks at the sky, and comments, The power of the king, known as the Gias, will make you lonely. In the end, that wasn't exactly true, was it, Lelouch? And with one final image of Nanami's paper crane, Code Gias come to an end. Yay. <laughs> Yay! See you guys. Thank God. <laughs> Well, what what can be said at this point? You really couldn't. Um, I don't think you could have really ended it any other way. I mean, you could have, but it would have just kind of been a little cliche. I think um, you know, showing the whole idea that's pretty much been the idea from the beginning with Zero that um, it's more of a, a spirit and focusing on one person either to believe in to, or to hate can bring people together. And I think that's where uh, Lelouch kind of realized that, that being Emperor Lelouch, you know, he felt he brought everybody together because they hated him. And then as Zero vanquished him, you know, now the people are going to stay together because they feel that, you know, Zero or the idea of Zero is the great vanquisher of evil. So, um, you know, I, I, it's, I think it's... Uh, People were, I know this, this ending really drove people crazy. And, you know, it was just one of those things where, um, you know, it wasn't always the same that you could have had in, in a specific show like this. And, yeah, they left a lot, of, a lot of things about people's lives untold. But, you know, hey, it, it, we, we came in at one point of their lives and then we left at another point of their lives. So we're not going to know everything that happens to those people in the end. So, Life doesn't have ti- nice, tidy conclusions. I think it's exactly. Ra- it's, it's rather appropriate that the final song we hear in the at the end of the episode is called "Continuing Story" because there's not just going to be one conclusion. This is right. one major event from the lives of these characters, but it's not the only event. We're gonna they're gonna continue to live. I doubt there's gonna be a sequel focusing on them, but they're yeah. they're gonna have their own stories. And and the, and when they showed the people, it was, it was very reminiscent of Turn A when you kind of got the epilogue of everybody and and then you got like kind of the weird uh you know the people that were together later on like um you know like uh, orange and uh, anya you know it's like the un the un that's kind of the strange matching of characters that even after this whole thing concluded they're together ironically in a citrus field <laughs> but it's so. it's the color of his loyalty it is and it's a good way to make money so they're, they're making that Florida's natural. <laughs> well, yeah, you never know. But uh, Chris, any anything on the final episode besides glad it's done? No, just kidding. Well, you know, um, first up, you know, the final battle between uh, Suzaku and Colin is probably one of the uh, the best in the entire series, and yeah. it's a really nice touch how you know they fought themselves down to the level where they couldn't use their fancy flying and had to go back to land spinners and ground combat because you know, a lot of people had this complaint and I kind of agree that the combat in season two kind of basically just became Gundam Seed with everything flying around and 
you know, yeah. flying over the water and flying here and flying there and flying over the water and flying over the water and flying over the water. So what made, it was, what made that battle really fun for me was the fact that they didn't just knock off their wings, they ended up whittling down each other's special abilities. So just like Char's counterattack, it ended up being this one-on-one fist fight. Yeah, just down to everything breaking to pieces and, you know, just everything going for, for broke for that that last fight. So that, I think, uh, was one of the high points. Um, it was good to see, you know, Lelouch have a moment, you know, with not only when she's in the... Uh, the grasp of the geese and, and he's sort of basically saying goodbye to her because he won't have a chance to say that otherwise. And then, of course, uh, you got probably one of the best epi- parts of the episode when, uh, you know, you have Lelouch, the flashback where, you know, Lelouch discusses uh, Zero Requiem with uh, Suzaku and we finally learn what it's about. And one of the things that I don't think people really uh, think about when this scene happens and is kind of glossed over is that, um, you know, they agreed to this in the world of C when uh, Suzaku was still angry about Lelouch having killed Yuffie. And I think at the time, the only reason Suzaku would have agreed to Zerequium because it would give him the chance to kill Lelouch at the end. And recall that Mm -hmm. when Nunley was revealed to be alive and Lelouch went emo for a minute, uh, Suzaku tells him this changes nothing and Zerequium still has to go forward. And he I think at that point he still was just playing along because he wanted mm-hmm. that goal of being able to kill Lelouch. But after everything that happened and everything they went through, uh, I think it's very important that in that conversation they're having there at the end, Suzaku asks him if he really wants to still go through with this, which I think makes it evident that he changed his opinion about Lelouch and you know wasn't in it for the same thing he was at the beginning. But Lelouch has already made himself the symbol of, of hatred and kind of has to go out. So I think that was very well done. And, you know, just the editing of, you know, the sword driving through and that conversation and the music just makes it all come together perfectly. Mm-hmm. Cool. Silver? Oh, but, I'm sorry. But what I do object to then, and I still object to now, is all of the happy storybook endings that everyone gets to have, aside from Nunnally and, and Lelouch and C2. Yeah, and they're all morons, and they're all losers, and none of them deserve it. That is true. Hey, that is lo- true. The only way I can explain it, life ain't fair. <laughs> yeah. But that's but. it's supposed that's should be the argument against that that they all got happy. Why is it that like ninety eight percent of the cast gets a happy ending? Yeah, should well, be unfair ev- to them too. If everyone got a crappy ending, then it would just be you know really depressing. I'm not saying everyone has to get a crappy ending, but the fact that almost everyone got a good ending is just really annoying. It almost seems like, too, that they, they to an extent, didn't learn anything from yeah, that's... what he was trying to do. And it seems like, you know, the especially the one that kind of got me when you say that, Chris, is Callan. Um, you know, it was like, okay, you know, she, I, I can understand trying to get back with your life. But she was probably, out of all those people, she was so entrenched with everything. And it just seems like she hadn't, I mean, something like that, what she went through, would change you. And, you know, she went to being just kind of the same old person that she was before. I don't know about that. The thing is that, you know, Callan went through basically the entire bit from the betrayal to the end of the series, thinking that, well, from the betrayal up until about Emperor Lelouch, she thought that, 
she was completely conflicted. A lot of people seem to think that she turned into some kind of idiot during this period, but the fact is, she was trying to sort out her own feelings and the idea that this person who she'd come to know over the last couple of years, who she thought of as a brave, strong, and noble person, was, in fact, a selfish, arrogant monster. We had her confront him with that and basically ask him to give him the chance to defend himself. He didn't, so she decided he really is a monster. I have to defeat him because I helped get him this far. But only at the very end, when she sees Suzaku as zero, does she realize what Lelouch's goal was. And she realizes that all along, he was right. But when we see her at the very end, she's accepted who she is. She's no longer pretending to be this weak, this sick little weakling. She's being herself. She's being Kellen Kozuki because of what Lelouch gave her. And she's accepted her mother as who she is. She's accepted herself as both Japanese and as Britannian. And she's going to live on with her life because that's the gift he gave her. Uh, Very I true. I just, it's just one of those things where I am in agreement with Chris, though. It's just like, you know, a lot of these people didn't deserve it. And you know, hey, I'm not going to debate that. There were a lot of people yeah. who got better in these than they deserved. Like Villetta, who basically... You want to talk about Suzaku being a chronic defector? She was worse. Oh, yeah. She, she was a complete double agent. Su- Suzaku, agent. Suzaku did what he did because he thought it was for the best. Villetta did what she did because she wanted she wanted up. She wanted advantages. She wanted props and bonuses. Well, pretty much, it yeah. Was hey, uh, she, liked, uh, she liked that Kobe beef. What can I say? Yeah. <laughs> oh, ow. But. Now, now, Tamaki's ending, I'm not going to protest. But Ogi getting to be made the freaking prime minister? I mean, what the hell? What yeah. is he I mean, done to deserve it? He's a moron. Well, yeah. yeah. What about Ka- <laughs> Kaguya could have gotten that? It would, I wouldn't have minded if Kaguya was the yeah. prime minister. Because she was actually exactly. still sort of smart at the end. But Ogi getting a happy ending is just sort of annoying because of all the stupid stuff he did this season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Well, honestly, um, I, I harken back what um Chris was saying. Um, there was another time they foreshadowed it in um episode twenty two when um Lelouch and Suzaku are talking about um erasing the the massacre princess from um Euphemia's legend, you know, by Lelouch. You know, they they just they touched upon it. You know, they foreshadowed it in that episode too about what Lelouch's overall plan was. I mean, it's it's the ending you saw coming. Unlike all the other twists in the rest of the series, this is one of the conclusions you knew was going to happen. I mean, it's the only fitting way to end the show. And it pissed off a lot of people, and I can't imagine that. Because if you saw, the, if you saw how the show worked, you knew this was, was going to be the ultimate resolution, that Lelouch died, um, that Lelouch would die. And I, I just can't believe people got upset about it. And the fact that, you know, well, it's, later, it's, it's later discussed that, you know, he's... he's he, he, he didn't fake his death. He is dead. Well, and I, I don't, I, I honestly, you know, I just, I, I, I don't get why people like to speculate and then um, want their speculations to become truth because this show was all about the unexpected. Well, if I, if, I can, one, if I can chime in here, I can sort of explain the mindset for the illusion to live people. Oh, maybe we should maybe we should do that in the other segment. Though. Yeah, yeah. Do, that, right. I, I think that would sure, be better. Sure, yeah, sorry. just right. uh, uh, but it's just and yeah, that's because that's my thoughts. But, yeah, um, that's cool. Overall, I I like the fact that um a lot of people got happy endings, but um some people were stupid throughout the course of the show. I'll be the first to admit, and um I don't know. Some people did do some treacherous things, and they shouldn't have had you know happy endings like other ones did. But mm. and and that, that that that's my say right there until we discuss it later. But. So. Well, uh, what about uh, the series as a whole? 
well, series actually, as a whole. Well, there's Go ahead. one thing I wanted to comment that goes goes back to what we said way back when about episode twenty two. I think Solbro mm-hmm. commented on how it felt sort of cheap that not only got brought back near the end like this for you know cheap yeah. drop. I thought about it for a while. And I think this is the only way it could have gone. Not, yeah, I think so. Not only had to vanish because up to that point Lelouch was still being incredibly selfish. The revolution yeah. it wasn't for Japan, it wasn't for Callan, it wasn't for C two. It was for Nunnally. He was being yeah. extremely selfish. Only after Nunnally died did he realize that, and after Rolo died as well, did he realize that there are other people out there who matter, and they deserve happiness just as much as, as he does and as Nunnally does. So yeah. losing her is what spurred him to, re- to actually becoming a much more selfless person and actually trying to, actually trying to do good. But then she had to come back as well as his final test. If you'll, go, yeah. if you'll remember at the end of the first season... He threw away everything for Donnelly. He heard she was gone, and he basically went completely nuts saying, look, you guys deal with this. I'm gone. <laughs> and it basically showed that when the chips were down, she was the most important thing, and he had to just abandon everything. He couldn't trust that yeah. she would be safe. He had to run off and save her. Yeah, and now so. it, that's what the ending, I think, sort of reflected is the fact that he's grown that much in the time he's been zero. He's finally realized that Yes, she's his sister, and yes, he does love her, but she's not the most important thing in the world. And that, yeah. if need be, more people should be happy. Yeah. So and she needs, and she, she needs to find happiness on her own, too. Yeah. And, and not just also him. the idea that he was sort of forcing what he thought was her happiness on her. But yeah. I just think basically she needed to come back so they could show that Lelouch has grown up as a person and that he's basically become, you know, an adult. Right. And he isn't just a kid trying to angrily change the world. I don't think they could have done that any way other than having Donnelly be there. So, but, you raise a very good point. But uh, what were you saying, Chris, about the final thoughts on the show? And what are your final thoughts on the show? I think it was a good show. Um, I think, um, you know, basically uh, it's, 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 it's definitely one of those shows, I think, once you the, each time that you watch it, you'll probably get more and more out of it. Um, you know, I was pretty much happy with... Uh, the, the progression of the series. Uh, I even didn't really have that much of a problem even with the first couple episodes of uh, season two that seemed like a, a rehash because in, in a way it kind of set up the kind of set up kind of the deja vu thing that, um, you know, sometimes people that would had Gius, they would kind of feel like they had deja vu. So it kind of kind of kept within that parameters. Um, I think overall, if I was scaling it on the, uh, on your review ske- uh, schedule, I'd probably give it between probably a four point, 4.25. Um, I mean, I think there were some parts that, you know, definitely lacked, and there were some things that were kind of could have been done better, uh, especially in, in season two. There were some things that were just, I don't know, I, I, they may have cheapened them or maybe not. They kind of went to the cliche route. But other than that, a, a very good show. And, um, you know, as, as we're starting to slowly get a lot of the supplemental materials here in the United States, um, you know, it, it is really kind of an enriching, you know, enriching that universe. But hopefully they don't cheapen it by uh, doing uh, a bad sequel or movie or anything like that. Uh, I would implore the creators that if uh, you're going to continue this world, uh, really think it out before you do something. Just don't do it just to make fans happy or, uh, you know, to get a few more dollars in Sunrise's pockets. So. But that's, that's my two cents. Um, mine, uh, I honestly enjoyed um, season one a little bit more than season two. 
mainly because of the, the 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 deja vu episodes that we got at the beginning of season two. Although you know the show ended spectacularly, so I mean that that does make up for a whole great deal. Um, overall, I give the entire series probably um, four point five, uh, four point five stars. I give season one five stars, and season two um, four, and only because of the fact that. I, we could have probably got a much more intense show if it wasn't for the factors that kind of had him retread a lot of things. But I can't really hold that against them. Think things had to be done. At least we got a show, and it ended strongly. And I, I it was it was excellent. But um, those are my thoughts. It's, uh, Armor. Hmm. It's sort of hard to put all my thoughts about Code Geass into just one little soundbite here, but but yeah. you're gonna have to. You have to. <laughs> all right, here I go. <laughs> when Code, I gotta be honest, uh, when I first heard about Code Geass, I was basically, you know, it's alternate universe, it's alternate history, plus it's got giant robots. I was in for it. But right. in the first five minutes, I was hooked because here came this character, and I could tell the second he walked into that parlor to play that game of chess that Lelouch Lamperouche was not going to be your usual giant robot hero. There was going to be something different and special about him, and it was going to make the show really fun and interesting, and I feel like that that expectation was completely met. It wasn't just, you know, this idiot engineer kid falls into a cockpit, gets on a battleship, and fights a war against evil space rebels. It we actually, call that the keys in the ignition theory. Exactly. It's just right off the bat, you could tell the show is going to be different. A lot of people seem to decry its use of tropes and cliches, but it tried to twist them around and make them more interesting and keep them from being too stale. Admittedly, yes, the second season had some problems. Overall, there were some pacing problems. They probably didn't need to retry as much ground, and then it came back to True. bite them because near the end we have a few jumps of a month, two months. And and there are a few things that do feel rushed, like the montage in episode, I think it's 22. They just have a scene where they play a little song and do a brief snippet of everyone, going, what they're doing to prepare for the final battle. Yeah. And I do sort of wish, honestly, I think everyone, no one you meet is going to say it's a good thing the show is delayed. I think everyone is going to say they wish it had been one continuous 50-episode series. But at the same time, you know, hearing some of the original series plans, stuff like Jeremiah's little sister being a female twin of Lelouch, stuff like that, I'm sort of glad they delayed it because, you know, if you delay, you have time to look at your plans and say, you know, that's not such a good idea and revise it. So it is flawed. It's not perfect. I don't think Kokius is going to be recognized as one of the anime that makes the mecha genre like, say, Mazinger Z, Gundam, or Evangelion. I don't think it's going to be put up to that standard. I do think it's going to be recognized as one of the best anime of the year or possibly the decade. It's going to be right up there. Personally, I'd probably give it somewhere in the neighborhood of 4.3 stars. Mm-hmm. It, had, it had its flaws. There were some parts that bugged me, but overall, I think what really redeemed it was just... The, the show has some really fun, interesting, well-written characters, and even after it's ended, they're going to be staying with me for a while. And, and all I can really say is, basically, to Director Taniguchi, Mr. Okuichi, and everyone else who worked on the show, thank you. Sorry. All right, Chris, take us out. Well, uh, pretty much, you know, I it's a, it's, it's a great show, and I think it'll be remembered uh, in, in the future. Uh, obviously, R2... Not as good as the first season, you know. You had a whole bunch of kind of useless characters introduced, which, you know, made the cast kind of a bit too big and and took away the opportunity to develop the cast that was 
already there. And of course, as some of you mentioned, the, the pacing problems with the retreaded ground, which later meant that things had to be sped up. So you know, if you can sort of like the first five or six episodes and, you know, had some more time to develop things at the end and had a much smaller cast, then I think uh, the show would be much, much better. But that doesn't mean it's not a great show already. So you know, despite all the hatred and all of the fanboys and fangirls and all of that, I still love the show and it's something that I will happily buy, you know, every volume of hopefully in Blu-ray, if you're listening, Bandai. <laughs> cool. Subtle. But it, it's it's one of the better conspiracy dramas in anime, and I yep, it, it, I, I agree with you guys. It, it, it does go up there well, when it comes to um, how it's rated amongst other shows. Well, if that's it, I guess I'll close it out for us on this marathon episode of the last five episodes of uh, Code Geass R2, the conclusion of not only Season 2, but the conclusion of the show as we know it right now. Um, for myself, uh, Neo, uh, Solbro, and Chris, along with our special guest, Armro NT, uh, we'll be back in a little bit. We'll lis- you're listening to Gundam at MHQ. In the very end, you'd betray the entire world the way it's betrayed you. I'm not going to let your sick, twisted dream be realized. You fool. You think ideals alone can change the world? Fine! Then go right ahead and shoot me! Come on! Set your aim on this liquid Securidite! <gasps> if my heart stops, this vial will explode. You'll both die with me. Goddamn you! Listen, I'll make a deal with you. I want to know who told you about Gios. Did they abduct Nautily? Nothing that happens now is any of your concern! <sighs> your very existence is a mistake! You need to be erased from the base of the Earth! I'll take care of Nautily! Sozago! Lelouch! Striking out on finding your favorite manga, anime, or series merchandise nearby or online? Lost when it comes to finding pop music from Japan, Hong Kong, and other Asian markets? Well then, Florida Oriental Trading is here to help. If you live in the Central Florida area, head on over to the intersection of Colonial Drive and Mills Avenue near downtown Orlando. You'll find FOT right next to the CVS Pharmacy. For those who live abroad, find out more about our favorite store online at FloridaOrientalTrading.com or call them directly at area code 407-895-0650. FOT carries a large selection of merchandise such as art books, t-shirts, posters, wall scrolls, soundtracks, PVC figurines, models, and much, much more. Also, it's a great place to find imports of your favorite musical artists and the latest films from Japan, Hong Kong, and other Asian countries. Last but not least, Florida Oriental Trading is not only home to the best selection of anime on DVD in Central Florida, but there you'll find a wide variety of manga too. On top of that, all of their manga is always priced at 20% less than retail, daily. 20%. That's right, Frank. 20%. Florida Oriental Trading is open every day except Wednesdays from 10 a.m. to 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You even find them open most holidays. So if you're local, stop on by and visit Quan and Debbie or give them a call at area code 407-895-0650 and give them the business. Tell them Gundam at MAHQ Central. Don't be a sore loser. I'm telling you my Gundam was messed up.
everyone. Welcome back to Gundam at MAHQ. This is Chris, and we have finally reached what to some might be the most anticipated or the most dreaded of our Gundam Roundup segments. Yes, it's time for new mobile report Gundam Wing, a.k.a. Mobile Suit Gundam Wing. Uh, obviously, this is a series that needs no introduction, so we're really going to forego uh, much discussion of the plot. You know, everyone knows the basic story. You have five pretty boys and five Gundams fighting against uh, the evil Oz organization and the Romafeller Foundation and White Fang and there's masked men and betrayals and lots of Gundams and things explode. So let's jump right into it. And since we have as our, our guest again for this segment, uh, Gundam Wing expert Amaro NT1, why don't you start off by giving us some general thoughts about uh, the series? Oh boy, did you guys make a mistake by inviting me to this episode. <laughs> Remember, we're on a time time. Alright, so I'll save, evil, too. I'll save evil gloating for later. Pretty much, yeah. Obviously, Gundam Wing was the first Gundam anime I saw. It wasn't my first introduction to Gundam, that story for another time. But I, I still like it in the end. You know, I gotta be honest, the first time I watched it, it I liked it, but it didn't quite click with me. But I watched it, watched it the second time, things started feeling better. And just a couple of years ago, I managed to track down the DVDs, and I, I found that it, I still liked it, but I actually liked it on a deeper level than that, because, I mean, yes, the plot does seem a little shallow at times, and they really could have used some better pacing around the middle, but I, I really like the characters, and the one thing that I really took away from that rewatch was the female cast in the show kicks a lot of ass. But, yeah, they actually but do. But everyone's so busy focusing on the pretty boys and the Gundams, they don't notice the fact that, you know, you've got... Noin, who is incredibly cool. You got Dorothy, who I think actually might be a better manipulator than Trace. And of course, there's yeah. Relina, who, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I'm the fanboy, but I really do like her. But <laughs> one thing I wanted to point out, just randomly, that I don't like what I call Alabaster Statue of Relina, which is the way she get when you get people who actually like her in the fandom, they tend to portray her as basically just this perfect, flawless angel. When, I watch, when you watch the early episodes, she's snide, she's sarcastic, she's cunning, she's human, and I love her like that. I wish we could have seen more of Relina when she's acting like a teenage girl, rather than being, you know, Miss Perfect. I liked her better when she was human. Um, Design-wise, design I love the Osbournes. Particularly fond of the Leo and the Taurus. The Gundams, I, I gotta be honest, I prefer Kaitoki's versions over Okawara's, and I'm gonna take some heat for that, but I don't care. Voice-wise, I think the dub and the sub are about equal. I think the thing that pushes me slightly more towards the sub is the fact that you got excellent performances by Hikaru Midorikawa and Akiko Yajima as Hiro and Relina, as opposed to a, a good but still sort of flawed performance by Lisa and Belay, and a let's-not-go-there performance by Mark Hildreth. <laughs> <laughs> but the rest of the cast pretty much evil evens, out, evens out in my mind. Especially, you know, comparing, like, Seiki Toshihiko to Scott McNeil as Duo Maxwell. I think that about covers it. Well, just randomly, the art quality is pretty good for a 95-50 episode show. It doesn't use stock footage as much as people like to say it does. Especially not compared to Seed, but that's another episode. But We're not I, there yet. Yeah, I think that about covers my general comments. I'll pass it over to whoever wants to pick it up. Alright, let's uh, put him on the spot, Solbro. Yeah. Well, um, the the you know, I first when I first was introduced to the show, and this is the first full Gundam series I watched. I loved the show. I loved the fast pace. I loved how it moved. I didn't know anything about Universal Century. Then when I got introduced to Universal Century, I started to realize that Gundam Wing was UC on Cliff Notes, and that's 
and it's kind of lost its luster to me for a little while. I, I ended up starting to joke about the show being, you know, not as good as the other shows I was being slowly introduced to. But I'd say about last year when I, you know, I just we since we've been doing this show, I have a really strong appreciation for Gundam Wing. It started to grow yeah, from watching. Destiny showed up. Yeah, it, Destiny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it kind of started then. But also, um, when we started watching Double O, it's Double O is kind of like. And, and I'm no, I won't go into don't it. Go too long, but don't go there. Don't. Anyway, said, anyway, uh-oh. it reminded me a lot of Gundam Wing. Oh, I can't I started, Don't I spread st- the meme. Okay. Anyway, don't anyway, spread the meme. There are there are severe differences, but <laughs> I started to appreciate Gundam Wing more and more as an end result. And um, I gotta say, if it wasn't for that show, I probably wouldn't have fallen as hard for Gundam. Um, or I wouldn't have been, you know, introduced to it as, you know, as, as, as I was way back in 98. And I love the show. Um, one of the things I got to say about it is this is the one Gundam show where you can get the, you can get from earth to space in like less than six seconds. <laughs> there was so much, so much traversing in that show from earth to space. It was just, I, I, I've, in comparison to the other Gundam series, it's always a chore to get from one end to the other, not in this show. It was like, booking a flight it was that simple <laughs> but um other than that i i really can't i really can't hate on the show i actually enjoy it i think its simplicity is one of its strengths and although i'm not as big on the cast of characters as i am other shows i still think they all serve their purposes i um i wish that someone had a thesaurus um and found other words for the uh, other um other uses of the word pacifism in the English dub, but <laughs> other than that, that's my own only complaint um, about the English dub, I, which I watched um, enthusiastically. But anyone else? Well, I, is it as is the story as, as simplistic as G Gundam's story was? Soul Pro? Um, no, it's not as simplistic, just, but just, it is fast paced. Just kidding. Just kidding. They fight. So they fight. They continue fighting. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it's the Michael Bay of Gundams. <laughs> oh, that, that, that's just cold right there. <laughs> Go ahead, Neil. I'm sorry. Well, with just like most everybody, um, I'm kind of with Armour. I wasn't necessarily introduced to Gundam with this, but this was like the first Gundam show that I had actually seen in its entirety. Um, and I'll be honest to say I, I love it when it, would, when it first came out, and um, I own it now. And recently, about a month ago, in anticipation of what we were doing with this segment, I actually rewatched it because I hadn't seen the show in quite a while. And, yeah, I think I was getting kind of the same way there with, um, you know, finally getting introduced to some of the other Gundam shows and, you know, starting to do comparisons of what Wing was. But as I was watching Wing, um, you know, this recently here, um, I have a, a newfound appreciation for it. Is it the best show? No. Is it the worst show? No. But I, t- I really take it for what it is. Um, I agree with Armuro. The, the female characters are probably some of the best characters out there. Um, oh, uh, Lieutenant Noin being like one of my favorite female characters of of, of any of the Gundam franchises. Yes. Um, you know, the only problem I do have with some of it is probably my biggest part, the biggest problem that I have with it is unless it was like Zex or somebody else, most of the battles are very, they're just kind of wasted. They didn't seem like there was much, especially towards the end when you got, when you're fighting mobile dolls, uh, they seem kind of cheap and just, you know, just kind of a way to kill time um all the characters i don't really have too many problems with any of the gundam pilots uh even katra i know that he's kind of the scapegoat of uh you know most people um you know because of the way he was uh but i mean 
for for you know for what it was um i i kind of do disagree though with the double o comparisons uh that's very 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 on the surface and you know um we won't even get into that at this point but um the the other thing that always struck me about gundam wing was the music and it was very uh, you know as soon as you started hearing the music and you, you know it you, it just kind of enthralled you into the whole thing uh, it's you know it was a very flashy show um, a lot of things going on, but that music really stepped up a lot of the excitement and um, you know for watching it. But, it's one, um, one of my favorite actually, soundtracks. Man. Actually, I got to point out just something real quick. Uh, something a lot of people might not know. The musical composer for Gundam Wing was Ko Otani, who a lot of people probably know a lot better because he did the music for Shadow of the Colossus. Yeah. Okay. And you know he's done other works like Aishil 21, but really it's Shadow of the Colossus is what he is known for. The band is one. Yeah. That, and that soundtrack is awesome. Incredible. Thank you that game's awesome but um you know um what can you say it's gundam wing i mean it, it, without it we probably wouldn't be it, you know gundam wouldn't even have enjoyed some of the popularity it did have in the united states um you know gateway drug i i understand that you know it, especially for the hardcore uc people yeah it might be simplistic to them but um you know i i think it, it it's probably one of the it's it's the closest thing that we can have to the crossover show with the the Gundam franchise, but that's about my stuff there, Chris. Um, you know, everybody's been waiting to hear what you have to say. All right, and and this is time to finally explain something that people have been dogging me about for years. So is this the Straight Talk Express? Woo woo! It's pulling in for a for a stop here. All right. Okay. So uh, when uh, when I first saw Gundam Wing, it was not the first Gundam I saw. It was, however, the first full TV series that I saw. And I'm kind of in the opposite in the sense that uh, it didn't really impress me that much when I first saw it. And, um, you know, over the years I've watched it several more times dubbed, and then later I bought the DVDs and watched it all in Japanese. And over time, my appreciation has grown for the series, especially watching it in Japanese, because as I'm yeah. it out, um, Mark Hildreth as hero is, like, really dull and robotic. Yeah, and, that's uh, honestly, it, I blame Hiltreth for a lot of the people out there who think Hero is emotionless because Hiromodorakawa is a lot more subtle, but he still emotes. Yeah, yeah and I that's that. and I was one of those people who thought that Hero was an emotionless robot due entirely to Mark Hildreth's flat, emotionless performance. And it's really a contrast in characters to see, you know, how different Hero is portrayed by Midorikawa and by Hildreth. And it really yeah. changed my whole opinion of the entire character. As Amra pointed out, most of the other characters there matched up pretty well between the Japanese and the English. You know, for example, I didn't care for Wufei much as a character in English, uh, nor in Japanese either. I just can't stand the guy. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they did a good job there of portraying him to the way that I couldn't stand him in either language. Uh, another thing, uh, there's definitely some pacing problems, and one of the things that kind of annoys me is this is a bit of a slight exaggeration in terms of paraphrasing this, but rather than being uh, Monster of the Week, you kind of have, like, evil organization of the arc. Yeah. This series, because you start off like, okay, the Earth Sphere is bad, but really it's Oz that's even badder, so i got to fight Oz. And then Oz is out there, but then it's really Romafella that's bad because Oz splits up in support for Trey's. Okay, now it's Romafella Foundation that's really bad. So we're fighting Romafella Foundation. But then they kind of fall apart through their own stuff, and then White Fang shows up in space, 
and they're really bad. And now, okay, let's go fight White Fang. So yeah. my kind of thing is, generally speaking, in these kinds of like war shows, or robot shows, no matter what happens in between, generally the people that you're fighting at the end of the show should still be the people you were fighting at the beginning. Kind of a case yeah. in point would be Zeta Gundam, where it started off between the Aug and the Titans, and then you know later on the Axis became a player. But when it came down to that final battle, it was still a struggle between Aug and the Titans. With the case of Wing, it just goes through so many like organizations that it's so far from where it started. That's kind of silly that in just the span of the year you have all of these rebellions and all of these organizations and all of these people kind of jumping out. So that's a complaint I had eight years ago that kind of is still with me. Uh, another thing that, that Neil mentioned uh, in regards to the battles, one thing that the series I think definitely is lacking is in terms of ace pilots. Mm-hmm. And most of the time you have you know, the Gundam pilots fighting just a bunch of useless grunts or later on automated mobile dolls. You really only have special standout things when you have fights with aces like uh, Zex or, or Trace, and they're very few and far between. So, you know, a lot of people say the, the combat in this show is kind of like fast-paced and action-packed, but I, I really don't see that because most of the time it's just mowing down grunts, whether they're yeah. humans or just unmanned robots. So yeah. one thing that, you know, if you did have to make a comparison to Double O, Double O has a lot of ace characters, whether they're people who just appear for a little bit or they're named characters who have been around for a while. And that's something that I think Wing is lacking in. Uh, one of its strengths definitely would be the musical scores. It's a great score. Oh, yeah. And um, as far as the characters, like I said, I don't really have any problems now with the characters. I still don't care for, for Wu Fei much. And sorry, Amro, uh, Relina just doesn't do it for me. I don't hate uh, her. But- now I don't hate her. You are. I don't hate her, but she just—I just don't care. So she was in your top. She was in your yeah. top five hated um, um, most Gundam chicks you didn't like list, if I recall. I don't. <laughs> she, I did. Yeah, I believe so. I don't. I don't hate her either, but yeah, I actually it's cool. don't it, like. It's cool. The stand, like I said, the standout female to me was she was became. annoying, and I do have to kind of agree with your. Um, your analysis of Dorothy, even though she could have been a little annoying at times, mm-hmm. um, you know she was pretty good. She was a pretty nice master manipulator, especially towards the end there. People so. people write Dorothy off way too fast. She's one of my favorite characters in the show. She came in. She came in halfway through though, and I never really bought her character. Um, I just uh, I, I I I couldn't get past those eyebrows. I guess that's part, <laughs> that's part of what bugs people is. It's just she's oh, the fourth man. eyebrow bitch, and they completely ignore the fact that she's actually up there with Zex and Trees when it comes to manipulating people. True. Plus, on true. It, honestly, I might catch a little heat for this, but I think she honestly the only character in the show who is bisexual. Oh, you raise a great point. Yep. Okay. <laughs> oh God, do we have to go down this road? No, I, no, sorry, that, that, that compl- I'm just, it's just what I think. That completely came out of left field. That was. <laughs> we'll leave it up on the board. She, she gets on Relina. Okay, that's you all. Know, I'm saying. Left and right. Oh, okay. You know, I'll, I don't care if people. If y'all don't care for Relina, it's just you know your mileage may vary. You mean the Holy Mother? <laughs> nah. Well, I can understand if you know she doesn't appeal to everyone. It's just I'm used to having to deal with people who think she is worse than Sauron. No. True. But if no. it's just, you know, she didn't light my fire, then, you know, that's okay. One, and that's pretty much where I would go. One point I feel I should make uh, just myself is, you know, uh, obviously my you know reviews from Gundam Wing written many, many years ago reflect my attitude at the 
time, and I've gotten a lot of hate mail for them over the years. So yeah, just so people are, are, are aware of this, uh, I don't hate Gundam Wing, and I do plan at some point when I have the time on totally reviewing this series. You know, if anyone's been following MHQ for years, they've seen that I've gone back and reviewed quite a lot of shows that I covered in those first two years and, you know, have improved the uh, the ratings of certain series. Most recently, I'm sure some people saw that I re-reviewed all of Macross 7 and my opinion of the show now is much higher than it was back then. And the same is true for Gunwing, but I just haven't gotten around to doing it because right now it's not as much of a priority compared to getting new stuff out there. So at some point, maybe next year, You'll see me be exploring Wing, and uh, you know the kind of stuff that I'm saying now will will echo through in that. But question for each of you in terms of um, story element: uh, What did you like the most about the series, and what did you like the least? Let's kick it to Mr. Amaro first. <laughs> uh, Story-wise, one thing I really liked about the show is the fact that it felt like it wasn't just you know the primary cast. I mean, yes, you have basically the core cast of like 10 or 12 people, which is the pilot, the guys, Zex, and their female counterparts. But you also had these minor characters who actually felt like they had a big stake in this, like they really mattered. Like, you know, you've obviously got the engineers and Howard, but then you got people like Otto, who was Zex's assistant, and you actually get a little background on him. you got people like Walker, who was another one of Zex's subordinates. you got Alex and Mueller, who were just the assholes who deserved what they got. Sylvia Noventa, yeah. and even just something that struck me in my rewatch is when they're showing the Peace Million in the final few episodes, you get to see the crew along with Sally and Howard, and they look interesting. A lot of shows, they'll just skip on the background characters, but in Gundam Wing, every single background character looks like they got their own story to tell, and I do sort of wish we could have heard a bit more from the background characters, but I still think they mattered a lot more to the world than in a lot of other Gundam shows. What I didn't hmm. like, I think, yeah, I gotta, I gotta agree. They really did put too much effort into the organization of the arc. It did feel a bit like it was continuing, but yeah, I do think they really could have just focused on one opponent. Probably would have been better. Okay, so, bro. Well, it's. I have a remark about the overall arc of the show, uh, overall story in the show. I think it's a um, basically. I praise the story for being fast moving and a great introduction to Gundam as a whole. Um, it got most of us into Gundam in the first place, and it's a like I said, a, a fast-paced story that really doesn't you know doesn't really sit still for too long. Um, that's also it's a double-edged sword because like Amaro was saying, there's a lot of interesting characters in the show that don't really get fleshed out, so we don't get to know a lot about them unless you read supplemental material. So um, I'd have to say that's probably my downside. One other thing that I liked about the story was primarily a character in the show. Um, the magnificent bastard himself, Trey's. Anytime he was in the episode, he 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 um he took your attention. He was like the it character for me in the show. And um, anytime the storyline involved him, it had me had me hooked. But um, that's what I have to say. Um, anyone else? Neil. Well, I guess uh, probably the the part of the story that I like the most is actually kind of a tie. Um, it's the beginning when they're trying to take down the Earth Sphere Alliance, and then at the end when Trace is kind of doing the Lelouch thing, being the, you know the, uh, you know the the person to focus on to unite the world. But the part that I really didn't like was the Roma Fowler Duke Dermeo thing. Um, I don't know if it's just that I didn't like him as a character, uh, but. 
that part it just that was kind of the whole part of uh doing the you know the we had the queen relina thing in there and all this other stuff and it was just kind of like i don't know i, I it that was when it felt like the, the show really slowed down to me was when you kind of got him introduced because it's like you have Trey's and you have Zex and you have this the Sphere Alliance and then all of a sudden this is this underground guy that's just kinda you you know, what his, are his intentions just by getting power and I don't know. But those would probably be be my parts of the story that I, I liked and disliked. But Chris. One thing I wanted to add that I didn't mention earlier was um the development in the story of Zex and I say that because he's my favorite character in the show. Mm-hmm. And uh as Silbro mentioned, you know, the plot of the series kind of is like a Cliff Notes version of UC, and it's especially true with Zex's development because he kind of starts off as, you know, the Mobile Suit Gundam Char, where he's yeah. the rival to the main character. And then he kind of moves into the uh, Zeta Char for much of the series, and I really liked him at that point in the series. And then, unfortunately, in the end, they moved him to the Char's counterattack Char, where suddenly he decides to join up with White Fang, decides that the Earth is evil blah, 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 blah. And I really did not like the turn that his character took there. And it reels, it feels really forced because even with Char, that development of his character to that point occurs over the span of 14 years. Yeah. As with well. sex, it all happens in the span of one year. Yeah. It's lower and Char for you. I think, and, hey, I actually, hey, I got I to dispute that, but I'll, I'll, I'll save it. Go ahead. And I do like, uh, in the generally not-so-good wing manga, where Zex's motive there is totally different, and it's explained that, you know, he was just getting in with White Fang just to use them. Yes. And that's very clear there. In the series, it's very ambiguous, and, you know, you really don't get any indication of what his motive is. It's Actually, almost like it's I, almost I, like the uh, the, the I'm sorry, Irma, but it's just almost like the story writers are saying he needs to be with somebody, but we just don't know who to put him with, so we'll put him with uh, you know the White Fang. So it kind but, of feels that way because by that point there was nobody left. I mean, they took out Duke Mail, and there was like really nobody left to fill the shoes of of the final boss of the big bad. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I disagree because I honestly think he had the same motive motivation in anime and manga the only difference being that in the manga he open he opens up to hero and says yeah i'm faking it come on and help me in the anime they strongly imply it because there's scenes there's a scene where he's an epion he gets a secret message from trace and then later on there's the scene where they're confronting each other and he sort of smirks and says our actions don't reflect our true personalities do they trace and i think they really strongly implied that what he did in the manga trying to scare people away from war is exactly what he was doing in the anime it's just he was a better actor in the anime. Yeah. And I, don't, I don't know. I, really don't have, I think he was too convincing in the anime because there's yeah. really not, I mean, those indications, you don't really pick up on them too much. And it's not until suddenly the end, it's like he fights Hero and then suddenly he appears and he's like, ha ha ha, I'm going to live on. And then he destroys the, you know, the reactor of Libra. So maybe it was a little bit too subtle. And, and even though I've seen the show countless hey. times since then, I still have the same complaint. Yeah. Mm, I would I would kind of second that too. It was kind of weird why he went there, and I don't know. But the other thing with I think one of the other standout scenes with with the Zex is actually when he confronts the uh, the commander of the base when you know when Oz is doing the takeover of um, the Sphere Alliance, and you know the guy's looking for his handgun, and then sh- and then uh, Zex just you know shoots him in cold blood after you know revealing who he is, and I think that's kind of the point where he became the the Zeta Gundam Shar was that was kind of the beginning of it so but uh 
But I mean, he was probably he's probably the most. And then we, I mean, we got to say Trey's. I mean, even though the thing I don't like is that he does do the magical disappearance in the middle of the show, and um, you know, then he comes back. But he's one of my favorite characters in the show, along with Zex and and Duo. Um, do a Maxwell and um, you know mainly because Trace was just he was just so smooth and you know he kind of knew what was going on and he did what he had to do to you know get to the goals that he wanted to achieve so he was the Colt 45 of manipulators <laughs> <laughs> any other comments gentlemen about the, the show overall um you know I don't know much more we can say I mean it, it's probably uh, you know it's it's one of the most uh, popular shows out there when especially in the Gundam universe and I mean it it unfortunately it that's good and it's bad and it's good that people know about Gundam but and secondly people when they watch other Gundam they're expecting Gundam Wing and it might turn them off or whatever so but um, I mean how do you how do you avoid that pitfall with any Gundam series I mean they're all different so I mean if, if unless they adjust to the fact that every Gundam series is different in its own right they're always going to think one should be connected to the other. So, I mean, I still think Wing is a, a great series to introduce to someone. But if you introduce it to someone, you should let them know that the other Gundam series are, you know, tell their own stories. And, you know, they're all, they're, most of them are their own alternate universes. And that's what we didn't know way back in, you know, to, uh, 1998 when we were first introduced to it. And um, I think we're more educated now. And if I had to introduce a, a Gundam series to anyone outside of Mobile Suit Gundam, I would probably introduce something on the wing because it's easy to digest. Well, at that point, I think I have to honk on the horn of the Straight Talk Express. Go ahead. There you go. Something I wanted to take issue with. Uh, and I always try to separate a show from its fans. And sometimes it's oh. hard. You know, one of those oh, cases God. being Evangelion. Uh, so let's take a second to separate Gundam Wing from its fans. Obviously, oh, yeah. it was the first show for a lot of people. And... Um, even to this day, unfortunately, some people, they just kind of wear the nostalgia glasses yeah, and still make it out to be the best thing ever. And I don't think anything really is the best thing ever. But one of the things I encountered back when, you know, in like the first few years after Wing aired, is pe a lot of people basically were the attitude of, Wing is the best Gundam series I've seen. Right. It's like, okay, how many have you seen, Wing? <laughs> or, I'm serious, I I talk to people in in the flesh who have these these kinds of you know sentiments so it's not just something i'm pulling out of my ass or you know why do i need to watch those other shows wing is the best yeah that's you ignorance know. yeah i just don't you know whatever your opinion is of a show you don't go crapping on if it's part of a franchise don't go crapping on something that you haven't seen yet or say that it's the best out of x franchise if you haven't seen all of the parts of x franchise and that's something that always bothered me, you know, in those years after Wing aired, even when, you know, it got out that there were more Gundam shows coming and people educated themselves and they knew that there were more shows out there to watch. But, you know, they still just like, oh, Wing is the best. Why am I going to bother watching that other stuff? That's yeah, something that always bothered me. And it didn't impact my enjoyment of the show, but it's just something that annoyed me that people act that way. And it's something that happens with any franchise. It's just like how there's people these days who God only knows why who are like, young kids and they think the Star Wars prequels are better than the old movies. <laughs> do people like that exist? They do. I have met them. Uh, yeah, disgusting. they do. Well, they do. I, I just got a couple of things to add real quick. Um, first off, I and all my friends are of the opinion that Bandai made a dumb move by trying to follow Wing up with the Universal Century, just right off the yeah. bat, because it was yeah. too different. They, it, they just sort of slammed you into it. And if they had gone, our personal thought, if they had used Gundam X and then done that to transition to Universal Century, 
then at the very least, the decay of Gundam in America wouldn't have been so bad. Preach it. I, I agree a thousand percent. Yeah. And the other thing is that this might, I don't know if this is going to be controversial or not, but I don't think Gundam Wing has a lot of real fans. I say that because the people out there who drool over the fanboys, over the cute boys and all that, they're not fans of the show as far as I'm concerned. They don't care yeah. for the plot. They don't care for the, the actual the progress. They don't even care for the characters' real personalities. They just care for the fact that there are cute guys. Because if you and the yaoi and the yaoi ever, possibilities. If you ever <laughs> read any of their bad fanfics, they don't even use the, the characters' actual personalities. Oh. All they care for are the physical appearances. So they didn't wa- they didn't really get the show. They didn't try to. They just like the cute boys. So I don't consider any of those people to be Gunwing fans. The it's fans not are controversial, and and I agree completely because you can yeah, see it right now with the current crop of shows there are. Lots of girls out there, you know, Western fans who are watching Double uh, O, Frontier, Geass, oh, all these shows, not because they're fans of the Mecha franchise, but just because they're obsessed with, um, you know, pretty boy main characters, or they're, you know, as people have turned on the internet, shippers who are just obsessed with relationships, and yeah. something that even, it's the exact same thing as Wayne, just that that was eight years ago, but it's the exact same occurrence, and I agree completely. You know, there's a lot of people who, you know, they say they like these shows, but they don't care about the story, they don't care about the robots, they just care about, you know, romance or pretty boys. These are the people who write Yaoi fan fiction about real men, like Orlando Bloom. They're sad. (laughs) They're sad, pathetic people. Let's be honest. I, I, I guess they're trying to the, to um, maximize that market, and you're, you're right. You know, when these shows are said and done, if another sh- another Gundam show comes out that's completely different, they're not on board with it, especially if they don't have any kind of you know Bishonen characters, which is a shame because you know they're missing out on a great you know another great series. But um, I mean, is it is it unfair to you know see them that way because you know that's that's their nature, that's what they're um, geared to want to you know want to watch in a show, and I mean. It's almost it almost comes as expected with that audience. You know, if you don't provide the same exact thing in the next show, you know they're gonna jump ship. Well, I would say you know I'd have to say they're not really fans of a show if you know they're only interested in just one tiny aspect, yeah. to the exclusion of everything else. They're, they're fans of a trend. They're just fans of a trend, yes. And the trend, yeah. of course, is pretty boy main characters and casts. And if that's all you care about. There's a whole bunch of other crap out there that you can watch that does the same thing, but don't go calling yourself a fan of Gundam or whatever if all you care about is just pretty boys and nothing about character development or story development or you know war themes or the mecha combat or the music or any of that. You just care about pretty looking characters. You know, you can go watch Weiss Cruise or or you know any of the thousands <laughs> of other types of shows that are out there that are just bait for is that it- kind of uh, fan base. Is this the part where I point out rather ironically that Vice Cruz is written by Zex's voice actor? And, and yes, that is the part where you... Wow. Ironically. <laughs> yeah, the, the, man, the man is a writer. I don't know the quality. I've heard some comments, but he's a writer. <laughs> he's a nice guy, I though. I know that. Cool. And he's in a zillion different anime and probably the most prolific voice actor ever. I think he is. Well, my, my, my final kind of thought on this is, um, you know, Gundam Wing is a, is a good show. Uh, it's a very good show. Um, you know, it's, it is one of these things where you do kind of have to take it for where it is. Um, you know, but my, my last little comment I'm going to say here is that let's, 
end the double O comparisons, especially when the show hasn't even finished. Yes. But um, but the, the, just 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 my quick thing. Just, just stop, 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 uh, stop it, stop it. They're only aesthetically no, similar. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. Okay. No. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll shut up. And yeah. and you know I'm not gonna say this is not a knock on Soul Bro, but there's a lot of people out there, and and websites too. I won't name any names. Yeah. That are just Cost. hell bent on making this comparison of saying that uh, you know Double O is Gundam Wing 2.0 as it's a matter of fact. Like you can't dispute this when the surface. They're just surface similarities, and I see some people arguing yeah, so hard trying to say, yeah. oh, okay. Setsuna's hero and Marina is is Relina and and and, no. and Graham is no. X and you know this is that and that is it's like no they're totally different things. Yeah, it broke yeah. convention like after the you know the 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 second or third episode. So it, the the comparisons it are very shallow. And it, that's no, all. it broke it from the first. It episode. broke it from the first, first episode because a lot of people you know were chanting this whole Wing 2.0 stuff even before Double O started, yeah. and then as okay. soon as that first episode aired, it became clear that it was not, yet some people, you know, really felt the need to push that through, and still do, or there's those people who feel the need to say that it's Zeta 2.0 now in its second season, but that's a story for another segment. So Because the big problem that I have with it, and especially when re-watching Gundam Wing, is the, the problem in Gundam Wing is, and this might be my other my other. Uh, negative that I have on it. They preach about the horrors of war, but they never show it. Whereas in Double O, you see the impact of war on the populace, on the characters. Um, you know, you really don't even find too much out about some of the the pilots until Endless Walls, which yeah. we'll cover later. But <laughs> yes, Double O is not over with. It's a don't compare. They didn't from it didn't ha- it it's it's no comparison. The only thing is is it has a Gundam in the name. There yeah. you go. And mind and, you, you know, as a reviewer, you know, it's it's our job to make comparisons. So you know, we're not yeah. hypocrites here. There's nothing wrong with making valid comparisons, no. but when you have to force something to the point that it doesn't work, and Amaro can identify with this perfectly. He'll recall, you know, months ago in our uh, one of the Gia's discussion threads, there was some guy who was just going oh, so far out of his way to try to say <laughs> that Code Geass was the same as Dune. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. wow. And just I remember really, that. really, really, really trying to stretch every tiny little thing to yeah. say that Code Geass was heavily inspired by Dune. It's like, no, buddy, just just stop. It's, it's not. You're, Cause, you're yeah. not succeeding. Because the other thing is, is in Double O, Celestial Being, the, those pilots, they were a team from the beginning. The, the wing boys, they didn't even unite with each other till pretty much around, like, episode 40. I mean, the Gundam team didn't even come out till like, episode 45 or something like that. And they were still kind of lone wolves and doing their own type of thing. And so. here's, here's a stark difference between the two. And this is There's a very stark difference. I mean, here's an, I'm just saying, here's another a, a definite stark difference between the two that I've heard Neo talk about over and over and over. In Wing, the suits seemed invincible. In Double O, the suits aren't invincible. They're just more advantageous. Then you know they're a little bit more powered up. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're they're powered up. But eventually, there's a story arc. I mean, the the development of the show, um, the enemy gets better and stronger, and just you know makes light of those suits in Double O. Gundamian um, alloy was the strongest thing on oh, Earth yeah. until it, the mid season upgrade. Was until needed. it was convenient to trash the original suits in Wing, those suits were you know they were they were rolling strong almost the entire time. I would point out an so. even greater difference is you know just the basic mission of. You know, the sets of Gundams in that Wing, too. you know, they're 
not fighting to change the world. They're fighting uh, first revenge. to just get revenge for the assassination of Hiro Yui and, you know, just to take down Oz, which was responsible for that. Whereas in Double O, Celestial Being has the goal of changing the world and stopping war. So, you know, yeah, they kind of basically are very loosely like, you know, a guerrilla battle of a couple of Gundams against a very large global organization. But that's where the difference ends. That's where the, I mean, yeah. that's, where, that's where the similarity ends. So that's just the loosest of loose similarities that people are just really trying to reach to get, you know, comparisons out of. If there's, and, and I'll say this, if there's a valid comparison, you make it, but when you have to, you know, stretch things around so much to try yeah. to come one thing to another, then you know that's that's where you're you're just wasting your time. Yeah, that's why the comparisons are shallow at best. So, well, just saying that one show is X plus Y cheapens everything involved by saying that you know, like Code Geass is Death Note plus Gundam Seed. It, it just cheapens the show <laughs> by reducing it to, you know, just a pale copy of what you're saying it's the source of and. You know, saying that Double O is a copy of Wing is really insulting because, I'll be honest, the first season of Double O sort of didn't get me, but I'm really getting to the second season, and it really deserves to be recognized for its own merits and qualities. There are, there are some character similarities, the most obvious being the protagonist being a, a kid who was raised on the battlefield. But, you know, you can't just say, you know, one-to-one, -one, lock on his duo, grand sex. You can't say that. No. Yeah. <laughs> and even the whole kid kid soldier mecha pilot that's not something original to wing that's been featured yeah you know oh, of course not. lots of other shows so you know it's, it's not just like... it's just gundam wing is the obvious comparison because number one it's gundam and number well, two that, there are hmm. the vague similar elements like the uh, secret organization sending gundams to fight the earth, the earth military and, and they're from, all good-looking guys. Too. Well, yeah, and from there, people start trying to yeah. fit more comparisons into this into the molds that don't fit. Yeah. You know, you can't you can't hammer the round peg that is grammed through the square hole that is Zex. Yeah. <laughs> that just you I mean, just created a really bad image for some for some uh, yellow. Oh, it, it already existed. Okay. Yeah. It's oh. like yeah, they're blonde. They wear masks, but that's it. Okay, I think I think the straight talk express is pulling out of the, the bus station after that comment. Yeah. So oh, I think we'll uh, wrap it up here and uh, tune in next time on Gundam Roundup, where we'll be taking a look at Mobile Suit Gundam, the eighth MS team. So oh, with that, uh, we're wrapping up this segment, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Gundam at MAHQ. You are now inside the gun. You step outside the gun, and without my permission, you will be shot. Ricky Hunter, you're late, but at least you made it to my party. Rick, how have you been? Glad I could come. Well, well, who do we have here? Wait just a minute. Huh? Who are you? Ben here has just been assigned to me. I'm Corporal Ben Dixon, ma'am. Well, what's up? Nice to meet you. This is Corporal Max Sterling. How do you do? Call me Max, ma'am. You're pretty good-looking. Oh, that was a very nice compliment, ma'am. I'm just honored to meet a beautiful girl like you. Well, welcome huh? to my birthday party, Max. Yeah. I want you to come over here and sit next to me, all okay. right? Okay. Listen, Rick, if it were me, I'd keep an eye on him. Oh, brother. Danger! Attention! This is an emergency! All Veritech group members scramble! All Veritech group members scramble immediately! Emergency! Emergency! Oh no, you're going? Sorry. Yeah. What can you do? It's the army. Taxi! Hey! Taxi! 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 Ta
see. Come on, you guys, let's get going. Hey, I can't take all you guys. You gotta take us, pal. This is an emergency. She anything to you like your girlfriend? What kind of question is that to ask me to find like this, Ben? You okay, Max? I think I'm just a little tense. Don't worry about a thing. You know nothing can go wrong while I'm around. Now I'm really worried about this flight. <laughs> This is Gunside 1. Black Squadron confirms to a counterattack in the 4th Quadrant. Roger! Corporal Sterling and Dixon, follow me. Roger! Roger! What area are we supposed to defend? We're all on the defense line, 4th Quadrant. But that's way at the end. All the really heavy action's happening over there. Can we get into some of that? What can you possibly have in mind? We've been given orders, so follow them. Fire 102, enemy coming in off your right wing tip. I'll fly rings around him, eh? Watch me show these guys up. Nixon, don't play around, you got me? Boss, I'm in trouble. Help me or I'm a gunner for sure. Stop it, Ben. You'll get yourself killed doing that. Now I gotta see. Watch out. Here it comes. Sure was a big fat mess you got me out of. Hey, is that Max? Look at him go. Max, you tore him up. I'm happy I was able to help out. It's unbelievable. Lieutenant Hunter. Huh? Bad defensive maneuvers. Your response time will have to improve immediately. Hey, I've got a couple of completely inexperienced pilots here. I can't perform and babysit at the same time. I never even saw him. He destroyed a whole section of the fighter. Boy, I'm glad the repairs don't come out of my pocket. Max, you did pretty well. Yep, it was luck, though. They said I put away nine. Nine? My total was zero. Well, what a hotshot Max has become. I'll say. About how many did you blast? About five. Oh, I'm sorry, I mentioned it. You probably feel bad that Max beat you out. Oh, I don't know, I, uh... I was pretty good. Huh? I imagine it's possible they might even promote me. Some jump. Corporal to General after one battle. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. I have the only gun Damn. on board. Welcome to Con Air. Welcome back, everybody, to uh, Gundam at MHQ, and this is um, going to be the final run of the Macross Frontier uh, reviews <laughs> that we've had. And we know it's been kind of a long, strange trip, and uh, we were hoping to get these done a lot sooner, but um, unfortunately, things happen, and just have to go through the next six episodes here. We're going to go from episodes 20 to 25, and with that, we're just going to jump into episode 20, which is uh, entitled... Uh, Diamond Crevasse. We pretty much begin where we ended a previous episode with Alto and Cheryl talking up on the rooftop while watching uh, Ronka's uh, little concert there. And then we see Ronka running up and sees them together. And then, she, of course, she runs away. And then at the same time, we see that sniper. And then Avajra comes and appears and uh, kills him. Next thing we know, down where the concert is being held, we just see Vajra going around attacking everybody and uh, Howard's limo speeds away of course he wasn't shot because the sniper was killed and at the same time we see that Kathy and Ozma are in Leon's office and a bunch of armed soldiers come in and take him over and arrest them then we see Leon getting a phone call thinking that it's going to be you know the, the deed is done Howard's dead but it's actually Howard himself 
Uh, at the same time, we see Ozma and Kathy try to go against the soldiers, and somehow they overpower them and, and escape the office. And at the same time there, uh, a lot of things going on in this episode all at once. Alto's uh, using his pistol to uh, you know, take, take out the Bajra and protect Cheryl and Rocket, and he's telling her that Rocket needs to sing, but she just keeps becoming a little crybaby, and so she can't sing. And then finally, she is able to muster up some energy. She goes to the rooftop, and she starts singing IMO again. And then she's just talking about how her heart is hurting. And this time, we see that the singing's doing something it hadn't done before. It's actually making the Vajra a lot more violent. Ozma's commenting to Kathy that this was reminiscent of the attack 11 years ago on the 117th Research Fleet. And we see that out in space, a Vajra fleet defolds. And then we see the Macross Quarter fire its cannon. And then we just see some two nuns' warships go down. Later on, we see that there's a tunnel connecting Island 1 to Battle Frontier. And Leon and a lot of his cronies are down there waiting for uh, Howard. And Howard tells him to transfer all the governmental authority to Battle Frontier. Leon asks Howard to leave everything to him. And then suddenly, all Howard and his bodyguards are gunned down by uh, Creepy Leon and his boys. So... We see that Alto and the others finally reach the SMS base, and it's pretty much been just ripped apart. And then Michael kind of freaks out a little bit when he sees uh, one of the dead female employee of SMS, Solbro's boy Luca, oh, yeah. uh, discovers that there's some Valkyrie weapons and X-Gear still available, so they get those. At the same time, Ozma and Kathy are going through that secret tunnel, and she, you know Ozma's like wondering what this is all about, and she tells him that it's for the president and VIPs, and then uh, we have the pineapple salad in here. As at the end of the tunnel, Kathy sees her father and his bodyguard just, you know, just blown away. Ouch. So, very emotional moment at that point where she just basically breaks down. Later on, we see that Alto and Michael are in their X-Gears and they're taking out the Vajra that are trying to attack them in the base. And we get a little fan service because we could see Karan take off her clothes because she's going to go into my clone chamber and get big again. She once again asks Michael where his heart is and he says something stupid like it's missing in action. Then she calls him a coward and then punches him and then kisses him. And then she finally admits her love to him. And then she goes into the Mike Clone chamber. Alto and Michael are fighting off just tons of Ajra so they can protect Karam while she's in the chamber. We see that she's beginning to be returned to Zentradi size in the chamber. And then Michael has a little exchange with Alto saying, would he give his life for somebody he really cared about? And then just then some more Vajra break in the room and start attacking her Michael chamber on like the other side. Michael takes off in his X-Gears, attacks him. And, you know, Kron wakes up, sees Michael protecting her. She's all happy. But unfortunately, another Vajra comes in and impales him through the chest. Damn. And then when he's trying to attack, it's trying to attack Karan. But Michael slams into it and then just puts his machine gun right up in the chest and is just pumping in rounds. And then the Vajra blows up. There's a hole breach. And poor Michael goes out like a mother and child. Mm. Sucked, out <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> sucked out the side there. And just as Alto's trying to grab for him, that sealant stuff goes in there and he's unable to get to him. The end of episode 20 thoughts guys besides there's two pineapple saladings <laughs> well michael went out guns blazing like pacino yeah. <laughs> but man that was a shock that was a t that was that was out of the blue man i i couldn't really i did, I, I, I knew there were two pineapple saladings coming and i know the president was <laughs> one of them but i didn't know it was michael and i'm watching this episode it's like oh man it's gonna be so and so i thought it was actually gonna be um i forget her name um canaria I so thought it was going to be her, right, watching really? it. And then M M Michael gets impaled. It's like, oh, my God. 
I was like, damn, these kids haven't got touched yet. And then next thing you know, he gets killed. I and not just thought... impaled, but then sucked into space, oh, completely exposed. Yeah, yeah. Double, double duty right there, man. Yeah. And, and just, it was, it was, it was shocking. It was, it was very Macross-esque. Because I, I remember when, um, when Ben died, and, oh, sorry, I can't shake these Kak- names. Kak- Thank you so much. Kagazaki dies in Macross. <laughs> um, that was out of the blue, especially in Do You Remember Love? But you kind of knew it was coming, but it was still out of the blue. This was the same way, and it was it was shocking to sh- see. But I mean, overall, I thought it was an awesome episode. Well, definitely uh, quite a shocker because I didn't expect Michael to be the one to die. If anything, I would have thought it'd be, you know, Soul Bros boy Luca Angeloni. Yeah, since he's the uh, sort of useless wuss. Yeah, but and, those guys survive, as we're seeing with rivals. And and Michael is the uh, you know the the playboy who pilots the blue mecha like Max. Yeah, yeah. but that didn't do him any good. No. Wasn't quite a genius. <laughs> Not at all. Because if he was a genius, then he would have known from the beginning what he should have done is jumped into the Myclone chamber and made himself Zentradi size so he could hook up with Cran. Yeah, pretty much. He didn't do that because he was an idiot. So he definitely was not a genius. And if you're not a genius, then uh, I guess you're doomed to die. But um, You have to turn in those colors. Yeah. It was good to see sort of the resolution, you know, that's been in this whole series up to now, the little subplot of how, you know, she is in love with him and is trying to get him to admit his feelings. But every time she brings the issue, he always tries to, like, artfully dodge. Yeah. Even up to this point at the very end. And it's only finally when right when he's about to die that he's able to admit that he loves her, too. Um, You know, it's a shame that... uh, Howard had to get pineapple saladed because we see all along, you know, usually politicians in, uh, in anime, they're, they're dweebs or, or they're evil. Mm-hmm. But uh, he was a good guy, and, you know, his whole thing all along was, you know, just protecting the civilians and trying to find a world to colonize. And, uh, you know, he got betrayed and never even suspected it. Yeah. Yeah, that was the thing that I do have to say about Howard. I, you know, he, he is one of those, um, like you said earlier, a lot of these politicians are kind of evil or, or kind of useless. And, you know, he did not seem that way or any way at all. But I don't know. I guess I was the only person that wasn't too surprised that Michael got killed. Really? I, yeah, because once, the, um, once we had the, the tradition broken with Skull Leader there, mm-hmm. I knew that one of those guys were going to go. Damn. And I... Th- Luca's your boy, so yeah. he falls in the, the, the realm of rivals and Cyarg Isle and stuff. There's <laughs> these guys that just somehow make it out of these things. So, you know, the the uh, the, the La Cucarachas of anime. <laughs> Damn. So But to wrap up the you know the yeah. whole thing about Howard, it's definitely also uh, an emotional scene when uh, when Kathy discovers his body there and he's all pumped up with lead and, and yeah. you know, she just collapses in tears. Jeez. I mean that was that was execution style too. It wasn't just one of these things where like he got shot in the heart or shot in the head. I mean they just out and out gunned all those guys down. Also, this is sort of like uh, you know where the Oosh. hits the fan because aside from all of these deaths, you know you have the Vajra just wrecking everything mm-hmm. inside the the city, and you see how fearsome they can be. Like you know the whole thing with that sniper, that Vajra basically tore him in half. Yeah, yeah. And and like you know the the bloody half falls like next to some schoolgirl, and she like freaks the hell out. <laughs> like, damn. That other soldier that got crushed in like the li- like the um the claws of another one. Yeah. Uh, I oh. hate to I hate to say this, but it was kind of reminiscent of uh, the first Starship Troopers movie. Yeah. That's what it kind of reminded me of a little bit, except it's better. But um, <laughs> well. <laughs> 
It just, doesn't just, taste just, better than the first Starship Troopers movie. Just just the violence factor. It's like, yeah. it's like that was what it really reminded me of. It's like Paul Verhoeven stepped into the studio, <laughs> directed this episode. No, let's not say that, but uh, <laughs> any, pretty much, uh, pretty much, I think this is you know the episode where you know you get you finally get to the point where you know the status quo is changing, and this is yeah. basically the beginning of the end. Yeah, yeah. the third, the, the beginning of the third arc. I guess that would bring us to twenty-one. And, and that episode is Blue Ether. In this episode, his creepiness, Leon, arrives on board the bridge of the Battle Frontier and breaks it to Captain Perry that President Howard was killed during the ongoing Vodger invasion. Ever the regulator, Leon pulls rank, stating that in the wake of Howard's death, he is now the head honcho of Macross Frontier. Perry unwillingly follows suit while Leon revels in his rise to power. Elsewhere, Ozma and Kathy find their route to the battle frontier cut off as the superdimensional fortress engages in emergency separation from the rest of the colony. Mourning the loss of Michael, the now supersized and sexy clan gets her scorn on and cuts a path through the swarming Vajra. Alto, Ronka, and Luca take advantage of this and jet back to base. The crew of the Macross Frontier find themselves in a pinch, but are suddenly saved by the arrival of the battle frontier. Shortly afterward, Leon receives word that Luca has a plan to destroy the Vajra inside Frontier. Back on the Frontier Island 3, Clan fends off the swarm outside the base while inside, Luca reveals his plan to Alto and Ronka. Using Ronka's song, he alludes to using her to bait the Vajra into Island 3 and then destroying them along with the entire island with a deadly foal bomb, aptly named Little Girl. Alto is none too pleased with the crazy plan, but Luca reminds him that it has been a battle of survival of the fittest from the start, not to mention Michael's tragic sacrifice. Ronka breaks the stalemate between the boys when she mournfully agrees to sing in the operation. Measures are taken to, to evacuate the mostly Zentradi population of Island 3, while Alto and Ronka get into position for the counterattack. He encourages her to do her best and promises not to let the Vajra harm her before launching in his Valkyrie. Bera suddenly appears, telling Ronka that she doesn't have to sing if she doesn't wish to. She cries for a moment in his arms, but then is hit with newfound courage. Now having the strength to go through with it. Ronka's motivation? Her unsung affection for Alto. Ronka begins her song, and with the quickness, the Vajra comes swarming to Island 3 alleviating the chaos happening all over Frontier. As Island 3 is purged from the rest of the Frontier, Alto, Luca, Ronka, and Brera escape in their Valkyries. Without further ado, Little Girl is detonated, taking the island and the Vajra inside with it. Ronka, with pain in her stomach and seated in the back seat of Alto's Valkyrie, apologizes, but in return, Alto commends her performance and thanks her for putting her life at risk. Later, everyone mourns the loss of loved ones and comrades. Announcing the president's death, Leon delivers a speech at a mass funeral, of those who died in the recent conflict. Mentioning to Ronka that her brother Ozma is missing, Leon puts her on the spot at the funeral when asking her to sing in front of the attendees and the press. Elsewhere, Leon's G-men are on the hunt for Ozma and Kathy at his digs. Wrought with grief, Ronka declines Leon's coaxing and tells all of Frontier that she will not sing anymore. Flash forward to that evening, Ronka is running alone through the forest in despair and questioning why her singing affects the Vajra. Suddenly, she is reunited with her old pokey friend, Ikun, who is, who's grown almost as big as she is. Just as she celebrates Icoon's return, her old pet undergoes a transformation. Alto receives a phone call from Ronka at God knows when in the morning <laughs> and rushes off to meet with her at Griffith Park. He is somewhat relieved to see her cheery and asks him to show her how to make paper airplanes. They do so, and Alto explains that his mother had a fondness for the sky and wanted to see a real skyline before she passed, which in turn inspired him into flight. Ronka, with her newly made paper plane, launches the craft into the air with Alto's blessing. Much to Alto's horror, the plane returns and is not alone. Just as Ronka asks Alto to leave Frontier with her, a young Vajra floats towards them with the plane in tow. 
Alto springs to his feet, about to bust a cap, until Ronka quickly obscures his aim, pleading with him not to fire. Despite it being an innocent creature, Alto counters that it's a dog-eat-dog world, and for them to survive, the Vajra must go. Before he can fire, Spinzaku, I mean, Brera, knocks the gun out of his hand, and Alto to the ground after dashing in and out of nowhere. Thanks to his intervention, Ronka explains that she is slowly regaining her memory, and her intuitions are driving her now. She wishes to return the recently evolved Icon to where he belongs and tells Alto that she's leaving, much to his chagrin. On cue, Brera's Lucifer arrives on autopilot. Ronka gives Alto a bittersweet goodbye before she, Icon, and Brera leave. Even more so impacting was her admission of love for him right before they blast off. Other characters, like the missing Ozma and Kathy, spot their departure as a purple streak of light in the artificial night sky. Alto screams her name in futility and despair as the VF-27 Lucifer escapes through an airlock to destinations unknown. What's your guys' thoughts? Once again, you get to see the, um, you know, the, kind of the consequences of everything. We get to see the, um, the funerals and that creepy Leon is really trying to um, show that he had nothing, you know, that this whole thing with Howard was definitely with the Vajra, but of course, Sozma and Kathy, you know, uh, otherwise, um, you know, we get the whole... Um, Ronka, I gotta leave and do what I gotta do type of thing. Um, you know, probably the, the the one of the one of the things that was probably the biggest thing was uh, seeing uh, uh, Karan in there. You know, just crying her eyes out because uh, Michael's got killed. But um, yeah. you know, it was a pretty good episode. Um, I don't. <clears throat> it, it 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 was kind of kind of a letdown to me to an extent from the previous episode. Uh, especially when I thought that things were just going to, you know, it was going to kind of be like a nonstop thing. But, um, you know, I, I can kind of see the point of it. But um, that's about it here. Chris? I thought it was a pretty good continuation from uh, where we left off. One of the things that uh, is most interesting about this episode is when you see uh, Kron in, in combat because it's pretty rare in Macross that you see a Zentradi person exhibiting so much rage. Yeah. And uh, I think it's great that she's flying around using... Uh, Valkyrie super parts as sort of like a like a Zentradi X gear, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, she is just like she's just on the freaking warpath and is just mowing through this Vajra with just like the freaking rage of the heavens. Yeah, she's almost like a Valkyrie herself. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much, and uh, you know, overall, I think it just sets up more for uh, you know the end of this show. You know, the whole thing with. Uh, Ranka, of course, confessing her feelings to um, Alto and then flying off with uh, Brera so she can go take uh, Icoon back to his other Poke friends. <laughs> anything, else, anything to add? Uh, pretty much it was a half and half episode. You had the resolution of the whole conflict and then you had the downtime where you know, everything's falling into place for um, the, the finale of the, of the show and um, I was glad that Bronca finally got out what she had to say. It just sucked that she had to leave. And, of course, you know, Alta wasn't going with her. But at least I had that last moment together. She just, just didn't break out of town without, you know, talking to him one more time. But um, you can de- definitely see that Alta's still hurting from the whole, um, the whole exchange with what happened with, you know, Michael. And, you know, he doesn't see the Vajra in much of a good light, <laughs> even, if it, even if it was Icon that he was trying to shoot. But for the most part, it was a solid episode. I mean, not the best one, but I, I thought it was. I liked I liked the the character introspectives in this episode, and I thought it was very good. Cool. Well, I guess that takes us to episode twenty-two, Northern Cross. 
picks up with creepy Leon speaking with Grace over the phone, and she's kind of expressing her surprise about Brera running off and disobeying orders, and she's kind of not seriously thanking him for taking in her and the galaxy people and sort of thinking to herself that Leon should enjoy sitting in that chair while he has the opportunity. And then Leon, he gets reports saying that given the current conditions and how damaged the fleet is, they only have about three more months to sustain themselves. And after that, they're pretty much done. Then we got Alto and Luca. They're using these new upgraded VF-171EX Nightmare Plus Valkyries, which basically is just regular VF-171 painted a new color and with more weapons and armor. Nothing fancy, but it does pack an MDE warhead, which, as Luca explains, uses fold ore particles extracted from Vajra corpses. So basically, these are sort of upgraded anti-Vajra units. Alto asks him about Nanase, and of course her condition is still the same. She's still uh, injured and in the hospital. And uh, Lucas goes into emo modes asking, you know, how are they going to tell her that Ranka betrayed humanity? And Alto snappily replies, well, we'll just have to get her back before Nanase wakes up. Damn right. On TV, you see Cheryl doing a smaller concert, and surprisingly, she's working with Elmo now. So Same. she's definitely scaled back, and, and she's gone small stage. Yeah. Ozma and Kathy, they've been hiding out from Leon's G-Men. Then Bobby runs into them, and he's happy to see them. And Cheryl gets a visit from a G-Man herself who wants to take her to Creepy Leon. And then you've got Kron talking with Alto, and she tells him that she and Michael, they weren't able to be honest with each other about their feelings and couldn't take that step forward. And she hopes that the same thing doesn't happen with him and Cheryl. And, of course, Alto's completely clueless. You got Ozma and Kathy, they go back to the quarter and they basically tell Jeffrey and the rest of the crew the skinny on all of the dirty things that Leon did and him being responsible for Howard's assassination. Canaria gives Ozma a letter from Ranka stating that she was leaving the ship to go take Icoon back to the other Pokemon. <laughs> and then Jeffrey tells everyone that he's gotten a message from Birla stating that SMS is going to be disbanded and integrated into nuns, which obviously is quite the shocker. Over at Creepy Leon's office, Luca tells Cheryl that, you know, obviously she's a carrier for the V-type infection, and if it's found early, it can be treated. However, in her case... It's too late, and the infection has reached her brain, and it's producing a toxin that's going to kill her. However, because she's at this point, her voice produces the same fold waves that Ranka does, although it's a lot weaker, and luckily the fold quartz earring that she has sort of amplifies it a little bit. So uh, basically, Leon asks her to sing for the sake of humanity, and she goes back to the Sao Tome mansion and collapses when she sees Alto. You got Kathy and Ozma discussing what they should be doing, and he's basically of the mind that they need to find out who their real enemies are before they can continue. So you get messages sent to all of the SMS crew on their cell phones. Alto's talking to Cheryl after she wakes up, and she tells him that even though she vowed to quit singing, all she has are her songs. He tells her that she shouldn't force herself to sing, but she says she has to because it's the only proof she has that she ever lived. And out in deep space, you've got Ranka and Brera looking for the Vajra homeworld. Leon gives his inauguration speech as the fifth president of Frontier, basically just typical political garbage. Mm -hmm. uh, he sends some of his G-men to kill Grace, but it doesn't quite work out that way. And over on the quarter, most of the crew return to the ship, and Jeffrey announces that they're going to become pirates now. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, the ship fires up its systems and disconnects from port and leaves the dock. Alto and Luca show up and tell them to return, 
and they don't, which leads to a battle. And you've got Ozma nearly killing Luca until Alto steps in. Yeah. And you got the two of them bickering. And the great exchange where Alto asks if this is how adults are supposed to act. And Ozma declares, he's not an adult. He's a man. <laughs> Much to Bobby's uh, liking there. Yeah. And basically tells Alto that he's just reacting off emotions and... You know, he needs to find the reason that he flies and that he fights. The quarter escapes and folds away. And out way, way, way in deep space, you've got Brera and Alto. They, they locate the Vajra homeworld. And, of course, Grace knows this, and she suits up in a pilot suit, and she's kind of filling up her boobies there for whatever strange reason, but that's what she does. And, therefore, that is the end. Comments, gentlemen? Feeling the, feeling the boobies. That's how you end an episode right there. That's how every episode of everything should be ended. <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> but, Neil, what, you were going to say um, I was just going to say uh, I, I was waiting for the old uh, mecha anime staple of the old flip, the flip of allegiance, and I was, you know, basically... Um, happy when i saw this especially with uh, the way that jeffrey looks with that the old kind of uh mezumoto kind of look there as the captain i was like the, the, the grizzled wizened captain yeah with the you know the big the big trench coat with the Ew. oversized uh, collar and you know the the, the scruffy hair and the, and the, the hat kind of perched to a different side to cover like one side of his face or his eyes a little bit but um yeah definitely a good episode one of those ones where we we see that um you know alto in kind of his just kind of dim-witted state it's really shown in this one where um you know he's really kind of just not understanding what the situation is he, he i think he thinks he does but he's really not seeing the big picture especially um between the altercation with him and uh, Ozma when they're you know when they're making the break there on the uh, on the quarter but um um good also, a nice thing with um, seeing a lot of Cheryl there, especially with her now kind of sucking it up and realizing what is, um, you know, also realizing what's important. And it's funny that she realizes it even before uh, Alto does. But I guess that's the other mecha oh, anime staple. Is uh, it's just it's just that dense. And I I forgot to mention that you know this episode you also have um, basically all the cards being laid out on the table of also knowing about Cheryl's condition, that she doesn't have much time left, and that he pretty much declares that he'll stay with her till the end. Yeah. It's a pretty important development for him, but even then he's still really dense. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's not as dense as other characters in other shows, but he, he's, he ranks up there pretty high. But, um, I mean, he does. He's digging himself in a hole, though, because, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, there's also the, there's all the situation of Ronka, but I, I guess since... Um, I guess since Cheryl is terminal, it makes it a little easier for him. But I, I, I mean, not that he looks at it that way. But I mean, I guess it makes you know his decision on who he would pick easier. Well, he's still got more of a he's still got more of attraction, I think, to her, anyways. Because I mean, who she's, not, she's not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she's not a kid. Yeah. And you know, Rock has still got that kind of little sister vibe. Little, yeah, and the and the little you know the 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 crushing. You know, it's more. It's yeah. still more of like just a big crushing. Although, although she did come out. Like wholeheartedly the previous up, so I mean that gives her yeah, a little bit more still, validity. She, she's still a teenager, and yeah, not yeah. that not that Alto's much older, but you know hers is like that teenage girl's crush versus yeah, very no, true. Versus general genuine feelings versus that Cheryl the, has versus the galactic nymph the galactic nymph's um, sexual appeal. I understand. I understand. Oh, yeah, I mean Cheryl let's... Cheryl has hope and dreams as yeah. as she's profess while fondling her own boobies so. and, right. and she's she's a much better dresser than Rocco 
because uh, you know she can arrest me any day in that little uh, that little military outfit. But um, okay, but, uh, yeah. That, on that on that note, on that, that note. creepy note. Um, I guess that's gonna. Anything else on episode twenty-two? No, I'm good. I think we said it all. Cool. <laughs> I uh, think I don't think there is much you can say after that. <laughs> Yeah, that that that's gonna make the uh, the forums definitely. It sure will. Uh, I'll I'll overtake uh, the Emma thing. Thank God. Just <laughs> at least mine's not as bad though. But uh, Me- Neo yeah. and, and and his and his uh, bondage fetish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, SMM never hurt anybody, right? But uh, okay. But uh, I guess uh, that brings us to episode uh, twenty-three. True begin. Uh, and a great episode title. Um, <laughs> way to go. Uh, but uh, it actually shows us we're back in uh, 2048, and we see Rancha, and she's uh, arguing with Grace. I guess that's Ranka's mother, and you see her children, uh, Ranka and Brer, watching. And Rancha's disagreeing that sacrificing the Vajra is important, and uh, Grace is telling her that, you know, with her implant network technology and the Vajra zero-time full communication, it's going to change the way things are in the world. We fast forward to the future here, and we see that Creepy Leon's with some of the officials discussing the fleet situation. They've actually had to get rid of two of the islands because they were damaged beyond repair. And the environmental balance of all the islands and the fleet in general is really at a critical level because they're showing on Island 3, they're actually having the citizens carry oxygen masks because of the uh, pressures going down. We see that Cheryl and Alto are eating dinner together, and Cheryl just starts drinking nonstop and is complimenting Alto on his cooking. And she later on lies down on the couch and <laughs> signals Alto to carry her to bed, <laughs> which is actually a pretty funny scene. And as he's carrying her, she asks him to stay with her forever, and he says he will. And uh, then we see Ronka and Brera. You know, Ronka's thanking uh, Brera for coming with him, and he's asking her why he's doing it. And he says he has no memories of anything in it, that he's doing it because he's ordered to. And then she asks him again why he knows IMO, and he says that's pretty much the only memory that he's got. At the same time, a large Vajra fleet defaults in front of them. Brera flies in closer, and Ronka starts singing again, and the force comes after them. And then we go into deep space, and we see a, a nun's pilot is actually picking up Ronka's full wave in a recon BF-171. And the Macross Quarter is actually picking up the waves, too. Later on, we see that Alta is beating with Leon and Brilla. And Brilla especially is telling him that he's got great faith in him in the upcoming battle. Alto asks him what the purpose of the battle is, is to obtain the full Kritzel. And Creepy Leon then says that they've got to survive by eliminating the Vajra. And he's saying that the Vajra plan to destroy humanity by using Ranka. Leon uh, then tells Alto that humans think with their brains. And if another life form does the same thing, they can understand each other. But since the Vajra have no brains, you know, they just need to be exterminated. Uh, there's going to be no way of actually... Uh, reasoning with them. We see that Brera and Raka are uh, preparing to fight the Fajra fleet, and Brera's saying that he's going to protect her at, at the cost of his own life, and she wants him to stop fighting, and then she gets out of the cockpit, and she speaks to little Icoon there. Then she's grabbed with his tail, and then they fly off. Suddenly we see some attacking Red Vajra destroyed by Grace's VF-27, and she's telling Brera that turning off his tracer won't cut their connection, and then she starts making fun of him, saying if it was fun to be with his sister, and then she takes control over him. Later on, we see Ronzo and Yasubara at the hospital, and Alto is commenting to Yasubara about how small and frail Ronzo looks. Once again, Yasubara is asking him to come home, and Alto says that he can't because he's a pilot, 
and Yasubiro asks him if fighting and killing is what he wants, and he says that Alto is fighting based on the current events, and if, would he have become a pilot if there wasn't any enemy? Once again, that guy is just, you know, nice nuggets of uh, insight there. Rock is held on the surface of the Vajra homeworld, and she recalls seeing her family with Vajra flying overhead. A lot of her memories are starting to come together. She sees the crash landing of the global, as well as a younger Barrera shoving her into a skate pod. Back at the hospital, Karan's asking Alto what he's going to do, and he asks her why she joined the SMS. She said because it's in her clan's tradition, being in the military. Alto then says that when he met Rock, that led him to join SMS so he could protect her. And at the same time, Cheryl's over here and everything. Alta says that Rock has become a tool of the Vajra, and he'll, he'll kill her if he have to. And Akron then says if that's his love to Rock, and of course he agrees, and Cheryl cries, and, you know, she's, you know, because she heard that, and she always kind of pretty much knew that that was his thing. And finally, we get to see Creepy Leon's getting a scouting report on the Vajra homeworld, and announces that the fleet's going to perform an emergency 30-year light-year full to the Vajra homeworld. And at the end, we see Cheryl with a paper airplane throwing it up in the air, and it just completely falls to the ground as soon as she throws it. So that's the end. Thoughts, guys? Episode 23. Well, um, I'll, I'll go first. Um, it, it was, it was, it was, it was pretty, pretty compelling. I mean, a lot of things happening. Um, gosh, for the most part, it was you start to get more insight on um, Ronka because of it. But at the same time, you know, you can still see have a sense of things building up in this episode. You know leading towards the, the the finale but um i can't really say much i mean it was it was one of those it's one of those build-up episodes well, it's it's one of these origin stories that's all up your alley man you don't have anything more to say about it well, you I always want to know more stories. and more about people <laughs> but i do love i do like origin stories and uh, and and more insight to characters and and it was it was it was cool to see you know a bit more about you know finally had the mystery unravel but i mean even more so unravels next episode so it's just you know just adding adding more to the plot finally. But Chris, any any thoughts? We think they're delicious. <laughs> I bet they're even better in the future. <laughs> Probably, but um, hmm. <laughs> one of you the got, <laughs> you got something in your teeth there or something? Yeah, kind of. We only have um, two more. We got two more after this, so. Just... It was good to see uh, you know the flashback with uh, you know Rancha and and her disagreement with Grace and. You know, finally, the the confirmation of the secret that was not a secret to anybody. Yeah. That Rara was Ranka's brother. Yeah. You know, a secret to nobody except the two of them. Pretty much, yeah. And uh, one thing, one very brief moment that I think really sort of establishes, um, you know, the precarious situation the fleet is in. Those those few scenes where you see everybody walking around through the wrecked city, yeah. wearing gas masks now. Yeah. Yeah. And even though it only lasts a few seconds, it just really sort of hits you like and just really depressing music playing just really just changes the whole mood of everything and you see um, you know, how bad things are and it sort of really sets it up in a way that, you know, you never saw say the Macross 7 fleet in this kind of desperation. No. This not at all. And um nice Macross reference when uh, one of the pilots asks Alto if he's uh going out with with uh Cheryl and Alto says, oh, don't you know about the Valkyrie pilot's curse? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. And pretty much just lays out exactly, you know, that if you, get, if you tease someone about a woman while piloting a Valkyrie, you'll get shot down. Yeah. <laughs> a very obvious nod to Kakazaki in, in Daryl. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> since, since that's exactly what happened. Yeah. 
You almost, uh, and, and then they and then they tease you with uh, with that guy screaming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just like a moment later, and of course, you know, nothing happens. He's 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 freaked out because he sees Cheryl on the deck. But um, it is kind of funny. Yeah, waving to Alta. That was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, that that like you said, the um, seeing the situation with the citizens was the striking one. The other ones for me would be just um, you know the whole Cheryl and Alto having dinner. You know, once yeah. again, Mister uh, Mister Dents there just can't. You know, he he he's doing the right things, but he just is not closing the deal there. I know he could have taken that too. But oh man, it's not even the fact of taking it. It's just you know he could have just really just got out of his denseness there. But um, hey, it's only episode twenty three, so yeah, that is true. But, um, plenty of time. But, yeah, uh, another thing. Another thing. Um, since you had mentioned, you know, the whole his other conversation with um, with Yasaburo, that yeah. you know, this guy just cuts right through him again with, with just one of his little casual closed eye comments. Yeah, that was the other thing I was going to say. It's just you know, with with that guy for whatever reason. I mean, he's become, you know, the the short time that we've seen him throughout the show, it, he's just become probably the m- one of the most insightful and interesting characters what? and. You know, he he's the he seems like one of the few that really kind of gets everything and 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 understands, I especially Alto. I distinctly remember him opening his eyes for once during that conversation. For when once, he, yes. When he, when he cut his throat, yeah, it was it was it was he was insightful and he was looking. <laughs> but. <laughs> but yeah, Yasaburo did get him again, man. Telling that he what he was he's he nothing more than an actor. He's just filling the role. That's you know that that's 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 in front of him. And, you know, he still can't shake his nature. But another no. yeah, of course, another insightful. Um, Thing to happen in that episode, but but I guess uh, any other questions, guys, or or any other comments or anything? Nope. I guess that'll bring us to t- uh, twenty-four then. Yep. Which uh, of course is called Last Frontier. I don't know why they just didn't call it Final Frontier. <laughs> but I think Paramount said that copyrighted. Oh man, do they really? Damn. <laughs> well, that sucks. But Probably last. <laughs> I'm just, yeah. But Last Frontier is episode twenty-four, and in it, um, it starts off with. Um, Ronka reminiscing about her days on Galia 4 with her mother and her brother, Brera. And it's at last that Ronka remembers that her song was what brought the Vajra to the planet in the first place. The Vajra invade laying waste to the inhabitants of Macross Global, barely allowing Ronka to escape as Brera pushes her into an escape pod and instructs her not to tell anyone that her song caused the tragedy to occur. Also, we see Grace in the Sea of Flames cursing the Vajra for their aggression, while elsewhere, a young Ozma is fending off the swarming Vajra, destined to encounter Ronka's escape pod and bring her to safety. The present-day Ronka, who appears in trance, realizes that she's to blame, and Grace takes full advantage of her guilt, telling her that there is only one way to atone for what happened. At the remains of Galia 4, Kathy and Ozma inspect what's left of the science station that orbits the ruined planet. They find evidence of Grace O'Connor's past. As a researcher of the Vajra after humankind's first encounter with their race, Ozma remarks that he never thought he'd ever return to Galia 4, and further remarks that Grace would have the gall to use her real name when showing up on the frontier years after the global massacre. The Bridge Bunnies discuss Mal Gnome of, of Macro Zero fame, who is the lead scientist behind the study of the Vajra. For those playing the home game, Monica points out further that Ronka played a younger version of Dr. Gnome in the movie, Bird Human. Slowly, the pieces of the puzzle of Ronka's mysterious power over the Vajra and Grace's scheme fall into place. Kathy, along with Ozma, finds Grace's thesis about the applications of fold quartz and implant technology. While elsewhere on the station, Canaria finds the V-type treatment records of Dr. Ronche May, Brer and Ronka's mom, who happened to be the first person infected with the disease. Before Ronche's infection was realized, Ronka was conceived and delivered, passing along the disease to her newborn daughter. 
Reconvening on the quarter, the SMS gang compare notes. Displaying Grace's thesis in a real-time simulation, it displays designs of a hyper-parallel thought network. Established by the use of fold quartz and implants placed in travelers, not only would thoughts be shared amongst those inducted, but time lag would be removed from folding across space. The network is set up on a structure of terminals, hubs, and the central node, listed in the order of lesser to greater importance. Lamb, the sharpest of the bunnies, goes on to explain that the network isn't completely parallel, and the way this network is structured, the central node would have ultimate control. Cap and Wilder is quick to realize that Grace wishes to use the Vajra's tools to force humans and other life forms into bondage on her thought network, and Canaria adds that by using Ronka's power to manipulate the Vajra, O'Connor could very well come to control the entire galaxy with her crazy scheme. The entranced Ronka sings Imo, and the enslaved Brera tells Grace that their analysis of the Vajra's network quantum protocols is almost complete. Grace smirks, realizing that she's close to proving her former colleagues, Mao and Ranshe, wrong and will make humanity surpass the protoculture. Monica relays the data SMS has collected has been sent to nuns, but due to calm lag and proper procedure, the reinforcements won't arrive in time. Captain Wilder realizes that the SMS will have to do it alone and asks for her support, to which she wholeheartedly gives. Kathy shares with Ozma that in a letter she found written by Mal Nome, it reveals that Cheryl is her granddaughter. Yet another thing we knew from Jump. <laughs> Kinda, anyway. The entire frontier fleet defaults near the Vajra homeworld as Perry lays it out for the soldiers. With their desperate situation at hand, the only hope for their future is to destroy the Vajra collective and colonize their perfect world. With the battle plan and motivation, people prepare for the battle ahead. Despite having a few reservations about the game plan and wearing Michael's glasses on her necklace, Koran knows she can't stand by idly and do nothing. Luca, meanwhile, kisses the unconscious Nanase on the lips before leaving the hospital to participate in the fight. Perry also doesn't like the insurmountable risk to Leon's tactics, but the old mob top reminds them that there's no future for them if they lose. Elsewhere, Dick Burla is ogling his full quartz ring and mentions to himself that he'll soon be seeing his special someone again. Before showtime, Cheryl gets a visitor in Alto, who promises her that no matter what, he'll return to her and that no one can fly alone. She surprises him with a passionate kiss and then asks him not to say anymore, otherwise she won't be able to perform. Cheryl gives Alto her earring and requests that he save Ronka before he leaves. To the tune of Sagittarius at 9 p.m., Don't Be Late, Cheryl performs as the fleet moves closer to the Vajra homeworld. As their alien opposition is not showing signs of coordination, Perry is told that her singing is affecting the enemy and the fleet engages in battle with them. In a shelter, Pop Saltome is with Yasaburo. While watching the start of the performance, he reveals his approval of Alto's choice to pilot. After MDE warheads are fired at the Vajra, Karan and Alto lead their subordinates into the fray while Luca does the same with his ghosts. While fighting the Vajra, Alto realizes the limitations of the Valkyrie that he is using, the VF-171EX, seeing it as a subpar weapon. Manipulating Ronka, Grace has her defend the Vajra homeworld and its invaders by having her sing as well. Grace uses Barrera to encourage her to sing, and he tells her that by doing so, it will be her redemption. Island One is ordered to, by Leon to approach the planet to descend, while more Vajra mix it up with the troops. The frontier forces are surprised by a giant visage of Ronka appearing before the Vajra hive and begins to sing the Min classic, Do You Remember Love? The Vajra are empowered by this, turning the tide of battle. Grace sees the irony in this song being used to defend another planet as she descends into the hive to take her place as the Vajra queen. Alto, in the midst of dogfighting, is confused to why Ronka is working against him, but he flies into her holographic visage and sees her in a vision of bondage. <laughs> Suddenly, he is confronted by the enslaved Barrera, who begins to defend his sister by attacking Alto. 
Alta tries his best in the inferior VF-171EX against Brera's Lucifer, but is eventually hit, all the while asking Ronka's brother why he is forcing her to sing. Brera replies that it is their duty as siblings to protect this world from aggressors and shoots Alka's Valkyrie in the wing. But Karan jumps into the fight to cover him. As she points out that the Vajra attacked first, Brera schools her in history and in battle, heavily damaging her Quedlun Ray and telling her that humans were the first to start the conflict. Before Brera can finish her off, Alto shields his damaged Valkyrie and it spins out of control. Cheryl watches on the monitor in horror as his mecha explodes, screaming out his name. And man, how come I get every episode with people screaming at the end? Because <laughs> that's but, your thing. Oh man, that's wow. my theme? Awesome. How, oh, that, that, was a, that was an episode. I said, I said enough. You guys go ahead. <laughs> well, um, you know, definitely the build-up for the final battle. Um, you know, great um, you know, just uh, uh, just a great scene of seeing the the, um, the the frontier fleet just come in, and you know, with all the um, all the Valkyries and all the planes, and you know, all the the different weapons being deployed, and you know, then the weirdness of seeing the giant Ronka singing. Oh yeah. Um, but um, you know, just just kind of a pretty intense episode though, all the way through. Um, you know, ending with uh, what seems to be uh, Alto's plane exploding at the end. So. Um, you know, great music, you know, uh, you know, really, really that kind of got you even more jazz was yeah. watching it with, uh, with that, with the music and, you know, perfect selection of, uh, you oh, know, yeah. s- songs to, to go with this type of battle. So just hearing, do you remember love just made my, yeah. made my goosebumps come on? Yeah, was that like, was, oh my uh, God, that, that this was is so wrong. Blast from the past <laughs> there, but, um. Just the um, way it was being used. It was like, oh, my God, that's, 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 that's awesome. But at the same time, effed up. Yeah. <laughs> but the whole exchange with Cheryl and Alto before he flies off was great. Um, you know, once again, probably one of the more crowning uh, jewels of this, uh, this episode. But, uh, Chris, uh, what you got for us? Well, first, you know, one of the things that really jumps out at you up this episode is the, the use of Do You Remember Love? And it's really sort of like a reverse shock and awe. Yeah. yeah. So... <laughs> I was watching this, and you see, like, you know, she starts singing this iconic song, and then the humans start getting their asses kicked. Yeah. Like, they're just getting, they're, the Vajra are mopping the floor with them, and you really sort of think to yourself, wow, this is, must have been how the Zentradi felt 50 <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Almost had a t- I almost took, a, like, a double take. I'm like, wait a second. That's not the way it happened before. <laughs> yeah. When you hear that song, you're supposed to fight better. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's the exact opposite that happens. Yeah. So, um... It's like the We Are the Champions of Macross. <laughs> it's good to see, uh, you know, more backstory revealed with, um, you know, the, the crew of the Quarter investigating the Global, which, uh, I gotta say, that, that, that Global, uh, pretty tough little ship if it can survive you know the original vajra attack it got turned into a vajra nest and half of it crumbled apart and then the freaking planet exploded yeah it's um it's it's a credit to the uh shipbuilders yeah. in the macross they sure, world they sure build those macrosses tough don't they yeah, oh my man. god four tough. i'm just kidding <laughs> what'd you say four tough tonka tough i mean oh. tonka <laughs> that's so bro everyone oh man i'm sorry <laughs> anything else chris uh, obviously, you know, this being the, the final battle, you know, basically everything's being laid out on the line. You know, you've got Alto uh, sort of talking to Cheryl before he, uh, he goes off. And it reminded me a, kind of in a way of the similar scene in um, the original Macross when Hikaru, uh, he confronts Minmei. 
yeah, before he yeah. goes off into the battle and he's basically saying stuff like, you know, I'm, I could die and yada yada. But then the difference there was Hikaru actually manned up and said, I love you, Minmei. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. you know, Alto, uh, well, was Alto. Denser than lead. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the whole thing about the end when this was airing, everybody was like, oh my god, they killed Alto, you know. I was and this is the point. Mm-hmm. This is the point where I had to step in. Yeah. It was Suzaku. <laughs> and and knock on all of these fans who really feel the absurd need to jump to conclusions, yeah. especially when things are blatantly obvious. Yeah. Sure. So here's uh, uh, it's time to pull out the Straight Talk Express. Okay, let's do it. Okay, anime all fans. Abo- all aboard. Do you really think they're going to kill the main character in the second to last episode? Do you really think they're going to do that? This is, I'm not, this is not the Gundam novel. So I, 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 vote, I vote no. I vote no. Does anybody really think that they're going to kill the the main character? I mean, that's just a joke. Uh, yeah. uh, it's uh, very obviously a ploy yeah. blowing up that crappy plane so that Alto can come back in the final battle yeah. in his spiffy messiah. Yes. But you, you had some people spreading theories, and mm-hmm. I kid you not, maybe you guys saw these. I saw some of them. I didn't. Um, that maybe Alto joined like the Vajra full network connective and his yeah. like spirit's gonna reach out to Ranka and yeah. wake her up and oh well. it's like oh on are, are you shitting me once once again that's the the thing of anime fans um until you get a job writing don't try to write something similarly about two episodes before that when uh you know Alto and Lucas stayed behind you had people say oh look he's Turning into Shin Asuka. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing that one. Really? Oh God, yeah, yeah. Well, I was I, I watched it and I knew they did. I knew he couldn't be dead because I know they wouldn't have the balls to do that. But when I was watching the last episode, I was hoping that he would be dead because that would have been such a departure. You know, it's like wow, that would that would that and, and that Luca would be such would a ballsy move. Was it? Luca would lead them to victory. No, just 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 the fact that they killed off Alto like right before the last episode, something no one saw coming. That would be like a, was, a mad departure. It's like this show it, has been making its own strides. So, it ain't gonna happen. Yeah, yeah it, it's not. But at the that, same that, time, that, that, it, it might make different strides from other mad crosses. Yeah, but it's still staying within the anime mecha formula. Yeah, yeah. But thou, and, thou, sh- thou shall not kill the main protagonist <laughs> before final episode. Some shows have done that's it, actually though. Commandment Four. Yeah. Bokeus aside. Yeah. yeah. What recent mecha anime show? kills the main character in the last episode yeah good question yeah and even code Geass was different because lelouch wasn't a pilot most of the time i mean right. a mecha series where the main character is a pilot who's piloting all the time when was the last time you saw that kind of character get killed in the last episode of their own show yeah i mean we honestly going to see senpai outlast um you know, his, his little protege there. It'd yeah. have been pioneering, but yeah. I, I knew better. So, yes. Yes. <laughs> all right, Chris, let's let's do this. Let's get it going. Time to uh, to put this uh, this whole thing to an end. Put Episode it, twenty-five. Put it to bed. Your please. sound. It's the fourth quarter. Let's do it. So obviously, you've got this big old nasty battle, and wouldn't it be the luck that a Vajra ship is about to close in on the battle frontier and fire its cannon? But it just gets destroyed in the nick of time by the quarter, which is emerging from fold space. Oh, no. And the shockwave from that explosion hits Herrera's Lucifer, and it causes the mind control device on him to break. So he's a little phased out there. 
Karan uh, criticizes Ozma for being late, and uh, he tells her that he had a little errand to run, which obviously was the investigation of the Global. Jeffrey calls the Battle Frontier, and he says that he, they've come back to crush the ambitions of Grace and the Macross Galaxy. Oh, yeah. And Perry doesn't get it, but Jeffrey says that they've been played for fools, and of course, creepy Leon is accusing him of stuff. Alto then calls, and he reveals how it was that he magically survived the ending of episode 24. <laughs> He's hiding inside the wreckage of a Guantanamo battle carrier, and he flew into that hologram of Ranka and saw that it was actually Battle Galaxy. And when he flew out of there, he ejected in his EX gear just before Brera shot at him. So uh, the Macross Quarter fires its Macross cannon at the Ranka illusion and dispels the illusion. And lo and behold, there's Battle Galaxy. And Jeffrey tells Leon that he'll have to explain a lot of things later, including Howard's assassination. And Leon tries to make a break for it, but several soldiers point guns at him and keep him in place. Grace, of course, isn't bothered because she says it's too late for them to do anything, and she starts to merge with the Vajra Queen. And then you got a squad of Ghost V9s launch from Bow Galaxy and go to town, just like the Ghost X9 did in Macross Plus, zipping around the screen yeah. so fast, and you can't even see them until they stop to destroy things. Yeah. Also, he gets a call, and he sees Luca's Messiah and Koran in Michael's Messiah, and they're towing his Messiah. So he hops back in, and lo and behold, he's back in his fancy plane. Who'd have thought that? <laughs> we, thought, we thought you might need this. Yes. <laughs> so Ozma, being hot-blooded, he charges into battle, shouting out, Charging Love Heart, which of course is a firebomber <laughs> song. <laughs> and Karan, she lands on an asteroid and starts sniping targets just like Michael used to. Mm-hmm. To fight off the ghosts, Luca, he takes off the protective program on his ghosts and gives them full autonomy so that they start buzzing around like crazy and attacking the other ghosts. So also he calls out to Ranka and asks if she can hear his voice and Cheryl's song. And mind you, he's wearing the fold quartz earring, which allows all of this fancy communication to take place. She wakes up and Brera's harmonica that she's wearing around her neck just magically shatters. Grace completes her connection to the Vajra Queen, and this large fold wave hits the Vajra, and they start to change color. And this huge fold wave creates a network structure around the whole planet, and you've got all of the voices from Grace's conspiracy saying that they can feel the entire galaxy, and they don't need Ranka anymore. And Grace declares that she now controls the power that the protoculture feared and worshipped, the Vajra, and we see some shots of the bird human from Macross Zero, which you now see was modeled after the Vajra Queen. Ozma right. starts firing his reaction warheads at the Vajra Queen, which is just launched from the planet, but this dimensional rift appears, and it shields both the Vajra Queen and the Battle Galaxy. Grace, now that she's totally insane, tells everyone to bow down to her power, and she tells the Vajra to attack. So you start seeing Vajra forces default next to the Macross 11, which is way out on the outer rim of the galaxy, as well as even over Macross City on Earth, yep. which of course gives you a prime chance to see the good old SDF-1 Macross again. So then the Vajra Queen and all of the forces around it, they start you know, just shooting everything, and a whole bunch of warships get destroyed, and there's a hit on Island 1 and some of the abandoned islands. Brera shows up now that he's, you know, free from Grace's control, and Ranka wakes up and starts singing. The Vajra, they stop attacking, and they turn back into their original color, and Perry is surprised that Ranka didn't betray humanity. And using these magical fold waves to talk, Ranka tells 
Cheryl to get up, and when Cheryl says that she has nothing left in kind of an emo way, Ranka figuratively uh, slaps her and reminds her that because of her strength, that allowed her and Alto to succeed. So Alto reaches out through his earring and tells Cheryl that he won't give up and that both Cheryl and Ranka are his wings. And at the same time, for whatever reason she can do this, Ranka magically moves the V-type infection from Cheryl's brain to her intestines, which makes Cheryl the same as Ranka. So Cheryl starts singing again, and Jeffrey declares that their true enemy is Grace and the Macross Galaxy, not the Vajra themselves. So you got the Macross Quarter rushes in and transforms and does a pinpoint barrier punch into Battle Galaxy so that he can fly in and rescue Ranka. And then Grace unleashes this huge barrage of weapons fire on Island 1 that would definitely destroy it. But then out of nowhere, this huge swarm of Vajra gets in front of Island 1 and they absorb the shot themselves, which leaves everybody surprised that they would do that. Little Icoon appears next to Alto's Messiah, and Ranka basically at this point does some exposition and explains that the Vajra have emotions, but they're so completely alien in the way that they live that they don't understand that humans are individuals. And because of that, they kept attacking the fleet to rescue Ranka. But then once they were able to hear Cheryl's song, they understood that humans are different from them and that they're all individuals rather than a hive mind. So uh, Alto drops Ranka off on the quarter, and she gets on their little singing platform. And you've got Ranka singing on the quarter while Cheryl is singing on Frontier. Little Icoon starts flying around through the Vajra Swarm, and they all start to turn back to their regular color. And then a whole bunch of Vajra create a hole in the dimensional rift so that the quarter and the Frontier can fly through. But then out of there, the Battle Galaxy fires its Macross cannon and damages both the Macross cannons of the Quarter and the Frontier. Right on. But then Canaria flies in with her Koenig monster, and even though it takes a ton of damage, she crashes onto the Galaxy's Macross cannon and basically blows away the bridge. And then uh, right after that, you got the Quarter rushing in, and it does basically the good old Daedalus attack on uh, Galaxy's Macross cannon and blows it to pieces. And then the Frontier swoops in and does a Falcon Punch on the galaxy. Throughout all of this fighting, Karan's Messiah gets damaged, so she gives her sniper rifle to Alto. And then Brera joins Alto to give him cover and uh, tells him that he has to destroy the Vajra Queen's head because the heart of a Vajra is in its stomach. So they bust through and Alto snipes Grace and kills her and destroys the Vajra Queen's head. And then the Vajra Queen's stomach starts to glow, as, you know, they do when they sing. And you see the Vajra forces retreat from where they were on Earth and near the Macross 11 fleet. And after that, we've got Island 1, the Frontier, and the Quarter. They all begin atmospheric re-entry. And Bobby will be wondering why it is the Vajra need music if they don't communicate. And Ranka explains that Imo is their love song and that every few hundred millions of years, they gather and crossbreed with other species in the galaxy. And as the ships land in the ocean, Birla closes his little fold quartz ring, which had a picture of Minmay in it. And then after the ships land, Ranka and Cheryl, they are reunited out on this grassy field. And Alto flies by and ejects from his damaged messiah and starts flying around in his X-gear. Ranka tells Cheryl that she won't lose in either song or love, and Cheryl accepts the challenge. Luca runs over to the hospital where Nanase opens her eyes, and Alto, pulling a top gun, he buzzes by Cheryl and Ranka, and they start running after him. The end. Wow, Alto, the Tom Cruise of Macross. 
The only thing that would, would have been like even more appropriate is if like that guy from Top Gun, that bald guy who who played Mr. Strickland in, in Back yeah. to the Future, yeah. was there and still coughing himself. He's like, Rah! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What were you gonna say, Nero? Oh man, just uh, wow. You know, if you, <laughs> if you wanted um if you wanted wall to wall action from uh, Go. And that whole part at the end, and especially in the final battle, when, you know, the final parts of this final battle, uh, when you have uh, Cheryl and, and Raka singing, it's just like, oh, my God. You know, it's like, where can I get a Valkyrie and, and, and start blowing up some stuff? But It's, uh, it's awesome when they bring music to the battle, to the, to the combat theater. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's crazy when you, when you have a battle and a pop concert breaks out. You hey, know? That's the macros, man. But, that's uh, how they roll. No, it was, it, it was definitely a great thing. And, you know all the little homages like you said with like the Daedalus attack and all that and you know even even the little thing it was very uh, I'd have to say when he gets out of the Messiah at the end it was very um, armor like at the end of uh, Gundam there oh yeah when he when he ejects out of the core fighter but um, um, you know I don't know much more you could say I mean just a, just a great episode you get to see everybody just doing what they need to do and, and I mean um, it Definitely, um, it definitely went beyond my standards when it came to, uh, you know, um, season or uh, season finale. finales or series finales. I mean, I, I think a lot of other shows could learn, <laughs> especially mecha shows can learn, uh, you know, because we never got that point where there's just that complete breakdown of like, you know, the explanation lady comes out and then it's got to be, you know, 15 different things that kind of slows these things down especially well, in these final episodes it was very smart of them to actually get that out of the way in 23 and 24 yeah that way you know 25 is nothing but balls of the wall well i mean even other even other mecha shows they'll still do that but they still have like that lull period it's like we got to tie up every loose end and you know they they were able to get every loose end pretty much tied up and the stuff that they didn't tie up eh, really wasn't that important in the end anyways yeah true but um you know so well but, one of those things that that isn't exactly tied up. What did you guys think about the uh, resolution for the love triangle or the lack of? Personally, I... I He's going to like it. No, oh. I actually was a little miffed at that because, you know, they, what's, what's the, the, one of the opening lines in the song is, who is he going to kiss? You know, or who are you going to kiss? You know, thinking that, you know, there's going to be a decision made. Yeah. To me, it was like the Tenshi Muyo thing where, you know, he, in the end, he's still going to be torn between these two women. And I don't necessarily know if he's even torn. I think he's just dumb. I think he's just dense. He, he is like every Japanese male lead in every almost every every mecha show where you know he plays coy, and that was a bit annoying. But I don't even think he's. I don't necessarily agree with that because he's not necessarily really playing coy. He's just well, he's just kind of like he's definitely he's not just not getting it. Like it's it's like he's he's not even like trying to you know play coy or, or trying to make make one of the girls feel. Um, you know, better when the other one's not around. He's maybe, just kind of a, he's just dense. Maybe I mean, he's smart enough to realize that he is going to have to eventually make a decision, so he's just holding off. Uh, but That's speculation. This I, is a no speculation zone. Well, everybody speculates. <laughs> <laughs> the ending leaves you to speculate. Right. No, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty, that was the only downside, I think, of the, um, of this episode, especially the little thing of like Rock, I'm not gonna lose in love or song. It's like, oh jeez, like, please. It's like, <laughs> oh boy. And then you know he just flies off, and I mean it's it's a happy time ending, but it's not for that. I I think it's kind of silly. I mean it just keeps you guessing. At least it, other other pilots have chose. It kind of bothers me a bit because yeah. um, 
You know, in Macross 7, obviously, you didn't have a resolution for the love triangle either. But in Macross 7, it was really quite different because you had, you know, Gamlin interested in Mylene, and you had Mylene interested in him and Basara, but yeah. then Basara had no interest in her. Yeah. There you go. So it wasn't yeah. really a love triangle because only two out of the three parties were interested in each other. Yeah, he just wanted to sing. He, need, he, he just, just need, wanted to sing and, and do hear his my song. Thing. Exactly. And rock so, the movies. And not only that, but in Macross 7, the love triangle wasn't really explored as much no. there. Yeah. But in Frontier, they spent a lot more time Oh yeah, especially. love triangle. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Especially with him and Cheryl. I, like, they, gave, they gave the complete impression that you know, he that's the route that he was going to go. And it's just, yeah, it was kind of left undone. Yeah, personally, I expected a resolution because as for it to borrow so much from all the other Macross series and to spend as much time as they did on developing the, the, the relationship between the three, I expected the same thing in um, do you, you know, Macro, the original Macross series in Do You Remember Love, where, you know, there was a resolution. It was a distinct resolution. And I was kind of hoping we'd get the same thing, you know, that little the little showdown at the end between the three. I mean, that's kind of a little battle all all on its own, and it was kind of left open-ended, and I just think they kind of pushed out on that. And it was kind of well, silly that, you know, they just – I, I thought it was just kind of lame that the, that the people that are doing the show just had it where he's just – he just buzzes above them and you know like they're they're running in the field like ah, you know it's like i mean at least at least land and maybe you know go and hug the one you know at, at least if he like he landed and like say he went to cheryl first and you could see that maybe she was the one that he cared for mm-hmm. at least you would have some kind of thing like oh, okay i guess he's probably going to be with her but yeah it was kind of like like chris said there there was way too develop too much development for not really any resolution. Damn right. So. There are two more points about that, though. Uh, one is that, um, you know, it did bother me that there wasn't much of a resolution, and they kind of, like, acknowledge that they're not going to resolve it when they have Alto saying, oh, you're both my wings. But it doesn't, it, you know, overall, it was something that didn't bother me enough to ruin my enjoyment of the episode or oh, really no. yeah. that much. Then another point is, you know, in regards to other Macross shows, if you th- and someone made a point of this on the Macross World Forum, I forgot their name, but uh, congrats to them. Um, if you look back on the original Macross series, you know, at the end of the war with the Zentradi, yeah, you know, Hikaru had his, like, happy reunion with uh, Misa. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, it still took him another two years yeah. to <laughs> finally choose her. Yeah, that is true. That is true. Which... When you think about that, it's like, damn, that is even wishy, that's even wishy-washier than mm. Alto. Because Alto's only known these two chicks for a few months. Yeah. But, 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 hold on, hold on, though. But in, in defense of that, when the first series, when the first part, when the first 26 episodes ended, um, it was, he was there with Lisa. And, you know, if the series ended at that point, you figured that he was going to end up with Lisa. It's just that they stretch it out for another set of episodes, so they want to play off that and make a more resolute ending. So, it I mean, doesn't matter, I mean, in terms I of mean, the... The story that was produced, it still yeah. took another two years to yeah. decide. That's he's he's, he's right on that. I mean, yeah, it, it, if it was, if it did end on that episode, yeah, you could do that, but it didn't. So, I mean, he's, yeah, he, it took him another two years. I mean, she was doing everything she could. She was just about throwing herself at him. Yeah. yeah. And, you and know, also, if, you, if Macross ended at episode 27, which is the final battle, it just ends with them being happily reunited. It doesn't end yeah. with them actually, 
you know, kissing or blah, blah, blah. And there was obviously a lot of development even by that point Mm -hmm. of the whole Hikaru Misa angle. So it would be exactly the same as Frontier. The only difference is Frontier didn't get extra episodes after the end. True. I mean, but I I just, I saw him leaving Minmei behind and then going to find Misa, you know, going out of his way to go get Misa back. Right. That's that's what we're saying, though, is that's the thing that Frontier is kind of lacking. If this, you know, this is the final episode, he doesn't have, like you just said, if, if Macross ended at 27, then you, you'd have kind of the thing of like, okay, he went to Misa. Yeah. Okay. That, that's cool. You know, then you can kind of speculate from there. But, you know, that, that's, that's what this is lacking. It's, it's lacking the fact that, you know, he's just buzzing by and, you it's, know, he just does the whole flame thing of you're both my wings and, you know. Yeah. Why choose when I don't have to, or something? But uh, why choose when I could start a harem? Yeah, it's. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I agree with you, Chris. I mean, I, I think it's um I I don't think it's it's pr- pretty much the only glaring deficiency in the episode. But other than that, just out and out great thing. But yeah, it's a minor gripe, man. But uh, and even then, everything that we're talking about here might be moot because, as we know, there's a Macross Frontier movie in the works, yeah. and we don't really know what's going to be covered there if it's going to be. You It'll know, be two years later. Two <laughs> <laughs> if it's just going to be a quick compilation movie, if it's going to be you know something totally redone in the like of Daryl, we really don't know yet. So, yeah. and and if you all recall, uh, you know when Daryl came around, it handled the love triangle very differently because yeah. Yeah. in that movie, Hikaru very early on chooses Misa mm-hmm. and sticks with that the whole way through. Yeah. 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 So who knows how Frontier will you know, approach things, but uh, any other comments, you know, about the whole series or this episode in particular? Well, uh, I mean, where do you guys rank um, this series, you know, in, in all of the macro series for for you guys? I mean, I don't know if you come to that conclusion yet, but um, mm. what do you, what do you, what do you rank it from all the macro series you've seen? Well, it's not better than the original. Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, I got to kind of let it kind of sink in. I, I think it's, it, it's, um, better done. It was better done than um, zero. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I don't know. It's it's a little bit above Macross Seven to me because you really? know it's got that kind of same vibe. Macross Seven is a fun show. Once you, once you get out of just the kind of stupid recycled animation and and the kind of hopeless battles every week, yeah, it becomes a really cool show. I mean, especially with the with the characters. Um, is it better than Macross Plus? I don't know. That's that's a tough one. So yeah, for me, I, I it's, it's the original series plus, and then from what the Macross series I've seen, Frontier comes third. Until I see seven, then I'll have a more finite answer. But Chris, well, what's your thoughts? Well, I don't know if I do the same as you guys. I'd compare, you know, apples to apples because how can you compare a twenty or thirty or forty something episode yeah. to you know a four part OAV? So that's you true. know, if if we stick to just the TV series. shows. I would, you know, rank it from original series to Frontier to Seven. Yeah, there you go. That's probably about that where good. I would go. Um, you know, it, it's it's definitely a great show. It it, it exceeded my expectations because it it definitely felt like it was going to go a different route and or it was going to go the same route. And I'm glad that it finally got to the, you know, did something a little little different. But you know, not resolving that thing just is kind of the only glaring thing. And Alto being such a <laughs> blockhead in the whole thing but what i would say is overall it's you know it's 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 a great fun show it's 
know, it's not perfect. Nothing no. is. And unfortunately, I see, you know, this is a trend. It's not just with Macross, but with, you know, with Gundam 00 and with Code Geass. And, you know, I see fans, particularly Western fans, since that's the only thing that we have to, uh, to go by, have such demanding expectations for every single thing they see yeah. <laughs> that something doesn't match their expectations down to the letter 100% of what they expected, then it's crap. Oh, man. Which, yeah. you know, resulted in this it's time again for some straight talk <laughs> that I see all over the place uh, regarding Frontier, and especially the end, is fans saying that, oh, you know, oh, this happened this way because Kawamori is trolling us. And That's there not is true. nothing right now that annoys me more mm-hmm. than this current hive mind internet speak bullshit of people saying, oh, the director's trolling us. Yeah. Yeah. What, what the hell is something as ridiculous as that even supposed to mean? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Because I, it didn't go the way you wanted it to go, the director is personally trolling you. I mean, what kind of stupid, moronic crap is that? Yeah, I'd have to say, just take it as it is to people. I mean, yeah. the, the, the big problem, I, uh, just to reiterate here on the Straight Talk Express, is um, <laughs> that... The, the people that complain the most about something, something not going a certain way are the ones that sit there and always saying, oh, this show is being exactly like all the other shows. They want everything different, but yet in the end, they still want the same old things to happen in these shows, and then they complain about it. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. And, you know, and, and the other thing, too, is, is, is this, the, just the off-beaten speculations. I mean, it, it's okay to speculate, but these just drawing these conclusions out of things that just are you know ridiculous um, you know yeah. with this show and everything i mean we've we've touched upon it a, f- a few times but i'm with you i mean and you know let these stop trying to get in the mind of the director i mean he's just sitting there give, give producing something to give you enjoyment just enjoy it i mean take it for what it is and of course you know when anybody watches any show you go into it with a couple of broad expectations of the kind of yeah. things you want to see, but I see people like having like like you know these detailed, ridiculous assertions that because A B C D E F G H I J and K didn't happen, yeah. this series. Yeah. Well, pe- people want their speculations to come true, and they forget the fun in speculating. You know, you try to guess what's going to happen next. If it doesn't happen, that's that's fine. Well, if it other, does happen, then you the won the lottery. Show. The other yeah, it doesn't mean the show sucks because no, it yeah. did what you didn't expect. The other problem is is everybody's becoming too high and mighty yeah. when it comes to like what should be done when it comes to this, and it's just like it, like Chris said, when you come into a lot of these shows, you always have uh, broad expectations, especially shows that are within a franchise, yeah, like a Gundam, a Macross, or whatever. You kind of know what you're gonna get, so it, it's like they're gonna be. They're, it, it's Macross Frontier was a different story than the other Macrosses, but at the core, it was still a Macross show. It had, you know, it, it had the different love triangle. It had, you know, this, uh, you know, the, the, the thing with, um, you know, aliens and music and stuff. It's still going to have those core things, yeah. but it told it in a different way. I mean, ultimately, it's Cal Moore's story to tell. However Ray ends it, he ends it. I mean, it may end in controversy. Yeah. It may end exactly the way you figured, but in, in the end, it's his story. I can't critique the man. He's doing something I'd love to do, <laughs> and I think it was a fitting ending for the show. Um, my last, my last thing would be is that everybody needs to stop doing these um, 
these grand kind of um, generalizations and just kind of things that like if everything isn't a perfect about the show, then the show sucks. Or if you know the show is so wonderful because it did this and this because it was different. I mean, just 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 stop it already. And stay tuned as the Straight Chalk Express runs through Cold Geass next. <laughs> oh man, I look forward to that. One last thought, uh, Solbro, your your boy Luca Angeloni, winner mm-hmm. or loser? Um, well, he lived. Well, so he lived, and he. I, well, but we don't know if he hooked up with his girl. That's all I know. If he did, more power to him. But for the most part, the jury's still out. We'll, well have to wait for the movie. We're, we're we're going by what we see. <laughs> hey, hey uh, Solbro, you know what? What's up? Luca should have died instead of Michael for the sake of world peace. Best. <laughs> Probably in some ways he should have, especially oh. when he knew all that stuff in the end, a little turncoat. At yeah, even, even Grace would have said, you know what, you win. Luke is dead. Yeah. I can live with that. In, in, co- <laughs> in cahoots with creepy Leon. So. And, and no, that, that wasn't uh, inspired by Austin. But oh, uh, No, no, that's, that's all right. It came from your heart. That, that'll work. I'll have to deal. <laughs> but, well, wow, that was great. It only took us forever to finish up Macross Frontier, and I'm glad that we're done with it. Not that it. it's over, but I'm just glad. I enjoyed the show, and I'm, I was happy to review it. But man, it was it was it was quite the run. And, and I guess we could say on the Straight Talk Express, Gundam approves this message. We'll be right back. You're listening to Gundam at MAHQ. Need a cake, but you don't want something boring from the local supermarket or bakery? In the South Florida area, try EpicSugarWorks.com. This bakery specializes in creating cakes based off of your favorite anime series, video game character, or whatever custom design you're looking for. Their online store also features anime and video game themed chocolate lollipops, as well as gift certificates if you want to give something to somebody. So if you're looking for a cake that's above the norm, go to EpicSugarWorks.com. It's epically delicious. You son of a... I suppose it's poetic justice. Two flies with the same gun. Damn. Welcome back to the show that's colder than Klondike. That's right, Gundam at MAHQ. Our listeners on the Mechatalk.net boards had um, a couple questions for our guest host, Amaru NT1, about um, <laughs> about uh, uh, Code Geass, and we're going to answer some of your um, some of the questions that you guys submitted. And um, I'll start off with the first question, um, pretty much the, the question everybody wants an answer to. Um, and this was submitted by practically everybody. Is Lelouch dead? Take it, Amaro. Ah, boy. Well, here we are, the ultimate question, the ultimate debate, the thing that's been going on for the last month. And in Chris's review of the final episode, he compared it to the ending of Charles Counterattack and Cowboy Bebop, how people still debate to this day on whether Spike, Amaro, and Char are really dead. I still difference. can't believe the cow- uh, Spiegel one. Spike Spiegel. Oh. The people even... Oh, sorry, I didn't mean even... No, it's mean cool. To- it's cool. 
But the big, yeah. di- the big difference here, Lelouch has a definitive answer from the staff and the cast. Ladies and gentlemen, I can finally tell you with absolute certainty, Lelouch Lamperouche is dead. Yay. It has been said in the post-series interviews, it has been said by head writer Ichiro Okuichi that it had basically been intended from the very beginning that Lelouch died at the end because it was the only way it could have gone. He made the rather bold statement that those who fight have to be prepared to die, and if he lived through that, it would make him look hypocritical, and it would take away from the impact of his, of his quest. Furthermore, we have quite a few official magazine summaries and little details, such as I have a scan right here from Continue Magazines, Volume 42, which has a complete death list for all of Code DS, listing the character, when they died, and what caused it. And the final entry here, Lelouch v. Britannia, Britannia's 11th prince, killed by Zero, Episode 25. And everyone on this, just so you know, everyone on the staff and the cast believes he is dead. Everyone from the director through Lelouch and Suzaku's voice actors. And just to cap it off, the official profiles on the phone, on the cell phone only GSNet website, all lean towards Lelouch's death. Yeah, but you know what? Even if you say that, people are still going to be like, no, I think he could be alive. He could be the guy yeah. in the horse cart. Then who is it's he not, talking to at the yeah. end? Actually, if it's not said in the series, thing. it didn't happen. Look out, fan fiction. Well, that's one of the things, actually, we commented on that in the show, is we were talking about everyone getting a good end, everyone getting a good ending except for the people who we really liked. And I think the reason that Lelouch is alive has so much fan support is because, you know, let's be honest, even who doesn't think he deserved a happy ending? The guy put up with lots of crap. He lost practically everyone who really mattered to him. He got dragged through the mud, and, you know, it's sort of hard to look at a guy like that and say he deserved to die at the end. I mean, you wanted him to get happiness, right? So I think that's basically what it is. It's just people wanted, they really came to care for him and feel for him, and they thought that he deserved some sort of happiness in the end rather than just dying. I, I look at it like the um, Count of Monte Cristo. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and I can see that that story is a huge influence on Code Geass to some degree. Um, the man... He, um, he, he made a deal with the devil when he got the Gears, and he did a lot of treacherous things when he had the Gears. He made the world a better place in the end, and you know, there's part of me that wishes that he did have a happy ending. Um, but I don't know. There's a lot of blood on his hands, and someone had to be responsible, and he made himself responsible. So in the end, I, I think the ending is pretty fitting. Um, sadly, you know, they could have done an alternate ending where he was alive, but... Oh, that's not even... Oh, I, 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 well, I'm just saying. Actually, that's, that's the thing. We're all talking about a happy ending, you know, maybe where... He survives, becomes immortal, and lives with C2 in some secluded little villa or something. But, yeah. the, but the thing is, in all the interviews, the staff and the cast seem to believe that this is a happy ending. That's even, what I was going to say. Even, even yeah. if he died, he achieved his goal. He changed, exactly. he changed the world. That's something that not just anyone can do. And he made the world a better place for his sister and his friends and everyone he really cares about who is still alive. Exactly. So, and he knew end, what was going to happen. That's exactly what I was going to say. He was ready for it in the end. From the beginning, yeah. he was, and in some way, he he is dead. Yes, but in the end, it can be seen as a happy ending. Cool. So I guess what we can conclude from this is that Lelouch is dead. He's gone. He's gone. It's up to you if you think it's a happy ending or not. But the step thinks it is. And hey, that's so, a, that's not going to stop you from writing fan fiction. So lay on, McDuff. So I guess that would bring us to other questions, possibly. Sure. I guess. Uh, let me see here. What do we have? Got a couple, maybe be. Uh, I just pick. I just basically picked out the ones that I could answer as best yeah. I could. Uh, if I don't, like, just real quick, if you ask me a question, and I didn't answer it here. The answer is probably the staff didn't say. We don't know if they ever will. 
I'm sorry, I really hate to cop out on you like that, but I, they didn't give me the answers, so I can't give you the answers. And it bothers well, me as much as you. I guess here's a good one for you. It's from one of the other guests that we've had from time to time on the show, Destiny Gundam on the board, and he is asking, what is your favorite KMF episode, male character or female character? Hmm. What is a KMF? Oh, I'm sorry. I That's wasn't cool. even thinking about that. Don't worry yeah. about it. Let me see. Personally, for me, just going over my own little list, my favorite characters are Lelouch and C2 because they're so distinctly different from the typical mecha protagonist and female lead. On mm-hmm. Lelouch's end, he's idealistic, yes, but he's also cynical, and he's he's a smartass. He's very he's not you know an airheaded bruiser like most heroes. He's actually a smart weakling, and but more than that, he's an underdog, and despite all the crap that people gave later on where, you know, he's doing horrible things, he's a monster, I always felt that deep down Lelouch was a good person. So even when he was doing bad things, I, st- I was still rooting for him because I knew what he was going for in the end. With C2, it's sort of the same way that, you know, she starts off the show as this selfish, sarcastic woman who only seems to care for pizza, and eventually you learn that she's got a pretty good job justification for being disconnected and rude because she's been through even more stuff than Lelouch has in the entire show and at that point she suffered so much she doesn't care about anything anymore but in the end the two of them basically managed to connect with one another on a deeper level and it makes their lives that much richer so I guess I just like them maybe I would have liked to see the Monte Cristo ending where they ran off to a little island village or something but I can accept it like this I guess it's already been done though so Favorite, favorite Nightmare Frame? Probably the Gowan, because it's, it's just so distinct and unique and different. Yeah, I love it. It's a very stylish design. I love it. I like the fact that it can do so much with just Slash Harkins and Energy Cannons. Close second, I also like the Gurren, especially... What's not, well, I like the Lancelot in all its forms, mostly the Albion, because it manages to be stylish and cool. I like, I like the Gekka series. And if you go into the video games, I like the Lancelot Club from Lost Colors and the Gurren Mark II Kai from the DS game. Also the, oh yeah, the Barai full upgrade type and the Gloucester final type. Yeah. Just personal favorites because they kick ass in the games. (laughs) (laughs) The other one was your favorite episode. Oh, right. Favorite episode. I hadn't really thought about it a lot, but tying back in with everything, I think I'd probably say stage 15 because... It focuses on my two favorite characters, and you get a much deeper look at them than you have in the past. You get a real impression of what they're like on the inside, and the fact that, despite, they both, despite the fact that they both put on this air of, yeah, whatever, who cares, you get a sense that they really do have feelings for each other. And this is the first time that they have this real connection between them. And it shows not only that, but it shows Lucia's ultimate dedication to his goals and to his friends. And in my mind, it proves that they're both good people, and that he does care about her is something other than the source of his power. So it's just a personal favorite. What is that, first or second season? Uh, first season, episode 15. Okay, that's what I thought. That one was The Cheering Mal, if the, you yeah. were like, keeping tabs of it. Yeah, I was just, you said episode 15, I was like, yeah, it's too oh, I said sta- I said stage 15. Oh. <laughs> but randomly, stage 15. also, stage, 20, stage 21, if only for pizza. I guess something else, Sober? Yeah, sure. What other ones do we have Let's uh, keep it moving along so we don't yeah, take no problem. forever doing this. Yeah. Let's just... Go for it, Chris. Go for it. Okay. <clears throat> These questions come from Areku. Uh, several questions. Why does Lelouch need to make direct eye contact when Rolo does not? What determines what one's Gius will be? What is it about Gius 
So it allows its power to increase over time in use. How does the code function, which came first, code or GIAS? How did the answer to the previous question first come into being? Also, have there been any indications on the nature slash origin of Suzaku's superhuman abilities? So first, uh, why does Illusion need to make direct eye contact when Rolo doesn't? Simply enough, it's how his GIAS works. It's really, that's the best explanation. It's just different functions. What determines what one's GIAS will be? We don't know, but the popular theory among the fandom seems to be that factors such as one's personality and one's past effect. So if you want specifics, we've got Belush, who's always felt powerless. He was given the ultimate power over people. Charles, who felt that he lived in a world of lies, was given the power to tell the ultimate lies. C2, who never who felt hated and outcast, was given the power to make people love her. And Mao, who felt like he was shut out from the world, gained the ultimate insight into people's minds. Okay. And okay. Rolo, who, Rolo, <laughs> whose only function was to be a weapon, gave made gave had the power to freeze people just as he felt frozen. Okay. What is it about Gius that allows its power to increase over time and use? That's honestly just the nature of the Gius. Honestly, that's one thing that bugs me about the show is they said Lelouch's Gius would get more powerful, but it really didn't. It just stayed at the same level over the course of the show. It just became permanent. I don't know if that's something they forgot about or if they couldn't think of a way to make it more powerful without breaking the character. I don't know. But there's really no official like, explanation for why it does it, other than that's how Gias works. Okay, how does the code function, i.e., how does the immortality slash regeneration work, and what enables a, cold, a code holder to bestow Gias? We don't really know how the code works, because, honestly, they left a lot of stuff hanging at the end of the show, because they felt that it didn't need to be explained. I doubt it was the case of, let's leave it open for a sequel, but rather it's just, they didn't answer it. But the interesting thing to point out, code holders slash witches don't bestow Gias. They don't give someone powers. They unlock a power that someone could potentially have deep down within them, which is what ties in with theory about it being related to one's personality. Mm -hmm. Only those with the special potential to activate a Gias can be awakened like that. So rather than giving someone a power, they are just opening up what they could have. Okay. okay. Which came first, code or Gias? The egg. No, seriously, that's one of the ones I'm going to have to say I don't know, too. Okay, so that skips the next yeah. one. Yeah. And lastly, also, have there been any indications on the nature or origin of Suzaku's superhuman abilities? They hinted in the first season that it tied to Gias. In fact, the Nightmare not only manga, not canon, I know, but it's still useful for reference. They go so far as to say that Suzaku is a Gias user who isn't bound by a contract, that basically he somehow activated his own power without an outside influence like a witch. But the problem is that in the shuffle with the second season being moved around and everything, the, the writers openly admitted that they set up a connection between Suzaku's powers and, and the Gias, but they had to cut it due to time constraints. So unfortunately, it looks like he's just a superhuman. Okay. It's all that Weedy Z8. <laughs> I'm playing. I guess... Uh, um, hey, I'll, hey, Milk, I, does a body good? It does. It does. I guess uh, some I, other, to move on with some other questions here... Uh, Kavik, I have a question from um, Kavik Riss. Um, why or how did CC suppress her code? And is there any information on Callan's brother? C2's code, we, that's one of the mysteries of Gias they didn't answer. The only indication we get when Marianne goes into her mind to bring her back from Moe Moe C2, we get the indication that she's done it before and that even C2 doesn't know how it happens. The idea seems to okay. be that basically she wants it to go away, she wants to be normal, but they need her to be, they need her code for their plan so they don't let it happen. As all right, and Callan's brother, this one's actually one we've got quite a bit of info on. Oh, wow. The late Naoto Kozuki. Quite an interesting character. 
From the vague indications we get from side materials and staff, there seems to be some indication that the reason Cal is so attached to Lelouch is because he reminds her of her brother. They imply that Naoto used to be actually really smart and charismatic, and he was basically the driving force behind the, the, behind the Kozuki group before it became the Ogi group upon his death. It's been stated that he actually was the one who came up with the plan to steal the gas capsule. He planned to steal as many as he could, but Tamaki botched things, so they only got away with the one that had C2. Yeah. And some people actually suspect that had the, had the resistance gotten it, then Naoto might have actually been mortgaged for a kiosk, but you know, that's just idle speculation. Just one little thing to point out quickly. They never really decided whether he was alive or dead. They, they played with it a bit. If you have the DVDs, the commentary for episode 4, head writer Okoichi actually teases Callan's voice actress Amiko Shimizu. She says something like, it's too bad her brother's dead, and Okoichi says, oh, is he now? And she, her response is, wait, what? What are you saying? Come on, tell me! And they hinted that he might possibly have been alive, but in the end, that was one of the pot elements that had to get cut, too. So the death list I mentioned back with Lucia's death list pre-series now took Okoizuki, killed by unknown causes. If I recall correctly, the Kalan-centric novel says that he died rather ignobly in a roadside knife fight or something like that. But, you know, not quite canon, but there you go. Next question? Uh, Yazi88 says, is there any information about uh, uh, Nina having a traumatic experience in her past that makes her pretty twitchy around the 11s? And he had two other ones. Was uh, was, whatever happened to Sayoko at the end of the show? And are there any news or announcements for any new Gias games to come out? I guess the first one being with Nina and her, her thing with the 11s. Anything on that? Uh, that's another case where we just got vague hints. If you'll remember way back, first season, episode 8, when the train that the girls are on go through the tunnel, Nina starts getting sort of shaky and panicky. And then Millie goes over, holds her hands, and says, It's okay, I'm here, I'm not leaving you this time. This sparked a lot of speculation. There's never been anything concrete said, but the general concept that flows around in the fandom was there was some incident where Nina was alone at night, or she was with Millie, Perhaps they got attacked by some angry Elevens. Millie got separated from her or ran off, and the theory has been running that Nina was assaulted or robbed or possibly even molested. We don't know. It's all theory, honestly. But the general idea is just there was some incident in the dark that made her afraid of the dark and Elevens, and that Millie couldn't or didn't help her when she could have. As, oh, okay. as for Sayoko, nothing is definite has been said, but of course the popular answer is... She married Jeremiah, and together they had super babies full of loyalty and courage. <laughs> I think I'm going to go with that one because it's just so awesome. No, the super, not just that, a super baby who kicks the ass of Ogie and Valetta's baby. Nice. There you go. As for games, obviously right off the bat we've got the DSRPG, which I think they're working on bringing over. I'm not sure. Don't hold me to that. We've got the Lost Colors PS2 PSP game. There's no way they're bringing that over. I got word from Bandai themselves. They're not bringing that over because it's a visual novel and those tank in America. Then we've got the, the board game for the DS. I haven't really heard anything about that. I don't know anyone who's played it. But it seems to be very silly, just mini games in the fashion of Mario Party. Oh, and for ages there have, been, there have been announcements about a Wii game, but nothing has ever come out about that. So I don't know if it's on, if it's delayed, if it's been cancelled, whatever. But I would suspect you can probably expect at least one more Code Geass game before the show sort of fades from the collective anime memory. Anyway. Okay. Uh, I guess I'll do the next one. I, I, uh, this is from Canada Man. Was it ever revealed what C2's true name was? 
Before I answer that question, I'm going to go bash my head against the wall. Please excuse me. <laughs> nah, seriously. And this bugs me because, like I said, I'm a big C2 fan, and I wanted to know. She has a real name. They wrote a real name for her. They told it to Jun Fukuyama when they recorded episode 11 of the first season, where Lelouch says her name twice, being blocked out by water drops. But we don't know it. They never revealed it. And in the end, it seems like they decided who she used to be doesn't matter because now she is, she's accepted the fact that she is C2 and she can live with that. The, pur- right. the purpose of her ending was basically that she used to despise her life and want to die, but seeing Lucian meeting him and knowing that he is an honestly good and decent and loving person gave her the courage to face up to her immortality and that it do- she's not going to try to grasp the past. She's not going to try to kill herself. She's just going to live as who she is thanks to Lelouch. And that's she's C2. That's how it matters in the end. Okay. Uh, next, there's still there's too many questions to <clears throat> answer in this segment, so let's just pick out a couple of big ones. Uh, this one <clears throat> is from TV. Is there any new information on what Goro Taniguchi had to change for Season 2 compared to what he planned initially? Other than that, is there any reason why so many plot threads were started only to be ignored later on? Some of the information got floated around shortly, you know, late, late into the season. Trying to remember offhand because it's been a while, but generally the, the second season was going to be a direct continuation. The time jump was added to explain this the, the time slot change. Rolo was added because of the time shift change. He was added to basically help explain it. He wasn't actually going to be in the original version. That's worth noting. They actually toyed with the idea of having another zero come in while Lelouch was around. And here's the part that sort of makes things confusing and goofy. That zero was going to be Lelicia Gottwald, Jeremiah's little sister who gets referenced in the sound episodes. Oh, no. And by some strange twist of fate or coincidence, she's basically a staff counterpart to Lelouch. She looks just like him, but female. And hmm. I gotta be honest, I'm glad they didn't go with that plotline because it sounds yeah. pretty dumb. It's pretty Just far out there. I did yeah. it Rangers. Any reason they had to? Basically, they wanted to do the show as a direct continuation, like I said. But scheduling, and then they had they had to slightly revise the show for a time slot where they couldn't get away with much. And they also felt that they had to sort of reintroduce viewers in case someone got into the show through the second season, and they wouldn't feel just completely out at sea with the, without having seen the first. So okay. that's pretty much it. That's why they had to do all that. This one's a very good question from Rurushu Ramparuji. Was it ever explained how Vivi got his code? Mm, no, honestly, it wasn't. It's just we see the flashback, him and Charles making the promise. Next thing you see, he's maybe a little older and he's immortal. We don't know how he got it. They probably just ran into a witch somewhere along the way. Wow. I was hoping there would be some sub- sub- supplemental material. I know. Afraid not. No problem. Who's next? Uh, Batosai28, and this is probably a really good question. Um, he was just wondering if you have any information on how well Kogius is doing in America in terms of ratings and DVD sales. Just, you know, kind of anything you got on that. Uh, I'm honestly not quite sure how it's doing in America. I had been given to, I'd been led to believe that in the little bumps Adult Swim had been doing, Kogius had been dying in the ratings. But then, of course, all of a sudden, it gets bumped to 5 a.m., supposedly because of crappy ratings, which is what I said at Anime Week in Atlanta this past September. As for, DVD, anime. As for DVD sales, according to Anime News Network, um, in late October, the show actually managed to pass over 1 million discs sold, including DVDs, wow. DVDs and Blu-rays for both seasons. Wow. I don't know if that includes North America or not, but obviously it's selling like hotcakes. Cool. Okay. Chris, any other questions there? Uh, 
let's see here. Oh, here's here's one uh, from Hawk of Endymion. I wonder who this is. Who is that guy? I don't know. Some loser, probably. Probably. What other roles slash duties did the Knights of the Round have? Also, what dictated the ranking system within the Knights of the Round? Basically, the Knights of the Round, there's not really a rank structure other than the Knight of One is the Emperor's personal bodyguard. The Knights of the Round are equals. They treat each other as such. They go wherever the Emperor orders them to, wherever they're needed. And, well, their, their main duties are just being high-level soldiers, really. Except the Knight of One is obviously the Emperor's personal bodyguard, and he can request the governorship of any area he chooses. Oh, okay. maybe this should be the, the closing question. Uh, Zionic Glory, what did the R2 mean in the title? <laughs> this one I actually had to do research for, by the way. Just trying to make it quick here. They had to toy with it. They Because of the time slot change, they couldn't leave the title the same. They thought that adding just adding a 2 would be unoriginal, so they threw the R in there. But it doesn't actually stand for any one thing, because there's so many words associated with the show that begin with the letter R, including Rebellion, Revenge, and Return. But as a quick note, they actually toyed with some other ideas for an alternate title, such as Lelouchia of something else, but they could never pin down a good word. They thought about slapping a kanji behind the Lelouchia of the Rebellion, but they couldn't think of a good one. And they thought about changing the kanji for the Han, which means counter in Hangyaku, counterattack, rebellion. But they couldn't think of... They, they thought about changing it to a different kanji, but they thought it'd be too confusing if you wouldn't be able to tell things apart. Okay. So it's kind of like the G and G Gundam standing for several things. Yeah. Okay. And also, just really quick, just a little snippet. The turn in... The turn uses the title for our two episodes was meant to be based off of turn-based strategy games. Oh, right on. All right. Well, I guess that kind of concludes this. Uh, question and answer period. And um, with that, we'll be back with more Gundam at MAHQ. Sir, what exactly happened here? He came out of the shadows behind me. And after he hit me many, many times in the head with a hammer, I had to give him my gun. Damn! You know, I've got kids. That's right, coward! Be afraid. Die knowing you lost to someone who really knows how to use a mobile suit. He wants me to retreat. Time to attack. How dare you. I feel the vision sucks. Eleanor. Right here. I need to depend on your ear. That's fine. Leave it to me. Rock and roll. You're under my command now. Oh, God. Wait, team. You've got something to say? Uh, nothing whatsoever, sir. Sander. Yeah. Second you start thinking of him as a regular Zeke, you'll be dead. Really? This guy is better than any of us. About time for a real fight. Oh, hi, dust. Very considerate of him to give me an escape route. He's coming right for you. Damn it! Son of a bitch! Not there? You have my friends. I've got him now, Karen. I've got a lot. Overhead! 649 by 23. Unit 301, fire! One clip. Good work, Eleanor. <laughs> this is getting fun now. Now it's your turn! Well, that looked impressive. Now say goodbye to your tank. No, you don't! I better throw in a few more tricks. Huh? Out of ammo? It's over now. My left arm is out of action. <laughs> Pretty good reflexes. Not bad for a Betty. But I bet you're not ready for this! Your good vision is your fatal weakness! Where's the main circuit, damn it? Why don't you shoot?
banish me for God's sake! It's time I stop playing games with you. What'll it be? Here he comes, Sanders. Right. You gonna fire on me while the pilot's still alive? Come on, hands. Stay steady. My friends, do I really care if they get out of this alive? Right now, all that fighting for my friends talk is sounding ridiculous. All I know is I'm really scared. I wanna live! Uh, I wanna live! Uh, so you're awake, huh? I'm gonna live! Mariana! You're the one that... And we'll grow all together! Yeah. The commander? <laughs> He's lost it! <laughs> so, I've met Miss Ina's petty lover. Life can be real fun, but I won't be stopped. Damn it, no! Victory is mine! Well, Miss Ina, the Kurgerin will have to leave without me. I have found the place where I am to die. Do you have a gun, Damn. I hope? Have a knife. A knife? This guy's 12 feet tall! Seven. Hey, don't worry, I can handle him. And so concludes episode 23 of Super Fun Happy Time Review Show, otherwise known as Gundam and MHQ. Um, we thank everybody for going through this episode so we can finish up our last reviews, uh, episodes 20 through 25 of Macross Frontier, the end of that show. Yay! We'll actually, and we actually are, I've also finished up our reviews on episodes 21 through 25 of Code Geass R2 with the uh, help of our special guest, Armro NT. Uh, we also, to keep, to kind of finalize the run of Code Geass, we had Armro's NT's uh, Code Geass mailbag where he actually, he answers a lot of the questions that were submitted on the, um, the thread that was on Mecha Talk, and we thank everybody for submitting those uh, submissions there. And we also have the 10th installment of Gundam Roundup. This one probably being the most popular Gundam in the Western Hemisphere, uh, Mobile Suit Gundam Wing, and our thoughts on that. So uh, we thank everybody for being on here. Uh, Soulbro, can you tell the folks where to hit us up at? Well, you guys can peep the websites, mahq.net, gundam.net, and you can also find us on MySpace at myspace.com slash gundamtheshow. Um, if you want to send us any feedback, please email us at gundammahq at gmail.com. And you can join us on the forum at um, mechatalk.net. And also, if you're looking to download Gundam, you could go to gundam.net and also find us on iTunes and Zoom by typing in the keyword Gundam. All right. Uh, Chris, anything from uh, the Straight Talk Express or uh, MHQ that needs to be said before we go? There's some uh, new crap coming soon. New crap? The 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 ever present new crap is coming on MHQ thing. Ready to Charmin? Yeah, pretty much. Duke Nukem <laughs> or but or Doom. I'm sorry, but um. Uh, well, that's uh, for myself, Soulbro, and Chris. Uh, we thank everybody for joining us on episode 23, and we'll see you guys back in a few weeks for episode 24. Talk to you later. Those who have laid eyes on a Gundam shall not live to tell about it. Hopefully, Tsunami. Gundam at MHQ is a Shinjuku station in MHQ production. You know the deal?
It gets no better than this, man. Holla at your boy.